If you can think of something evil, someone's already doing it. As an example, the ability to generate an earthquake. It is my understanding that the two earthquakes in 2011 were caused by the bringing on of the system of the ice cube neutrino detector. And it is my understanding that when they first brought it online, that they basically had two friendly fire misfires, and that's what hit Christchurch, New Zealand. I was there. A lot of folks contemporarily seem to have a lack of respect for people with direct first-hand experience. I mean, who else are you going to believe about what's going on in South Pole? Someone from South Pole or someone not from South Pole? Everybody always says, if this was going on, somebody would have said something. Well, there are people saying stuff. There's some people from my crew that are young and dead already, and it doesn't make sense. Have you felt that because of your work as a whistleblower, your life has ever been threatened? I know my life has been threatened. How do you know it's been threatened? I don't have a fear of death because I don't think death is the end of anything. Eric Hacker. What's up, brother? How you doing, Mark? Nice I'm to finally meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you as well. I really appreciate you coming by. You took a long trek from uh, Anchorage, Alaska. Yep. Flew from, you know, all the way through a snowstorm. Yeah, it was getting pretty brutal up there with weather. <laughs> yeah. There were some curiosities as to whether I'd make it or not. Yeah, yeah, just to make it here to the campsite here in, mm -hmm. here in Brooklyn. It's a beautiful campsite. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was the nicest campsite in Brooklyn I've ever been to. I think that's true. <laughs> I, that, I, I take a lot of pride in that. I really do. Um, you have a fascinating story. Fascinating work experience. Fascinating lived experience. The whole thing. We're going to get into all of it. So I'm just going to kind of outline a couple things that you've done and that we're going to talk about today. And then correct me if I'm wrong on anything. Um, you were contracted by Raytheon to work at the South Pole Station in Antarctica for a year, in like 2010. Yep. Um, you worked as sort of like a maintenance dude, plumber, fire team, all that kind of stuff. You had full access to the whole facility and you got to have a lot of interesting closed-door conversations with a lot of different scientists that were working there, and you got to see a lot of different types of technology that were happening in the South Pole. Is that mm -hmm. true? That's correct. Um, you have since gone on to appear on Sean Ryan's show, Patrick Bet David's show. You testified in front of uh, a, a Senate. The Senate Intelligence Committee and ARO, A-A-R-O, which is a, a new arm of the government to investigate the UFO phenomena amongst its other branches and departments, I guess you would say. Yeah. Kind of like a, a central repository of like, hey, what have all you guys been up to in this topic? Yeah. I mean, that's the intent. It's new, so I'm not, you know, no testament to whether it's going to function or not, but this is what being told its purpose was. So that was their interest in talking to me was just to um, do due diligence and what their new, mm -hmm. you know, mission statement is. And so you're technically a whistleblower mm -hmm. within the U.S. government because you testified uh, for this Senate hearing. Mm -hmm. Can you just sort of, in a broad thesis, tell me just kind of the headline, what did you say to Senate in this, in this hearing? In, in the broadest sense of the term, what I was trying to impress upon the Senate Intelligence Committee about the faction at the South Pole Station, for lack of a better term, is that that faction amongst other factions where learning is kind of rogue, that there are things that we the people have invested our taxpayer dollars into, and those programs are supposed to have oversight. And it appears that what's going on in the Antarctic program is one of these factions that has now gone rogue and functioning without oversight, and it seems that the sky is the limit for what nefarious deeds they can be up to. And I 
basically started letting them know on the things that I was figuring out through, you know, communicating with my crew, through learning about things that were presented to me when I was there that I've done more research on and just, you know, connecting the dots and, and trying to figure stuff out. So that was the long and short of it was just to let them know there's, there's technology at the South Pole Station that is, for lack of a better term, like like beyond the comprehension of the average person at this point. It's like, mm-hmm. it's that far advanced that what I'm telling people is like almost repugnant information because it's like, well, if that was true, and it's like, well, that's kind of my whole point to this conversation is to get people to start thinking about, well, what if this is true? Mm-hmm. You know, I get, I, get, I get a lot of flack because, you know, saying directed energy weapons are creating earthquakes and uh, provide an avenue for mind control. It's not that it's impossible. It's just that people haven't done the research yet. Uh, I just came across an article that the scientists at University of Wisconsin, which is the same outfit that's running the ice cube neutrino detector at South Pole Station. I just came across an article that said that they were looking into having direct communication with, let's say you, a person, while you're sleeping and in the middle of a lucid dream. Mm that they can engage you conversationally. Hmm. So this is the front edge of science that no one's really discussing. And there's not a lot of folks out there short of like, you know, Dr. James Giordano who are looking into the morals and ethics of these new weapons platforms that do exist. It's not even a question anymore if, if they exist. Um, we have companies uh, used to be called LRAT. Now they go by the name Genesis. And they manufacture the LRAD device, long-range acoustical device, which is a directed energy weapons platform. These are commercially available items that are for sale. Okay. So the two big claims, if I'm understanding correctly, mm-hmm. is that in South Pole Station in Antarctica, they're working on directed energy weapons. Yes. And they're also working on, I guess, technology that could implant thoughts and ideas into people's minds. Yes. And this is all happening in Antarctica. Correct. And you have evidence to support these claims. I have evidence to support that the ice cube neutrino detector is not simply passively listening, so to say, I've provided documentation that states that it is also transmitting. And then through just extrapolation of other information, we can um, do the research to find out that it's effectively the world's largest phased array transmitter. Because now that we know it can transmit, we just have to look at what its components are and what the list of possibilities are at this point. And that's basically where I'm coming in and trying to get people to honestly look at what can be going on. Mm -hmm. So... I can't prove every aspect of everything that I'm suggesting for folks to consider, but what I can prove is that they're lying to us, Mm -hmm. that there are directed energy weapons systems functioning at the South Pole, but as to what they are doing, uh, I'm just using Occam's razor to put everything on the table. Mm -hmm. Everything to do with directed energy weapons should be considered as a possibility at the South Pole station until such time we assess and say, well, that's definitely not happening. And that's definitely not happening. Got it. Um, but the problem is with directed energy weapons is it's not like a, a standard pistol of old, right? <clears throat> Where it has a particular caliber bullet, you pull the trigger, that bullet comes out, and that's all that weapon does. <clears throat> directed energy weapon systems, we just have to understand, are a lot more complex. They can fire many different things. 
Okay. The so list is massive. Could you explain a directed energy weapon just to a fifth grader? Like, sure. What, it's what just would that it's be? it's the manipulation of energy. Uh, I guess you'd say over time and space from one location to another. Tesla would say not even necessarily radiating the energy that it can get from one point to another without a propagated power loss. So it kind of thumbs its nose at all the things we know about energy and physics beforehand. So we just have to open our minds up to, how do I put it? As an example, the ability to generate an earthquake is, a, is the delivery of energy from one point to another um, with the intended negative outcome of inducing an earthquake. And we, we'll get to that in a little bit, but mm-hmm. you believe that earthquakes have been created from the directed energy weapons at the South Pole absolutely. Al- already? Yes, absolutely. Okay. It is my understanding that the two earthquakes in February of 2011 were caused by the bringing on of the system of the ice cube neutrino detector. They went from construction to operations and maintenance during the season that I was there. Wow. And it is my understanding that when they first brought it online as a transmitter, that they basically had two friendly fire misfires, and that's what hit Christchurch, New Zealand. Wow. Okay. So we're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess also like weather control, the ability to like manipulate weather patterns. I believe that would be on the list as well because these are, these are all things that directed energy weapons systems can manipulate. Okay. So I want I want people to consider that every one of these things could be going on. Uh, a lot of folks out there might be familiar with HARP, which is the uh, system that's up in Kokona, Alaska, which I have visited that at least twice now, maybe three times. I can't recall exactly the first time I went there. But um, HARP is basically a phased array transmitter on the surface of the Earth that has length and width to it. The ice cube neutrino detector adds depth because it's embedded in the ice. Mm. So it's an exponential um, power-up, I guess you would say, for its abilities in the concept of being a phased array transmitter. You're adding another level of uh, the depth to the playing field. Interesting. And then just the last component to kind of set the table here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason that you've come forward as an official whistleblower mm-hmm. and the reason why you've put in so much effort mm-hmm. and you know, flown from Alaska just to be here today to talk about this mm-hmm. What are the implications of this technology being in the hands of different governments in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that mean for the fate of humanity, in your opinion? A lot. And that's a great question. Um, the reason that I'm speaking is because of my understanding of these technologies and the fact that I can observe them being applied to the general population now. Is if people don't start to pay attention that they started by using these in small groups but that was just to get it dialed in. Now these weapons are being used by many factions and we the people are caught in the crossfire of a war of technological level that we haven't even begun to consider so we don't realize that we're kind of all walking wounded on a battlefield that we don't even realize that we're on right now. Mm. I mean this is this is wild. Mm-hmm. Um this is this will be this will be fun. So been at the South Pole for a year, contracted mm-hmm. by Raytheon, directed mm-hmm. energy weapons, mind control weapons. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, all of humanity is at risk because of this technology falling into the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. That's all true? Yeah. All right. It's, all, it's, it's, it's already in the wrong hands, technically. Okay. And they're, and they're already in the throes of battle. Um, a lot of what I'm doing is because of my crew negatively impacted from being the operators for a season— of a directed energy weapons system. Sorry, oh, I thought I had that to add. The, okay, can we talk about this? This yeah, is the creepiest, it. most awful, 
Look, I don't even care what you say today, okay? Uh-huh. Regardless of what you say, the worst thing that you've done ever in your entire life is have that as your ringtone. It, if anyone didn't hear it, I don't know if I picked up on the mic, it's a little boy going, hello? You're a, you're a maniac, okay? You're a terrifying person. I am, I am giddy that this is the reaction that I'm getting off of that. Did, you, did you mute it? Because if it goes off again, I'm going to I'm gonna black out. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw up all over this table. Okay, so this is, this is, so far, the groundwork has been laid for a very interesting conversation. So just take me back. I would love to just kind of start even at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to know about kind of like your upbringing, mm-hmm. your family, things like that, because I do think it sets a good framework for understanding you as your career kind of advances. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in Long Island. Yes, sir. So you're not far from home. No, not far at all. Welcome back to New York. Thank you, sir. Um, and where in Long Island? I grew up in Nassau County in Levittown. Okay, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. of course. The country's first suburb. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which is also, suburb. I mean, ripe for research in as so far as, you know, it was a government experiment. I yeah. mean, Levittown was funded uh, basically so that William Levitt could make a community for the returning World War II veterans, a concentration of World War II veterans. So it was a peculiar community by design. Yeah. You had Grumman over there. What's that? Uh, Grumman in Bethpage, which uh, that's where the lunar module is manufactured. Mm. So this is, you know, this is where all the Operation Paperclips folks went. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they were all residents of that community. And Operation Paperclip is the mission, or I guess the operation after World War II that mm-hmm. a lot of Nazi scientists were then relocated to work Correct. within U.S. governmental systems. Yes, NASA, for NASA, which, you know, the lunar module, which was Bethpage. Right. So this is where these guys oh, hung out. Yeah. And you were born there? I was born in Bethpage, yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. And what did your parents do? Uh, my father worked for the gas company on Long Island, and my mother did miscellaneous secretarial stuff for doctor's offices. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And did you have siblings? Yep. I had an older brother and a younger sister. Okay, cool. And do they work in science fields? No, not at all. They're mm-hmm. still in Long Island? Yep. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. And you went to high school all throughout in Long Island? Yes, sir. And did you go to college? I did not. Okay, cool. Yeah, did, did you it. consider it? No. It wasn't even on the table? I, Not for nothing. I mean, I knew back then that a college education wasn't worth the piece of paper it was written on anymore. Like uh, every, it's, college used to have value because yeah. it made you special. Right. Now you're just in debt like everyone else, wishing you could get a job in the trade that you waste a lot of money on. Yeah, it just is so expensive. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, ridiculous. It's so expensive. That was kind of my thought. It's like, mm-hmm. unless you're going for like a very specialized degree, like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to be a doctor, I don't want my, I don't want my doctor being like freelance, like. Understood. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> but like, if you're, yeah, if you're going to, if you're not going into STEM or something like that and you're taking on a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. Might not be the best trade off. Yeah. So that was your, that was your calculation. Your Absolutely. Life. Yeah. I did a, I did a short stint in the Navy with the submarine service. That was, um interesting but odd in and of itself and that technically was my my first experience with Raytheon because mm. of their proximity to the submarine service so that got my radar up when I was going down to the South Pole station and I was being employed by Raytheon Polar Services so it did strike me as peculiar that you know a weapons contractor mm-hmm. has the maintenance contract right. for these programs you Interesting, know? and then now Raytheon doesn't have it, but Lockheed Martin does, and it's like, really? Why? Why are they only hire military industrial contractors to do this stuff? I mean, there's plenty of other you know service companies out there that do work around the world that don't make things to kill people, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick because we got to talk about your amazing dick game. Yes, you. You right now. Listen to my voice, my deep, soothing voice. You have an amazing dick game. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you know someone with an amazing dick game. Maybe you got a boyfriend. Who knows? But if you have an amazing dick game, there's a way that you can make it better. And that's with the good people over at Blue Chew. Mm -hmm. Blue Chew is an amazing service that basically delivers a chewable tablet that has the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, all that stuff. But this is the chew. It's at a fraction of a cost. And it's never been easier to get your hands on the greatest dick game of your life. Mm -hmm. Never been easier. I'm telling you. You can go to bluechew.com. And you can submit all your information to a licensed person, a legit person, that will then mail you a discreet, very unassuming, but very, very powerful package. You know what I'm talking about? The powerful package to your home. That's how easy it is. You don't got to go talk to a doctor and be like, yeah, you know, I want... No, -uh. nope, easy. You got to just go on the internet. Yo, bluechew.com, I want to get the best dick given of my life. And that's how you do it. Easy as that. And for the listeners of this show, of this program, you are going to get... Free first month of Blue Chew. Mm -hmm. You're going to be getting Blue Chew for free. All you got to do is pay $5 shipping. That's a cup of coffee. Black to be delivering that BBC. You know what I'm saying? That's bluechew.com. B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. Use the promo code GAGNON, G-A-G-N-O-N, and receive your first month for free. That's bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And thank you so much, Blue Chew. I'm telling you, man, check out this product. Even if you're one of these people that's like, oh, I don't know, I don't really need it. What are you talking about? It could be better. It can always be better. Let's say you're in the 1%, you're about to be in the 0.01% with Blue Chew. Now let's get back to the show. And growing up, did you enjoy being on Long Island? Did you, oh, absolutely. You played sports and stuff? A little bit here and there. I was more of, uh, I guess you would say, lower middle class. So um, those things were like expensive hobbies that, you know, I, I've basically been working since I was 12 years old. Oh, really? So, yeah, you know, those were pleasantries that weren't afforded to us. What kind of jobs were you doing young? Oh, geez. When I was 12, I was a stock boy at a paint store. Um, I, I ran the gamut for like Kmart, jobs at the mall, you know, it was, um, it was a different time back then because they didn't even have the child labor laws yet. <laughs> yeah. So I remember I was working for Kmart on Hempstead Turnpike in Levittown when they changed a whole batch of child labor laws. And I was flipping out because I'm like, what the, what the hell is this? Like, I, it was only a few years ago when I was like 12 that I learned about taxes and was like flipping out on my boss at the paint store. Because I'm like, what do you mean you take money out of my check? So he's funny. like, it's, it's taxes. I'm like, what are, ta what are you talking about? You became like a teamster at 13. Yeah. You're like smoking cigarettes. You're like, yeah. what happened to this city? Yeah, this, this is, you know, kids these days. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, you're 13. So when I was at Kmart, I was 16 years old and they changed all these laws and you can only work so many hours, you know, so many school nights a week, so many in a row. And I was like, what the, what the hell does the government care how much I work, yeah. you know? And then it was cool because Kmart was like, don't worry, kid. Here's what we're going to do. Like, we're going to give you these time card numbers for this day and the time cards over here. So I could work as much as I wanted and they finagled. Oh, and that's just, cool. Yeah, I was, I was totally fine with it. And so you're making like money all the way growing up. I always had a job. Yeah, you know, yeah. I just, it was, you know, if you, if you wanted stuff, you had to work for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then were you good at school? Did you enjoy being in school? Did you have a lot of friends? I had a lot of friends. I had no problems in that department. I got along with almost everybody. I was more of like the kind of guy that would like kind of, I had my own group of friends, but I also, there was like other people from other groups. There was always someone in some other group that I was still friendly with that person, even though it was a different group. Mm -hmm. um, 
academically, I would say I was just barely passing, um, mostly, well, mostly all because I, I just refused to do homework and reports and stuff. I aced all the tests without like even right. trying. I could just sleep in class and by osmosis, I'd get like 110 on the test, but I worked. So right. I really didn't care about doing homework or doing reports. So at that point, you know, you can get 100 on every test. But if you're not going to do the yeah. work, work, you're getting, you're then they're like, C's. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't for lack of understanding. It was just no. I understood all the topics. It was just uh, extremely boring to me, a waste of my time, and I would have preferred working. And even in, even in hindsight, in reality, I can still say I would have been in a better position in life today if I spent those four years working yeah, yeah. and advancing my career instead of going to high school. Right. Because that's the value of our education right now. Mm. It's just crap across the board. Like, yeah. what's the value of a high school education? What do you really learn in high school that you, come on. You meet girls. That's, that's yeah. important. Yeah. Right. And then you figure out what college you're going to go get indebted to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's two biggest things, right? <laughs> Death, debt, and mm -hmm. women. You know yeah. what I mean? The three inevitabilities. Yeah. <laughs> and so growing up, did you ever have, uh, like, paranormal experiences? Any experiences of, like, Strange, like people call it high strangeness, like within uh, conspiracy I, circles. I guess I, you know, in the putting it that way, I'd have to say yes, right? Uh, I don't talk about it much because there's not much I can do with it. You know, it's not one of those things that I can prove. Um, but there were times as a kid that I would say I, I saw weird things that I thought were, you know, um, I guess I'm like picturing it in my head, my my bedroom window. It was, it's Levittown, so the houses were close. You know, similar to like yeah, you know yeah. Brooklyn, like every. The, the, the properties are close, you know. You can look out your bedroom window and look into someone else's bedroom window. So I have recollections of, like, um, I guess I would almost say, like, peculiar lights in between the houses that I can't really make sense of. Hmm. Strange colors? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, almost like, almost like, uh, like, uh, how would I put it? It would be like if, like, if a disco ball was passing through the homes and the lights coming off were all – I was looking at the passing light on the reflection of the walls and um, always seemed odd to me. Hmm. And then um, with that being said, I, I did research and I found out that my actual property was on what was formerly the property – and you can look this one up if you want – the Long Island Aviation Country Club which was in the early 1900s when aviation was all the rage. Mm -hmm. And this was an aviation country club for the affluent. So um, Charles Lindbergh was a member. Yeah, This is basically where all the folks that live on the North Shore of Long Island, all the really wealthy people, had put this airport, this country club, south of the farms that service them. So it's like, you know, we can keep our noisy air toys down over there. I believe, and this is pure speculation at this point, right? In the grand scheme of UFO disclosure and things like that, I believe that the Long Island Aviation Country Club being a focal point of aviation at a time period where it was new on this planet, right? Aviators getting up in the air. I believe there's always been some sort of UFO presence. I believe that there's always been something else in the air before we got there. Hmm. So I believe places like this, when they were original back then, would have drawn the attention of the other things, whatever they are. Interesting. So that when William Levitt purchased that property, where there was already, I believe, activity occurring, 
that when all the aviators up and moved because their property got sold, I think whatever was the other thing that had interest didn't get the notice. And they stuck around. They stuck around and and folks in that area had interactions, I believe. Bizarre. Did you know other people that saw strange lights, strange things, things like that? No, I would say negative. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking into it. Yeah. Once, I mean, once I once I made that connection and saw that whole situation, um, I thought it was ripe for further research. Interesting. And how many times when you were a kid did you see stuff like this? I would say off the top of my head, I can think of just maybe three or four times that I can recall. Strange. Yeah. Did you ever get a weird feeling accompanied by it? Like internally, did you ever feel I'm getting like a weird it? feeling thinking about it right now. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Because I've heard, I, I spoke with a guy, mm -hmm. uh, uh, James Iandoli. He's a mm -hmm. UFOologist that lives here in, in New York. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think he's out in Jersey. But he uh, practices like uh, CE5, close oh, encounters. Okay. And he says that he, when he sees lights and things like that, he gets a feeling internally mm -hmm. where like he would feel a certain way. He would feel almost like euphoric. He would feel like energy. That makes sense to me. I think there's a lot to be said for the the energetic level of a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Almost like, um, like let's just say sixth sense, so to say, mm -hmm. that I I believe there's a lot more to us than the five senses we typically discuss. Sure. I mean, there could be 12 senses for all I know. So maybe, you know, in one of those circumstances, it, it triggers a sensation in one of those senses. But when you were a kid, you didn't feel that. Mm, I think when I was a kid, like now when I look at it in hindsight and I know everybody like, oh, that's because you were a dream. It, it's hard for me to say it was real versus a dream. Hmm. But now that's also because there's now so much distance yeah, of course. between now and then. So 40 it's like, years ago. Right, yeah. right. So sure. exactly. So, But I feel like back then it really seemed like I was waking up from sleep and witnessing this light activity. Yeah, which is not uncommon. I, I've mm -hmm. heard a lot of people that have spoken about their UFO encounters and mm -hmm. different types of you know high strangeness encounters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them will be out of sleep or... Mm -hmm. Uh, in sort of like this limbic conscious state mm -hmm. where like a lot of these like experiences happen, which I find very interesting. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that there's, there's something else going on um, just when we go to sleep. Just in that simple equation, I think we do not pay enough attention mm -hmm. to, you know, the fact that we're asleep for one third of the day. Like, mm -hmm. What does that even really mean? <laughs> you know, oh, I'm going to go to sleep. What, what, where are you going? <laughs> to sleep. But are you really? Like, maybe you're going somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I read an amazing book by uh, Itzhak Bentov called Stalking the Wild Pendulum. And one of the things that he discusses is that, you know, when we go to sleep, um, we're completely going somewhere else. Hmm. That, you know, if you think about this planet, right? And currently, you know, when you're awake, you're you're upright and you're you know perpendicular to the surface of the planet that you're traversing all day long. But then at night... You invert by 90 degrees, and then all of a sudden you go somewhere else. Hmm. And it's that 90-degree angle transformation that matters, that that's something that we can actually observe um, throughout many parts of nature, that transformation occurs at 90 degrees. Really? It's just one of these – it's like a – it's – like an observable rule of life. Does he talk about any other like examples in nature that we're familiar with? Um, I don't think that he gets too heavy into it. I think he just uh, – 
vaguely references like electromagnetic frequency and how you can have a wave going this way and then the other one is you know 90 degrees offset from it and as, as an observability but i think what he was trying to do was take that vague reference and just allude to the fact that we are instigating a transfer to somewhere else by inverting 90 degrees it's it's mechanical energetic interaction so to say interesting you know if i if you lay down right now it's going to matter mm, like if you put some type of like uh electric mad electromagnetic like instrument that can pick up waves mm -hmm. the waves it would pick up vertically would be different than horizontally is i would that, imagine something to that effect yeah and this is probably in sleep studies all day long interesting you know yeah i would love to look into that that's mm -hmm. that's quite interesting so growing up was pretty typical American upbringing. Mm, negative. <laughs> I'm learning that that wasn't actually accurate. Oh, really? Um, in my childhood, I appear to become associated with something referred to as the Stargate program and or MKUltra type stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is where I get into deciphering my experiences, the title of which I put my work out um, because I'm trying to get this stuff figured out. It is a, a monster to try to get information about what happened to me as a kid because nobody in these programs is leaving a trail of breadcrumbs saying sure. this is how we used to abuse children back on Long Island. Right. You know, um, there's folks that I know that have interviewed folks from the remote viewing programs in the government. You know, these guys that were top secret back in the day doing the remote viewing programs. And I know people that interviewed them and they're like, I asked them if you were in the program and they said that you weren't. I said, you're asking people to admit to child abuse. Of course they're going to say they have no recollection of it. Right. Can you explain for people that aren't familiar what Stargate is, mm -hmm. what the Montauk Project is, Absolutely. things like that? So the Stargate program way back when was when the government was working on trying to understand consciousness. Literally, in that vaguest sense of the term, they wanted to understand consciousness. That book I mentioned before, Stalking the Wild Pendulum by Itzhak Bentov, was used heavily in this program because it appears he understood consciousness, as did Robert Monroe of the Monroe Institute. So between that book and the Monroe Institute protocols for remote viewing, they started working with adults— and as much as no one wants to admit it, they eventually were working with children also. Why with children? Because they had less biases built in. Hmm. It made them better remote viewers because they didn't have any pretenses. When you're remote viewing, you're not supposed to really have an opinion on what you're looking at. You're supposed to just get the info. Hmm. Children are better at that because they don't harbor the biases of experiences and adding their own prejudgments to what they're looking at. Hmm. You know, if you see a circle, you want to say, I see a circle. You don't want to start trying to imagine what it is, you know, because you're so smart. I have an experience. I saw a UFO. Mm -hmm. No, technically, you just saw a circle and now you're adding to it your experience, you know, so it's stuff like that that at the very least got them looking into working with children. Mm. You know, I think it's very easy to realize that our alphabet agencies, our factions that are willing to kill women and children of foreign lands for all kinds of definitions, right? Whether it be war, experiment, they'll do it. Mm -hmm. 
what about what they're doing makes us believe that there's some imaginary geographical border that they're like, but we'll only do it on that side of the line. Right. This You're safe if you're a kid on this side of the Eric, line. We're Americans. Yeah. They would not hurt Americans. They would never do illegal <laughs> experiments on Americans. Yeah. Unless you except for, like, except for all the pages and pages of one that we caught them doing in the past. Yeah, Tuskegee, you know, syphilis yeah. experiment. You know, There's all kinds of stuff that. where they were like, hey, let's just fly a plane over that city and dump this stuff on them and see what happens. But like, don't look into that. Okay? Yeah. As long as you're not looking into that, Correct. then we're fine. So all I'm doing <laughs> in certain circumstances is just extrapolating my own experiences that I know that mm -hmm. I can't necessarily prove, but mm -hmm. they're my experiences and no one can take them from me. And now I'm looking into these other programs that are verifiable and just kind of saying, well, if if this, then that, like, come on. Like, right. I feel like most times when we investigate folks for, you know, nefarious activities, more often than not, once we shine a light on it, we find that it's going on. Right. I mean, if I'm wrong... Find me all of the stuff where you can say, "Hey, they looked into so and so doing bad stuff," and it turns out he was clean as whistle. Mm -hmm. He was just the most honest guy we ever yeah, met. If there's smoke, there's fire. Always. Yeah. People, bad people, seem to be taking advantage every opportunity that they have. Mm -hmm. Like it's that simple. If you can think of something evil, someone's already doing it. There's five people vying to be the best at it. Hmm. And so what is remote viewing again? Remote viewing is the ability to have information in your head, basically, and you're right, and they have no idea why you're right, because there's no reason for you to be right. As weird as this sounds, it's like if you have no experience in something, like if I somehow could prove that you've, you know, you've never left the United States, mm -hmm. but we want you to remote view this room in Bangkok, China. Well, if it comes back that you're, you know, it, it'd be like if I was never in this room before, mm -hmm. never saw it, never anything about it, but they said, you know, we're going to give you coordinates and we want you to remote view this location. If I start pinning down every detail of this room, it's strange. It is strange. It's completely strange. The oddity is that it can it can be done, and somebody can be that accurate. There are people that are very skilled at this, right? And it is wholly strange, mm -hmm. but very real and very verifiable. And yeah, it would freak you out if people start coming back with this quality intel, right? And this is what they learned about remote viewing: is that technically, everything is knowable, and nothing can be hidden. And this covers all of time and space. That is the the high level of strangeness. Hmm. This is what they learned through working with people and studying consciousness. Yeah, I spoke with Richard Dolan. Yes, uh, that was a great conversation. As you know, and, and his wife is a remote viewer. Mm -hmm. And he spoke at length about her ability to <coughs> uh, know and test her remote viewing abilities just based off coordinates mm -hmm. to places that she's never been to. Mm -hmm. And he even referenced specific uh, military documents that were declassified mm -hmm. of understanding military positions through remote viewing, mm -hmm. which... It kind of blew my mind. It seems too good to be true. That's one of those things that Understood. seems but wild. It is. It, it, of course, seems wild. Yeah. You but know, these, to, these projects like Stargate and things like that, uh -huh. is that uh, conspiracy you know, out there mumbo-jumbo, or is that actually declassified it's government documents? Declassified and referenceable. Mm -hmm. They didn't declassify every document, mm -hmm. but if you go to the— um, CIA website, there's a tab called Crest, and they had 25,000 documents when they first pumped that out, but I believe they keep adding to it, and you can go in there yourself. You can do a freedom of request 
freedom of information request right on the website and start pulling up things all day long. Mm. Yeah, I think the most popular depiction of this in pop culture, at least for me, is mm-hmm. like Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it. I have. Um, where Eleven is obviously mm-hmm. a remote viewer and a child that was mm-hmm. uh, you know, raised within some type of experimental lab mm-hmm. where she was doing remote viewing. And yep. she was basically able to get given a position, mm-hmm. you know, go into a sensory deprivation tank, close her eyes, and she was able to see things in places that she should have no business seeing, yep. even into different dimensions mm-hmm. you know, within the show. Yep. Obviously, like I said before, all time and space is accessible. Right. Um, the Montauk Project, mm-hmm. I understand, was a similar mm-hmm. a similar. Uh, that's it's it's the exact same thing. the 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 show Stranger Things was supposed to go on air initially as titled Montauk. Mm-hmm. They told me never getting this on air as Montauk. The producers of Stranger Things were inspired by a documentary made by a Long Islander, Christopher Garitano, made a documentary called The Montauk Chronicles, which was very good, covering mm-hmm. the Montauk Project and the Montauk Boys and what was going on, and. It was that documentary that inspired the producers to make the show Stranger Things. Interesting. And now this obviously relates to you in some way, because if anyone's not familiar with the geography of New York, Montauk mm-hmm. is one of the farthest cities in mm-hmm. New York proper, out on Long Island. Yep. It's all the way at the end. Yep. It's all the, it's, that's why they call it Montauk, the end. Oh, is that what it means? Absolutely. That You see, it's a, it's the, the shirts and the- Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, so the further you get out and you, you get to Montauk, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the shirts are all, and the stickers and the hats says Montauk, the end. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've mm-hmm. seen that. So what is your connection with Stargate and with remote viewing programs as a kid? We had a program in my school. So I would get pulled out of my regular curriculum classes, brought to the library, and we were being trained in the Monroe Institute protocols for remote viewing and how, practicing them. How old are you? It would have been pretty much all my grammar school years. So I would I would guesstimate. I'm trying to think as far. I put it this way. It's it's. It's as far back as I can remember in grammar school, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that it probably started in first grade. First grade, like fifth grade. F- I would say first grade to probably seventh grade of my direct re- recollections. Wow. So probably like seven years old to like twelve, eleven, something like that. I think those are how ages work. Yeah, out. I'm guessing too. <laughs> I would, yeah, I'd say probably seven to twelve sounds wow. about fair. That's wild. And what year was this? If you can remember. That would have been probably 81, 82 for about that when it started. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so just in your school, they were pulling you out. Were they pulling out other kids as well? Yes, absolutely. There was how other how kids. many kids roughly, if you can remember? Ooh, I would say there was maybe eight to ten of us, I think. If I'm, I'm trying to picture the layout of the library yeah. and how they had it set up with the tables and all of that stuff. So I think they had about eight to ten positions where we were all being um, handled individually, I guess you would say. Was there a selection process? Yes. I think it had to do with the standardized testing mm. and that there was also um, we would be brought down to the library prior to being in the program. I think they were doing testing with us um, to check for proficiency Mm. there's certain characteristics that they're looking for and i think they were filtering to just see who had what abilities and i'm assuming you did well on the standardized test oh absolutely yeah Yeah. i i used to crush those tests no homework involved so nothing yeah it was was, (laughs) i was um i had a high aptitude as a child right um i remember like you know io tests and things like that you know the scantron things yeah and, and we would do those pretty regularly and i always remember there was the um the chart, there's a bar graph basically, and it would show, you know, where your scores were. 
and then you know the scores for your local community, the scores nationally, and how you fit on average. And I would remember laughing. I'm sorry, it was a line graph, and you could see the line jumping, you know, for all the stuff. And then mine just went straight across the top. Wow! It just was pinned, just like as high as you can go across the whole thing. So, Interesting. Uh, yeah. And so just, you think that's why you were selected for the program? I think that had a portion to do with it. I think, uh, you know, the ability to do well with the information in school with ease was something that they were looking for. I guess comprehension. I had I had very good comprehension skills. I was reading um, multiple years above my grade level and hmm. mathematics as well. I was, I was I was very advanced for the grade that I was in, but my mother wouldn't allow me to be advanced per grade. So actually I would I would sit in the classroom for the students that I was the same age as, and I would have to do all of the work that they were doing, but then the teachers from the higher grades would also come in and give me more work to do. Hmm. And I would just get it all done and do well. And so I did very well academically, but I think that there were also um, – I guess you would just say more personal things. So I guess besides aptitude, I think there was mental stuff that they were looking for also. Mm -hmm. And I think that has to do with bloodline stuff, I guess I would put it as. Like <laughs> generational trauma is what's coming to mind is that there, that matters to them. There's a certain aspect of humanity that has been put through a process that is adv advantageous for them, and it has to do with, I guess you would say, mental divergence, that you can go different places, consider different things, a bit more open-minded. Hmm. So when you say bloodline and generational trauma, do you mean things that happened to you or things that happened in your family lineage? All the above. Really? Yes. What we're learning uh, or what we've learned, what I'm learning, is that you're the end result of the six generations before you. So this is how they have like, you know, what they call like, you know, 100th monkey experiment or when they say that, you know, animals have instincts well, it's, it's the generational trauma that makes, you know, one certain animal inherently afraid of another certain animal, even though that animal might not have seen the other one before. So their, their first instinct right. is to be like, oh, I have to be pensive. Like how a cat is afraid of a cucumber. Because it's built into its mind that that's a snake. Fair enough. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever seen these videos? I like, have, actually. Yeah. You yeah. put a cucumber near a cat, they freak out. Yeah. Because in their brain, they go, snake. There you go. go. So stuff like that is generational trauma. And there are also things in that capacity that can be searched for. Hmm. And that there are things that go along with that that are advantageous to the programs that they're trying to function these children in. So there's like an interview process where they Absolutely. might ask you, do you remember anything that they asked you? I know this is a long Not time Not so ago. much the interview process. I... I I don't so much on that one. I remember more of the, I guess you would say, the practical application where we would get into doing what were called like ideograms and the questions that mm. they would ask. I always remember that stuff because it, um, you know, Superman mm. and the comic series, and there was Bizarro, who oh, was yeah, like the yeah, opposite yeah. of Superman. And it was like alternate universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I used to think of going to the library as Bizarro world. It was how I thought of it as a kid because 
it was like the opposite of everything that I knew. And it was so obvious to me at that time that it was making no sense. In what way? Um, I went to a very old school, strict Catholic school. So there's right and there's mm -hmm. wrong. And they'll whack you in the head for wrong. So you learn to be right and you learned what the line was. But the library was bizarro world because everything was right. There was no wrong, which now made everything a shade of gray. So like when you would do the ideogram and they would start doing the remote viewing protocols, they would start asking you questions like, Eric, you know, do you see mountains or do you see a lake? And just say whatever comes to mind because whatever you say is right. And it, like they weren't mm. explaining to us what we were doing. Mm -hmm. They were just presenting that simply like draw a squiggly line. Now, do you see a lake or do you see mountains? And don't and it, so, from my perspective, I was like, "What is this? Yeah. What is going on in this room? Yeah, how do I pass this test? Like, what is the right answer?" Right. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize what they were doing to us. So when I would see mountains and say mountains, well, I was remote viewing, and I was right. And they were going off of that, and then taking the information that we were doing with these practical exams and doing stuff with it. But they weren't telling us what was going on. So from my experiential recollections of those events, it made no sense. Hmm. You know, so for many years, if I thought about what was going on in the library, I just think of it as like, that was the most ridiculous, nonsensical stuff ever until I started as an adult looking into, well, what is the Monroe Institute protocols? Um, how does this, like, I mean, you can look up videos now and see this is, you know, um, Major Ed Dames, who was big in the program, I saw a video where he was doing the session with his own son. So it was like really mind-numbing for me because I was like, wow, this is literally, they're running a kid. This is literally what we were doing. Wow. And he would have his son to the, and then you just put the pen on and they ask you a question. What do you see? What, what color? And, you know, they just start going through the motions of the protocols and you get info. And I, my jaw was hitting the floor because I'm like, that's what we were doing. Did you ever talk to your parents about it? I speak to my father about it now. And did they get informed when you were a kid that you were going to be doing this specialized program? He did not know. And they just pulled you out of class and started doing it to you with Correct. no parental permission? Correct. Did they tell you not to tell your parents? I don't recall them saying that. I don't think that they had to. I believe that the the format for what I was doing, I mean, it was a different world back then. Sure. Um, as long as you weren't getting in trouble. You tried to kind of avoid your parents. <laughs> right. I, was, I was the textbook latchkey kid growing up. Mm. So for the most part, if my parents were around, I was avoiding them. Mm. You know, they had jobs. I had a job. They're going to ask me if I did my homework. I didn't do my homework. So yeah. it's just, I would just avoid them. And if there was no problems at school, if there's nothing to bring up, which if there was a problem in school, I wouldn't bring that up anyhow. Interesting. Because it's going to be another problem for me. If you got me. in a fight or something. I would, would never. Yeah, uh, I just I would just avoid so that there's not any more problems. And I never thought to myself that what was going on in school wouldn't have been approved by my parents. Right, because it's school. Yeah, I just figured it's school. This is my, it must be what we're supposed to be doing. This is They said, get out of class, go to the library and answer these questions. Of course, I'm mm -hmm. going to just do it. Right. Now, I just want to clarify something you mentioned a little earlier, because I know there's going to be people in the comments mm -hmm. that are pointing this out. Um, you had said that you were doing well in school and that other teachers were bringing you homework and like different work mm -hmm. to do. Coursework, yeah. So and can you just make that distinction? Because you had said before that you weren't doing homework and academic. It wasn't homework. Okay. It was classwork. They were bringing me more work from the other 
um, grade levels and classes to do in school. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So like yeah. in a class, you would finish the work for that class, mm -hmm. and then the other teachers would be like, yo, this kid needs more shit to do. He's like yes. sitting around. Yes. And then they would bring you other shit to do in class. Yes. Ah, I see. Okay. Yep. So your grades were not doing great because you weren't doing the homework. Correct. You were working. Yeah. But academically, the teachers were like, yo, this kid's smart and he's doing shit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is, is that a fair estimation? Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Yep. Okay. And then did you ever have teachers that were like, yo, Eric, like, you're smart. Why are you not doing good? Yeah, absolutely. And like, what was that conversation like? Like, I can imagine them being frustrated. Like, dude, you could. Yeah, I, I would often get there and say, you're not applying yourself. Yeah. You could do so much better. You're not applying yourself. Um, it just didn't make sense to me at the time, to be honest with you. I remember hmm. them saying that, um, but I didn't know what to do with that information. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And so now back to remote viewing, can you explain like th what the actual like things you were doing? So they would squiggle on a piece of paper and be like, what do you see? Almost like a Rorschach. Is that a fair? Um, yes, it's, it's similar. Um, it has more to, that's, that's what they're doing is they would ask a series of questions and they would want to get your answers because they appreciated what you were doing. Mm -hmm. they, they knew this kid's actively remote viewing and we are going to trust what he says. Because we'd gone through the program, we'd gotten trained, and that's just, you know, I get that other folks out there might think that it's woo-woo, but that's that's on them. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a proven protocol. They've, they've used this for decades now functionally. Mm -hmm. So we just happened to be in a room where everyone was taking it very seriously. And from what my understanding is now is that this is how these remote viewing teams work work. They basically just get a whole bunch of good remote viewers and uh, it's like everybody has a specialty. So mm. one person might be good with colors. One person might be good with faces. Mm. Another one might be good with uh, geographies. So they they have a filtering process to learn that. What is your skill set? Interesting. And then with that, they can put together a team and they can start gathering intel and with a high level of effectiveness wow. of knowing things you have no reason to know. I mean, uh, a lot of folks don't know this, but the the movie The Hunt for Red October, mm -hmm. that's that was f the product of remote viewing. That's that submarine was first learned about by a remote viewer, and it, they found it being built inland. And it was remote viewed first. That's how they came across that info. And that's the basis of that movie, The Hunt for Red October. I think this is what Richard was bringing up. I believe uh, he did touch yeah, on yeah. that. Yeah, in so the podcast this, we did. This is, uh, and I'm tr I, I could be getting, I could be giving credit to the wrong guy, but I believe it was Pat Price was the remote viewer that first found the Red October being constructed. Uh, it might have been Joe McConigal, but one of those guys was, I, and it's referenceable to one of these characters. I just am bad with names. I'm sure the remote viewing this right now getting pissed off. I yeah. said they're like, come on, Eric. It was uh -huh. me, dude. Come on. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. And was it every week you were going in and doing this? I don't think it was every week. Okay. I don't. I think um, maybe like twice a month would be my best guesstimate. Maybe once a month. And do you know what your specialty was? No, because they weren't telling us at the time at all what we were doing. That's why I said it was like bizarre world. It was world. that like kind of compartmentalized and cryptic. What do they need to tell us anything for? But you seem like a curious kid. I'm sure you were yeah, like, what are they, we doing? Well, they, they, they told us many times <laughs> that what we were doing was we were, we were, <laughs> we were working with toy companies to find out um, what the next new toys to be made for kids that like 
that's what we're getting at. It was such a racket. It was really, it was really a joke. So like there were times where we would show up to the library and under that spiel and they would like take like a, a shoebox and dump it on the table of toys and they would like be like, play with the toys so that we can assess, you know, what the next cool. And it's, I swear to God, it was like, it seemed like now in hindsight, like like they were just lazy feds, right? <laughs> that they're like, oh, we were supposed to bring toys for the toy covers. Quick, stop at some, uh, stop at that garage <laughs> sale and pick up a box of toys. Because it was like they were putting down like a box of like old junk from like the 1940s or something. Like some old war, like, you know, it was just like, what, this is a joke. Like, it was like, it, again, it made no sense because Weird. it was like, what do you mean you want me to, you want me to play with these toys so that that guy can stare at me and figure out what the next new G.I. Joe guy is going to be? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Strange. Yeah. And did it take like a whole class period whenever you went to do it? Yes. Was it a whole day or just like the class? No, it was, um, I would say it was class periods, maybe, maybe two. Were other kids jealous? Like, if I was in school and one kid yes. was going to play with toys for we two were, hours. We were, yes. And I believe that was um, a tool. I've seen, so I believe that this is how compartmentalization works on many levels, is it's an ego stroke. So as children, we were being pulled out of class, and we were being um, put on a pedestal in front of the other children. We were being called like the smart kids as the other kids had to stay in the classroom. We were having our egos padded big Weird. time. So like when we left the classroom, we were all like high-fiving each other, like running to the library. And like, come on, we're the smart kids. Like we really were getting ego stroked hard and it was working. Wow. Like we really thought we were the shit. And you think it's on purpose, like on some yes. Stanford prison absolutely. experiment yes, type absolutely. shit. Yes, like, absolutely. You guys are the guards, like, don't let these other kids fuck with you, and you're yeah. better than them. Yeah, absolutely. They were pumping us up hardcore. Weird. Mm -hmm. That's so wild. Mm -hmm. And then, so you're doing this maybe, you know, a couple times a school year, a month, every month or so, a mm -hmm. couple hours a day doing it. Do you remember actively remote viewing? Like, if you, if you drew a squiggle on a piece of paper and were like, hey, what do you see here? I would kind of just like into it, kind of what I saw. Uh -huh. When you as a kid were remote viewing, uh -huh. were you actually seeing something in your mind's eye or were no. you kind of just in I, fantasy I land as a kid saying something? I think of it as a knowing. It's the answer is just present. So like if they ask you like, did you see trees or a lake that – the answer is just there. I don't actually have to like physically see the mountains. I don't have to physically see the lake. So the viewing part for me is less an appropriate term. I would prefer knowing hmm. is more comfortable for me to just say I'm remote knowing. I know the answer. You ask me the question, I know the answer. And they say, how do you know it? Because that's the answer. Interesting. I know. Huh. And that in a way to me, like that was my job at that time. Hmm. They needed me to know something and I knew it. Interesting. Which was um, extremely difficult in a lot of the rest of my angles of school because I did get comfortable with that exchange in the library because of the ego stroking, right? So it did become problematic in other aspects of school where they were like, you know, we want you to show the work. We want you to do this. And I started getting mad because I, I knew the answer. I knew it was right. I didn't have to show any work. So I think there were times where I was remote viewing practically for other things and I was getting the knowing but the teachers would be like you have to be able to show the work you can't just know that and I'd be like I don't know what to tell you 
I didn't have, they'd be like, how did you get that answer? I'm like, because I know it. And they were like, but you, you didn't do any of the work. No, I don't have to do the work. Like a history class? Like which president like did math. this? Really? Like math, like whole calculations. Like sometimes they're just, I don't know what to tell you. Like the, you put the question there and I look and I know the answer. I didn't like need to do the work. Right. In the same way with the remote viewing experiment. Right. You didn't so, need to explain why it was mountains. It just right. was mountains. It was mountains. You asked me the question at this, is it mountains or a lake? It's mountains. You asked and I know the answer. But it's not visual. Like if I asked you it's, like- No, it's not. It was not right. visual for me, but I don't want to, I don't want to speak for everybody else. Sure, sure, some, sure. some people, it absolutely is a visual thing. There's all kinds of different sensations that I've heard people apply to the process of them getting their knowing. Mm. So if I were to say like, you know, and you don't have to do it, but like, mm -hmm. oh, what color is the building that I live in? Right. You wouldn't like see my building nope. and see the door and nope. see like, oh, that's the color. Right. You would, I just, would have just have a feeling and blurt out a color. I would just know the answer. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very strange. And I'm assuming, mm -hmm. you know, different people that, you know, mm -hmm. claim to have the ability of remote viewing would probably have different interpretations mm -hmm. of how they do it. Yeah. And this, I think a lot of this stuff um, collectively we, we lack a vocabulary for. Because right. we haven't, as a as a group, been discussing it. So I think as individuals, we're all coming at it from a, a vernacular that's most comfortable to us as individuals from our own experiences. And I, this is why I think we need to discuss these things like human beings, because mm -hmm. I believe we all have the capacity to do these things. I believe, uh, for the most part, we're all doing them to some level, but we're not paying attention to it, and we're not getting a common vocabulary for it. Hmm. And so when did this program end for you? I don't know that it has. What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick because it's 2024, and it's time to talk about something important. When you are seriously hurt, your injury could be worth millions. Yes, that's right. The world is a crazy place, and one person's negligence can result in another's settlement. And that's why I got to talk to you about Morgan & Morgan. Morgan & Morgan is America's largest injury law firm. They have over 100 offices nationwide and over 1,000 lawyers. Yes, these are the big boys. You know them, you see them, you see their billboards all over the world. If you ever drove down I-90 from Florida to New York, I'm telling you, you've seen the billboards, all right? You've, have you ever watched a UFC fight? You've seen them right on the banner. I'm telling you, these are the, these are the biggest guys in the game, all right? With over $20 billion recovered for over 500,000 clients, Morgan & Morgan has a proven track record of fighting to get you full and fair compensation. The annoying thing with most attorneys is that in order to submit a claim, you got to call them up, you got to talk to their people, you got to go back and forth on emails, you got to hope that they see it. They might charge you just to even look at their claim. Here's the cool thing with Morgan & Morgan. With eight clicks or less, you can submit a claim and one of their licensed attorneys will take a look at it and get back to you. It's that easy. It's like ordering something off Amazon. It's just a couple clicks. You can submit your claim very easily and cheap. Yeah, how about $0? That's how much it costs to submit a claim with Morgan & Morgan. Extremely easy, no fee required. So if you are ever injured, you can go check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. That's right, unless they win for you, unless they fight and get you compensation, you're not paying a single dollar. That's a pretty good deal. So for more information, go to forthepeople.com slash Gagnon. That's correct. F-O-R thepeople.com slash Gagnon or dial pound law. That's pound 529 from your cell phone. That's for the people. F-O-R thepeople.com slash Gagnon or dial pound law pound 529 from your cell phone. This is a paid advertisement. Now let's get back to the show after the short disclaimer. With everything that's been going on in my life up until this point, I 
I can't honestly say that I have any reason to believe that they've ever let go of me. Okay, this is interesting. So by the time you're in like sixth, seventh grade, you're mm -hmm. no longer going in for sessions with Correct. researchers doing the actual I would process. I would agree with, yeah, from seventh, I would say sixth, seventh grade, I think the library visits dissipated. Did they ever tell you like, hey, Eric, thanks so much for everything? Nope. You just didn't get pulled out of class anymore. Yeah, they probably just told us it was over or something and, and like that. And by the time you're seventh grade, like you're probably 12, 13-ish, mm -hmm. like you're not like a little kid. You have right. like a little bit more agency right. and autonomy. Are, mm -hmm. are you at that point talking to other kids in the program? Like, you know, these toys that we keep playing with that we've been playing with for a couple of years, like. I think we did discuss stuff like that regularly, like that we thought that was ridiculous. Really? Yeah. And what was the conclusion amongst like your classmates that were also in the program? Mostly that at least we got out of class. Wow. That was pretty much the general concept was we got to get out of class so that we felt, again, special in mm -hmm. that way. Um, one of the things that I do recall as being extremely odd was they gave us eye drops upon entering the library. And this is a big one for me because through my research, I, I wholly believe that it was some sort of um, experimental LSD that this was found that they were doing experiments in other directions in remote viewing and such in MKUltra to see if there was a way to expedite getting into certain paradigms. So they would bring us into the library and they had, um, and this is just how I recall it. Sure. They had a very cute girl at the table which I think was supposed to, you know, bring the barriers down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, oh, wow, this really cute girl. And, you know, wow, this is great to come into the library. You know, I was, and the, they were, they were young too. So it was like, um, for someone in a professional career, I mean, these girls were maybe in their late teens, early twenties, it seemed like, but they were there to attend to us. And um, we would get into the library, sit down, and we had Catholic school uniforms. So, I mean, already standing orders were, you know, you don't mess up your uniform. That's a big problem. So we would sit in the chair, put our heads back. The attendant girl would go to put the drops in. She would have a uh, tissue that she would put by the corner of your eye, and she would tell you, make sure you stay still so you don't get this and stain your uniform. And you would seize up because, like, that was smart. You know, if she's going to say, you know, you don't want to stain your uniform, you really didn't. So they would administer some eye drops which I think had to do with some of the machinery that they would make us use. And I realized that upon departing the library, I would try to, there was like a little debrief time at the end. And I would try to expedite the debrief because I realized that if I get out early enough, there's some time in between that I don't have to get back to class. We had these large south facing windows and there was a side effect with the eye drops that I thought was really cool, which was that it was like having yellow sunglasses on. So when I would exit the library and get into the front lobby, all of the light coming, everything was just, it was yellow. It was like, and I just thought it was cool. You know, as a kid, I didn't, I had no idea what they were doing. Um, but again, I just assumed it must be okay. It's happening in school. Of course, my parents must know. This and is... it can't be bad. I mean, it's just cool yellow tint in my eyes, you know. But I've, like I said, I've spoken to my father. He had no idea what was going on in the library. He gave no authorization for anybody to be putting eye drops in his kid's eyes. 
Yeah. Like, you know? That seems like the part, you know, before, because you had mentioned that, like, there's a bit of, like, an insidiousness about mm-hmm. doing this with children. And obviously, right. working with children without any type of parental mm-hmm. permission is obviously wrong. Correct. But if they're just making you look at some, you know, squiggles on a piece of paper, it doesn't seem that egregious to me. Understood. But yes. now, as soon as they're putting drops in your eyes, Correct. even if it's just a regular eye drop, even that's if it is, it's still like... It's like, why are you fucking my kid's eyes? Like, right. what are you talking about? Like, yes. And then if you were under the impression that it's not just, you know, saline or whatever is in an eye drop. It, it had a, a side effect unlike any saline I've ever used before. Bizarre. Yeah. And what leads you to believe that it could be experimental LSD? Just from research that I've come across in other programs where they were looking into these things. I forget the actual title of the product, but there was a name for a particular LSD that they manufactured that was uh, fast acting, but low yield. So it would wear off fast as well. So it'd come on quickly, be there for a bit, but then fade out fast as well. Was there a psychedelic effect beyond just like the visual yellowing that you saw? Not to my recollection, no, actually. Uh, the yellowing was noticeable, but I think outside of that, I don't think I was having any, you know, LSD type trippy thing. I think it just had more to do with, um, I guess for lack of a better term, but you know, people say like opening your third eye, that type of stuff, just giving you a little bit, uh, better clarity with whatever this vision skill was, um, that allowed you to know. I think they were looking to try to enhance that to get you into that field quicker or deeper or something to that effect. So there's no tangible effect while you were doing the remote viewing that was like, oh, I'm on drugs. No, I don't think so. Gotcha. I I don't think I ever thought that at the time. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So strange. I Mm -hmm. mean, if they're making you test toys, why are they putting eye drops in your head? This is so weird. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned before that you're using some machinery. Yes. What is that? Uh, There is an item that, to the best of my knowledge, was called a tachistoscope. And it was this device that you would look into. They would put these headphones on us, and then you would, you know, lean into this thing, and it was like it it had depth to it. I think of it almost like a giant viewfinder. It was kind of like antiquated looking. But you would look into this thing, and they would play videos. I mean, which now that I think about it sounds funny because it's the early 80s. So it's, it was technologically ahead of the curve. But you would look in this thing, there'd be pictures, images, videos, but then there'd also, <coughs> excuse me, there'd be um, like a question. So they'd show you some stuff, there'd be a question, and then a yellow, like four-way, almost like a large plus sign would show up to break the black screen into a grid of four, and there'd be four answers. <coughs> it makes me wonder if the yellow tinge, because the the... The lettering in the image on the screen looked yellowish. So part of me wonders if it was actually white and it was just the eyedrop making it yellow at that point. Sure. I'm not sure. Um, but the thing that kind of freaked me out that I focused on a lot at the time, which is a strong recollection for me, was I remember that when that grid popped up and the four answers were there, you just simply looked at one of the four answers and it registered your selection. And I remember being just, I I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I really keyed in on that as a little kid because I, 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 I knew at the time like how advanced that was mm-hmm. and how out of the ordinary that was. And, and I just, I spent so much time th- like 
it was almost like I was dissociated. Like I was doing the test and everything, but it was almost like there was a version of me that was now outside of myself just watching me do this and was just so impressed by this technology. Yeah, because again, Watch, I'm early, do it again, early '80s, like yeah. just to give people a sense, like is the Atari even out? Early yes. 80s? So the Atari ColecoVision, Atari. Yeah. Um, there was no Super Nintendo yet. Okay, so you're playing like very rudimentary video games. Yes. Like computers are pretty Nothing. rare. They don't exist yet. I mean, when you're talking early '80s, like I actually, a few years later, um. You know, I was, you know, working on Apple IIe's. We had a computer lab. I was in a computer course. Um, we were getting DOS training. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's how this predates DOS training. Right. So you had never been on the internet no, at this point. No, no. Right? This was way before the internet was even, you know, a wet dream. Yeah. and you, But you had a TV in your home, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. So, Didn't have cable yet. Oh, wow. So it was all like satellite bunny ears kind of thing? Yeah, like, yeah. And so the idea of looking into this viewfinder and seeing images and videos. And and making a selection by where your eyes look at. I mean, that was Star Trek at that point. Yeah. That was Star Trek level stuff. Yeah, that's pretty strange. Mm -hmm. and can you give an example of like, I, I know this is a long time ago, but like what some of the questions would have been or like what an example? They were, they were relative to what we were watching. It was about whatever we were watching and it would ask you a question about and I think it was like trying to see what you could notice. And I believe that's what the function of a tachistoscope is, is that <clears throat> it puts images in front of you, but then embeds other stuff, almost like hidden subconscious stuff. And what they're doing is figuring out a way to train the brain faster was what the purpose was, the intent, was to try to be able to flash a bunch of images and almost like train you without you knowing you're being trained. Hmm. So I think a lot of it had to do with them trying to get you to learn stuff, and that was checking to see if you were actually absorbing it. Wow. Now, was it video? Was it pictures? Do you remember? It was, I believe, mostly um, pictures flashing. And when I say video, it would just be quick clips, like a, like a, like a couple of seconds. Wow. And then it would go to like the next. It wasn't a long. It was not like watching a YouTube video. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, it was just. Uh, flashes of things. And then a question that they would ask you yes. would be like, you know, what was this character doing in the... Yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah. And then you would look at A, B, C, and D. Yes, you would just... And it wouldn't even say... It was just four four answers, like say four words, and it just had that extended yellow cross in the middle to make it appear as four different sections, and you would just, you would just look at the one that you knew was right. Wow. And you've and then it would know, I guess, that you picked one, and then it would get back to the flashing. Wow. And they did have headphones on, so there were weird noises playing, which now my understanding is that were they're um, binaural beats. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. What, what, what? This is what they do in remote viewing protocols is they have you listen to binaural beats. It takes the two hemispheres of your brain. Basically, what it does is it puts a sound in your head at one frequency, in your ear at one frequency, and then it puts a sound in the other ear in a different frequency and it causes basically the two sides of your brain to be hearing two different things and then there's um, a discrepancy that has to be accommodated for which then causes your two hemispheres to sync better. Wow. Yeah, so again, it goes back into what is consciousness? What are we? What can we do? And they were just 
playing back then. They were trying to figure out what can we do? What don't we know yet about who we are and consciousness? Can you find examples of these binaural beat like oh, audios on YouTube? Absolutely extremely referenceable. And have you ever looked into them and found one that you feel like, oh, this is what I heard? Absolutely. Really? Yep. Wow. Yep. I would love absolutely. for you to send me that. Yeah, I'll, I'll link it in the description. The, um, the actual, bi you can look up the Robert Monroe Institute specific hemi-sync audios and the, they are legit like i straight up was listening to one time and i was flipping out because i was having dead recollection to when i was a kid i was i i knew what was coming as i was listening to it for you know as an adult what i thought was the first time i like i knew what parts were coming i was like holy shit i've, I've this is what we were listening to so, just point out for me, is, is it one of these? Oh, geez. Um, I'm just going to pull this up. And we can speed this up in the edit, so don't feel uh, no constrained on time here. 10 4. And also at a pleasing volume level. Do this now. This type of stuff. Yeah, that background din. Now, obviously, with headphones, it would be... It's actually... I, I don't even... I don't actually know that you can get true... <coughs> excuse me. Hemi-sync out of this. I believe there's very specific systems. Um, That's that separating to, the correct, waveforms. So correct. one is purely one frequency, one is correct. purely the other frequency. I think you need to have a very um, specific system to pull off true uh, binaural beat application. So I don't want to... Prophesize that this is the sure. correct thing. But this was the type of sound. Correct. So now I have listened to these, uh, both the Robert Monroe stuff and then also, um, is it Jose Silva? Silva Ultramind is another program that I, through my research as an adult, delved into to find that I had done this before where I started going through the protocols and knew what was coming because I had done it. It was just I didn't – hadn't dawned on me. It was something I hadn't done since I was a kid. But going through the, the, the speeches and the sounds and stuff, again, it was like I would get to a certain point and be like, I know this. He's about to say such and such. And then he would say it. And I'm like, holy shit. And what were the researchers like that you were with that were sort of accompanying you? I don't think I spent that much time looking around the room more so than paying attention to whoever the attendant was. They were they were doing well with um, occupying our time. Like once we got in there, it was like, you know, all Pretty right, quick. this is the person that you were like, like. I know the room was had at least an attendant for every other kid. And there was um, a couple to a few people kind of walking around the room supervising. But I didn't pay that much attention to them. Right. Older, younger? They were older. Yeah. Yes. The the girls at the table, the handlers, they were, young. were noticeably younger than the people walking around the room. It's so strange. Mm -hmm. I also remember the the nun that ran the library. It was odd. It was very odd. So when we entered the library, it was also very weird because they had all the drapes closed, so it was dark. Hmm. And it was very peculiar. It was the only time I ever saw um, the curtains drawn like that. So it, it stuck out as odd. And then the the nun 
that ran the library, it was weird because like normally, you know, she was in there doing stuff. But when we went in to do this stuff, she was just sat over to one side and she was just sitting like down and she just wasn't doing anything. It was like she got turned off or something. You feel like she had guilt or something associated with it. <sighs> Maybe. I just I didn't think of it that much at the time, but now as an adult, yeah, maybe she had some guilt about what was going on. I just remember it seemed peculiar because it was like, why does she even need to be here? Hmm. You know, if she's just gonna just sit like this doing nothing, you know, what's what's even the point of her being here right now? Do you feel like you carry any trauma from the experience? Oh, now? tons. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I've done um, regressions, I guess you would say, like past life regressions. No, well, not past life. This. That okay. experience, the library. Okay. So I've done regressions um, with folks to try to bring me back to that time and space. And what what is a regression? I don't know the word for it. Is it is it like a therapeutic thing? Is it a like a hypnosis type thing? Is it like a hypnosis type thing? Okay. Would be the best way to put it. Um, a lot of these things, I don't um, I don't know what these people do. I call them energy workers as an Got umbrella it. term. There's a lot of people that do all kinds of things that. I'm not looking to disrespect or discount what they do. Mm -hmm. It's just I understand that I don't understand it. But I'm not going to dismiss it because mm -hmm. I've certainly seen and experienced enough weird stuff of my own that I believe that some people have amazing capacities to do things we don't understand. There are certainly snake oil salesmen out there as well, and we have to be careful. But I've worked with some quality energy workers. I see. Okay. I, I just wanted to distinct if it was colloquially like I was just reflecting on it. No, or if no, it was no, no, no. I was, I was of... working with someone who had a skill set. Metaphysical in some way. Correct. They were doing something. I've, I mean, I've, I've had people walk around in my head where I can straight up like feel it to the point where it was really creepy to myself, but I can't deny the experience, you know, where they're like, I want you to go back and I want you to think about, and then all of a sudden they're like, right there, that, what you were just, that right there. And I'm like, how did they just see, like, Bizarre. there was something going on that I can't explain, but the best way for me to put it was like someone else was walking through my own memory banks. And you're and like pulling files out, so to say. This is going to be obvious, but it's necessary mm -hmm. to ask. You weren't doing any drugs at this time when no. you're doing these regressions. No, like fully, no, no, so no. fully sober. Yeah, fully sober. Just, it just, I, I couldn't begin to explain it. I can just say I experienced it. There's a fistful of people that I've worked with in that capacity that I was very impressed by what they can do. Wow. There's other people that I think are completely full of garbage. Sure. There's a lot of people talking about skill sets that they've never tested. But I think there's a lot of people that can test their work, can prove their work, and it's watertight. And you specifically went to them to try to unpack the trauma from yes. these Stargate experiments that yep. you were a part of. Absolutely. There was um, a lot of child abuse involved. There was stuff going on in that library that wasn't just um, academic. Would you mind speaking to that component? Yeah. There was um, – how do I put it? Uh there were times where we were brought into the library as well where we were told it's like nap time. Yeah, really creepy. Um, and there were like now little bed pads in the dark library and then there were strange adults being brought in. So it, it got really peculiar really fast. There were things in that direction I don't have recollections for that in these regressions, you know, they say, we're going to contact your higher self and ask these things. And in these dialogues, my higher self responded that I don't need to know what happened then. It's not necessary. What? Water under the bridge. Leave it alone. 
And so there would be hours during these sessions that you would just kind of go offline. Yes. And then you would come back well, into at, class. At the, very, at the very least, from this perspective, where I am now, that's how it looks. And that's what you would call uh, dissociating. Right. This is completely natural. This is another thing that we see going on around us a lot right now with adults because it's completely natural. Mother Nature has processes to help traumatized children. Mm. It's called dissociating. Right. Or we'd all be horrible adults if we <laughs> had all of these memories at the right. front end of our Yeah, we've all process. gone through trauma. Right. So this is, this is just Mother Nature doing what Mother Nature does and, and protecting young children when they get traumatized. Now, do you it's feel, appropriate. Do you feel like the abuse, and I, I want to be careful. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, if you don't want to speak about No, 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 it's all right. It's challenging, but th this stuff has to get out there. This is reality. Did, did you personally, to what you can intuit, endure any type of abuse in that regard in those sessions? Yes, uh, in different sessions. So there were other times that I have more recollections of. So we used to get brought out of school for what we would be told was a retreat. As if it was religious. <clears throat> we used to get brought to a facility. Um, I forget if it was considered Roslyn or Searingtown, but if it was uh, the St. Ignatius Loyola Retreat House on Long Island, which has since been knocked down. It was originally built by the Brady family, who was Jesuit-oriented big time. And at the time of its construction, it was the fourth largest residence in the country. Hmm. And this facility was donated to the Jesuits and then used to educate children, so to say. And we used to go there. So imagine, you know, you're going on a, on a field trip for school and you show up to this place where all these other buses are showing up. So we would get out of our buses, you know, our, our – Administrators would have everybody line up, and now you're going to go in and, you know. But I would always get peeled off, and me and a fistful of other kids would get peeled off, and, oh, you're going to go this way. And I did have in a regression, um, one of the folks, she said to me, she goes, well, she goes, well, hold on. She goes, when they when they peeled you off, the, you said they bring you around the back. She goes, but they stopped you there, didn't they? And all of a sudden I had this record, and I'm like, you're right. And it was like one of these moments where – she gathered a memory back right for me, and I was like, "You're right." They, before we went around back, they would they had a tray with you know we used to have the little wax paper bags, almost like goodie bags from a party when we were little, and they gave us snacks first before we went there. She goes, "Those snacks weren't just snacks." I'm like, "Wow, oh, man!" I'm like, and she was helping make the connection, but that part I hadn't had recall of. She filled it in; it was very helpful. But I did have recollection that we would then get brought around to the back end of this place. <clears throat> And again, so it's like an old school Gilded Age mansion, like just freakish opulence and all this stuff. They would bring us up into what was this massive room, and it was like it was T-shaped. And we would enter from the T side, and then this other end was full of adults in folding chairs, and there was like a stage in front of them. And we would get brought into this room, and my... Recollections are short but extremely clear up until a certain point. We would be entering this room. There was children from other Catholic schools there. And the distinction is the different plaids and colors. Like, you know, my school we had, you know, a particular plaid pattern for the girls and we had, you know, light blue shirts. Another school might have a different color plaid and, and light yellow shirts. So definitively different Catholic school kids. 
But I remember walking into that room and the girls had their button-up blouses off. They just had their undershirts on. And we were informed, oh, it's okay. Come on in. It's, it's okay. Don't – it's hot. You guys can take off your shirts too because it's so hot in here. And we want you to be comfortable. And again, it, it felt really wrong and odd at the time, but not much we can do about it. Long story short, we were being brought to perform in front of those people. As horrible as it sounds, and it's not something I can prove, I can just tell you that's what I experienced. What? Was it, I mean, it's obviously sexual. Was it, mm -hmm. it overtly sexual? Absolutely. These performances? Mm-hmm. And how many adults would be in attendance? A crowd. What? It was, it was like, like doing a show. I mean, you're on a stage and there's a crowd of people. And and they would encourage you to do things with other kids? With other kids, other female kids. Sexual? Yeah. Overtly sexual? Yep. And this is part of these MK Ultra programs. This is how you traumatize children and how you get them to dissociate. I call it IDID, Induced Dissociative Identity Disorder. Mother Nature can do it naturally. Or people that are aware of what occurs when you fracture a mind through trauma can induce it to bring it on. I mean, this is... It's nuts. But this is, this is what I'm trying to get out to the world is that for the most part, parents have no idea what's happening to their kids when they discharge them to somebody else's care every day. Mm -hmm. And so, and how old were you when those experiences happened? That, I would say, was probably on the later side. That would have been probably into the seventh and eighth grade years. Really? Yep. Mm -hmm. That's why I said that I don't think I got out of the program. I think what happened was it was more like like <sighs> chapters in a book. Like, well, six chapters was doing it this way, but now you've graduated to this level of trauma. And now we're going to do other things to you. Oh, my gosh. This is wild. And and you never told anyone about it? I mean, in the moment, did it feel wrong to you? I think um, a lot of that, I think I dissociated for a very long time, and it wasn't in my memory banks. That it's just something that I just effectively pushed away. And what about these other kids? I mean, there was dozens of other kids involved, right? I have had other former classmates just simply reach out to me and say, keep doing what you're doing. And have you ever tried to speak with them about, like, taking this to police or? No. Why? Because you can't prove anything. I mean, if, if all these other kids can corroborate it, right? Oh, like, none of these kids want to talk. Really? That's why I said they just simply say, keep doing what you're doing. They don't say, I'm going to help you. Because they're afraid? Do you feel like... I haven't discussed it with them. I mean, it's not my position to really out anybody else in that capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty heavy. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, again, like I was saying before, we, the parents of this planet... We need to pay a lot more attention to what's happening to our children. Yeah. Because this happened, you know, right under the noses of, of my parents and other people's parents. You know, people, I mean, 
the extent of what can be going wrong every day, I don't think people are really considering it. Yeah. I mean, we've seen with obviously innumerable accounts of, you mm -hmm. know, the Catholic Church in Boston. Totally. With abuse. Yeah, and across the board. And that's the, I mean, and that's the stuff. Island and, yeah, and that's the stuff that makes it to the surface. Yeah. So what's the stuff that we haven't even heard about? I mean, this just seems you so... Know, it's like, you know, somebody breaks into a house and the cops catch him. What are the odds that that's the first time the guy broke into a house? Right, this is the time he got caught. Yeah, exactly. So even these times that we see that we've get, gotten caught, you know, people get caught red-handed doing these things, I suspect and suggest to folks that that's a drop in the bucket to what's really going on. And why is the trauma component essential for remote viewing? Because the... I believe the dissociating part is a big player in the ability to do these things so that they're actually promoting the dissociation to make you a better remote viewer. Mm -hmm. That you can, um, again, separate yourself from those biases so that if you can dissociate, you can be a different perspective. So it's almost like a clean slate. In, in a way, it's almost like you could make a remote viewing team out of one person. Because you have all these different dissociative right. identities. You literally give them like a split personality type Literally, experience. yes. I mean, There's is... a guy named Stuart Swerdlow that wrote a book called um, 13 Cubed. And he discusses the fragmenting of the mind through these trauma-inducing programs. And basically what he was getting at was that the – let's just imagine almost like you have your original mind is a cube. But by fracturing it, you break it into 13 by 13 by 13 other littler cubes. So now those are all different compartments that you can basically have a different identity in each one. They're all technically connected as part of the original. But now through fragmenting it, you get the ability to basically it's like having different doors in the same house. And you can have different information in each room behind each door. Wow. I mean, it's evil. Yeah, and these 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 programs have been shown to be doing these things with adults, but they just don't ever claim that they did it with kids. Now, you can actually find the Stargate consent form for people to be inducted into the Stargate program, and like all other, you know, legal contracts, it's very well written in its word selection and in as so far as, you know, you can use this type of person in the program. You absolutely cannot use this type of person in the program. But when you read the legalese of it, there's nothing in there that states with any specificity that you can't work on children. According to, like, depending on how you want to read it, if one was to say, well, does this allow for children to be in the program? A lawyer could look at it and would say, it doesn't say we can't. Yeah. According to how it's written. If the kid fits the other parameters and age isn't listed as a restriction, well, then by definition of this document, we're allowed to work on kids. I mean, this is blowing my mind. And so I, I, I guess I can roll with you on like the trauma part helping for remote viewing because it helps kind of compartmentalize the brain. Mm -hmm. And helps you disassociate. Mm -hmm. With that, you can remote view stronger and be able to put together different elements yep. of a view because you have different sort of perspectives, uh, perspectives happening mm -hmm. all simultaneously. Yep. But why is there a crowd at these ritual sexual performances? 
no idea. The only thing I could imagine is it could be as sinister as price per head. I don't know. What's what's the what what is a uh, average pedophile charge someone for doing these things? Uh, I spoke with uh, Clayton Morris on Redacted about my experiences and such, and he seems to be more versed in the understanding of the black market industry around children. Because I said to him, I said, you know, a lot of folks just they don't understand the motive. I said to him, I said, what is what's the street value of a kid? You know, nobody wants to discuss that. Yeah. What, you know, we know a bag of weed is worth X amount of dollars on the street. What's the value of a 12-year-old kid? And if we learn that it's billions of dollars, well, now we understand the motive of a lot of people. If it turns out that the price per head for an event like that is a million dollars a participant, who, who knows what the money is? You think standard economics of supply and demand, if the demand is there and someone's willing to pay, you think there's not going to be a supplier? I mean, this is nefarious, but it's historically present. And did you recognize any of these people? Have no. Ever... It's in, in, in my recollections, it's almost like, <coughs> excuse me, when I get to that point, it's like almost like a hard wall or curtain comes down, almost like. Almost immediately, like when I try to recollect and turn in that direction, I almost just can't see that way. Were there ever adults involved in these sexual performances with you, or was it not to my recollection? No, I believe it was child on child in front of adults. I mean, this is so disgusting. Absolutely. Was it? I don't really want to get into the details. Understood. It was not good. Full, and it was inappropriate. I mean, there's nothing. on sexual experiences. It wasn't like pantomimed. Again, my brain starts cutting off at that point. This is where my protection comes in, basically, because it's like I just I just don't go there. It's and, like I have a knowing. Yeah. Like because it was you know it's 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 progressing. There's nothing stopping that train at that point, um, except literally like now my mind is just like. And no. what, what was the name of the school? The facility was called the Saint Ignatius Loyola Retreat House. And no longer exists. No longer exists. It got knocked down. And what is there now? Like, who owns it? Do you know? Rich people property. Are you familiar with the... I can show it to you on a map. And it's probably like a couple hours from here? Yeah. Bizarre. Yep. And why did it get knocked down? Do you know? Did you research it? Have you looked into it? A Chinese company purchased it and knocked it down. Um, It was just near... um, I believe an evergreen facility, which is, you know, of Hillary Clinton fame. Uh, The, it was, I can't remember who it was, but it was the Brady family's property originally. Um, There, there's, there's more affluent homes to the northwest of the property. It's, uh, it's a big money place. The Gold Coast of Long Island, the, the North Shore of Long Island is referred to as the Gold Coast. And a lot of people just really have no idea the wealth and opulence that's over there. Um, the remainder of the, I mean, the Gilded Age is worthy of its own study and the, the, how much money these folks had. And this would have been the Gilded Age mansions and stuff on Long Island were kind of like the predecessor of what was going on. With these kids, there's um, that house, the the retreat house had uh, 
scroll work, woodwork done all around the exterior that was, you know, Aesop's fables and things like that. It was, you know, meant to be a a retreat house for underprivileged boys. And it was, you know, all of these things that are just red flags. And, you know, you add the Jesuits to the mix. There was a, a pope that became pope after visiting with the Bradys over there. So it's... Do you remember which pope? I can't remember off the top of my head, but it is referenceable. This is... I mean, I can't imagine you were the last kid to have no. been abused in no. this way. This is this is a lot of why I speak because I think these programs are still rampant in society. I want them to stop, absolutely. And is there any way you can take organized legal action against these schools? Not to mind. I, I, I don't want to say that we can't, but if you're asking me, I don't know what to do about this problem other than try to get uh, shine a light on it. Have you reached out to any old professors, teachers? Have you looked into the school? I mean, this is... Like large-scale no. criminal behavior. No, I, I I don't know what to do with this other than what I am doing. I've, and if anybody has, you know, more info for what should be done and how to do it and can fund it, I mean, everybody can say, get a lawyer. Cool. They got a free one that wants to win the case for me. Right. You know, it's, it's all fun and games until it comes down to brass tacks when people say, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? This is how the system works. There's really not much you can do. Mm-hmm. They can, they can, put it this way. What can we do while they're abusing all of our kids every day is something we should talk about. Yeah. Did you, and again, we can edit this part if you don't want to talk about it. I know you have kids. Mm-hmm. How were you concerned with them? I'm wholly concerned experiencing this same thing. I mean, absolutely, because I, older, but. I don't. I don't see how the system has changed. So I'm completely concerned about them being negatively impacted. Because again, I believe this goes to bloodlines type thing that my family is somehow involved in these programs. I don't have all of the answers, but I have a lot of concerns. Do you feel like anyone in your prior ancestry was involved in anything like this? Oh, absolutely. In what way? Uh, I would say that it has to go back to that whole um, family lines of trauma, that things, things perpetuate through... And carry on. I believe that my grandfather was somehow involved with the Nazi side of World War II, even though he was an American U.S. Navy sailor. He had an affinity for the Nazi side of things. He was from Brooklyn. Really? Yeah, so he went over here to a a St. Francis school, and he was actually what— we call Third Order of St. Francis, okay, which is a very interesting Brooklyn organization. I'm not familiar. To put it simply, this organization out of Brooklyn, which so the Third Order of St. Francis, there's the First and the Second Order, which is priests and nuns. The okay. Third Order is like a secret priesthood that's allowed to be married with children. Okay. So he was Third Order of St. Francis, And apparently the Third Order of St. Francis out of Brooklyn operates under the direct leadership of the Pope with no one in between. Hmm. And they're charged with um, re-educating the boys of Long Island is part of their mission statement. Okay. So it just, again, adds to the peculiarity, I believe— 
as much as my father doesn't want to hear it because he really loved his dad and got along with his dad really well and doesn't like to think this way. And we have discussions about this. He gets frustrated, but he also admits like, I can't really say you're wrong as much as I want you to be. I think my grandfather was into things with Operation Paperclip and the Nazi stuff and what was going on post-World War II. And I think he got me in some program. There was a lot of stuff that happened on Long Island post-World War II that is crazy. I don't know if you've ever heard of Camp Siegfried Mm-mm. out on the east end of Long Island. Um, was an American Bund facility. The American Bund was effectively the Nazi party in the United States. So there were Americans that were very pro-Nazi. They called themselves the Bund. And my grandfather was a participant in the Bund. Whoa. And so was he German? Yeah. Oh, he was? Yes. Was he raised in Germany? Negative. Okay, he was raised in America. Yep. But had sympathies for that party. Absolutely. And do you have any other like supporting evidence, like as far as like journals or things like that, that would declare like some sort of like alliance? His, his his yearbook from said Brooklyn Religious Academy, in his yearbook, you know, like how they have like you know, uh, Mark is most likely to, probably yeah. will, may someday. So for my grandfather, it said something like. Uh, Joe was a great guy, except he had too much affinity for the Germans in the war front. It said something to that effect, like being nice. And then it said, uh, Joe will most likely grow up to be a spy, probably will be shot. What the hell? Right. That's so, a crazy scene or <laughs> Most right? likely to be a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. Mean, what the yeah. Hell? So it was, it was very peculiar, but this is, you know, this is documented stuff. Um, another peculiarity in that direction, my grandfather's the only veteran. I mean, you're from, there's a lot of veterans around New York, mm. especially in Levittown. Yeah. There was like was literally just that. a conclave of World War II veterans. Never in my life have I met or heard of, or heard of anyone else ever hearing of an American veteran serving in South America during World War II. My grandfather is the only one I've ever known, but he was a bosun's man in the Navy and apparently was serving on the Amazon River in Brazil during World War II. What? Right? Why? So... According to my father's recollection of what my grandfather told him was that he would swim out to float planes on the Amazon and swim out with a fuel line and fill their massive fuel tanks. And that's what he did in the Navy. Oh, and my dad said that, my grandfather said that, and they were also fighting the Germans in the jungles because the Germans were there for the rubber. Right, which I've heard versions of like Germans but, being in South America, Argentina. Absolutely, like but what we've now learned historically was that the the Bush family was trading with the Germans in South America. They needed our fuel and we needed their rubber. Interesting. So I believe my grandfather was with a faction of folks that were cool with transferring fuel to the Nazis. But it was on diplomatic grounds. <coughs> I think it was shadier than that. 
I think it was under the, I think all of the, all of those activities that were going on during World War II were super nefarious and super secret. I mean, I think it was Amschel Bush was convicted of war crimes after World War II because of these actions. Of uh, sort of uh, helping the Nazis. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And yet we were using sympathetic Navy sailors to do the fuel transfers. Wow. And so did he, was your grandfather the one that moved to Levittown after World War II? He was in Hicksville properly, so which is just a stone's throw Got away it. from Levittown. So your opinion is that your grandfather's a Nazi, mm-hmm. more or less, American-born, you know. Yeah, Bund. I mean, it's, doesn't, it's about as American Nazi as you can get technically. Did he ever, did, I mean, do you spend time with your grandfather? I did up? as a kid growing up, absolutely. Did he ever harbor sentiment or say things that would make you be like, because I mean, Levittown yeah. is, has no shortage of Jewish people. Obviously, right. It's a, very, it's, a, it's a melting pot community for sure. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of Jewish, like large Jewish communities in Long Island. Absolutely. I mean, was he ever, did he speak in a certain way? Did, was, I think I think I was exposed to a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of pro-Nazi culture as a child. What the hell? That it was, um, it was just the way of the world back then. It didn't seem odd as a kid right, yeah. so much, but growing up, you know, I can look back and be like, that wasn't right. So as an, as an example, this is one of the conversations that I had with my father. Um, as a child, I, so you've heard of the Nuremberg trials. Sure. And that there were a lot of folks through Operation Paperclip that went to those trials and then were just found innocent. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was a kid, I used to go up to the cat schools regularly. My mm-hmm. family had property up there and we knew a bunch of folks. One of the folks that we knew was a former SS officer who was found innocent at Nuremberg. And I used to go to this particular home, shoot pool with this guy and another character um, named Nick. And this is high strangeness. One was a former SS officer from the concentration camp. No way. The Russian, Nick, was a former prisoner from that camp that the SS officer had as an assistant, like pulled from the ranks of prisoners to be his assistant. And now here they were as friends post-World War II. It was very peculiar. And I'm just going to tell you how it happened. They were literally playing bumper pool one day. And I'm just a kid sitting there watching these two... Old guys play bumper pool. Yeah. And um, the former Russian prisoner, Nick, was whooping the SS officer's ass at the <laughs> bumper pool. Payback. <laughs> so straight up, he smokes him on the pool table. And the the Nazi, he's like, I should have, I knew I should have killed you when I had the chance. No. This is real? This is what happened. This is like what I experienced as a kid. And so I remembered this story. I was talking to my dad about, you know, all the issues and things that I'm connecting the dots on. And we wound up having this story time conversation once. And I said, you know, dad, I said, this is a perfect example of what's going on. I said, you know, there's a lot of things that we could say and throw stones and, you know, wish things were different. I said, but here's an easy one. I said, you know. A lot of people would very rapidly understand that it's probably not a good idea to let your kid hang around with former SS officers. Did your dad know he was SS? Yeah. But your dad didn't think that his dad was also a He still to this day has trouble wrapping his brain around his dad wasn't like the nicest guy in the world. Even though your grandfather was hanging out with legit SS guys. Yeah. 
I can barely get my dad to admit now that that probably wasn't a good idea, but he does. Like he at least had to yield and be like, you know what, dad, it's, it's, here's an easy bridge to cross. You shouldn't let your kid hang out with former SS officers. And he's like, I'll give you that. Wow. Like, you know, just more or less, I'll give you that. Like, I can't argue that one. I mean, your dad was born probably what, 50s, 60s? Yeah. 50s, early 50s. 50s, okay. And so I'm sure he had a pretty, like, strong did, like, hatred for, you know, Nazis growing up. Or do you think his, I don't think his that, dad was a little I, bit— Yeah, I think that was it was so tolerated. Because of your grandfather. Yeah, I think that the, the, the bad taste that most people have in their mouth for this topic I don't think was a flavor that we had growing up so much. That that was something that I had to realize was part of what was wrong with the environment that I was in. Crazy. But again, as a as a kid, yeah, as you a know, kid, what you, don't do you, you don't, know better. Yeah, it's just this is what everybody's doing around you. Right. I mean, I, this is uh, unfortunate. I have to ask, mm -hmm. but now as an adult, you mm -hmm. don't sympathize with any Nazi. No, not at all. I'm, I'm completely against that whole concept of fascism. All of the freedoms that that impinges upon drives me nuts. Right. I feel like. Um, our country is negatively impacted by those ideas to date, and I want to do everything that I can to oppose that type of mentality. I'm a staunch supporter of freedom, real freedom, um, across the board for everybody. And that's, again, the stuff that motivates me to do what I'm doing is that I see our freedoms being impinged upon in a way that most people aren't paying attention to. Got it. And it would be very much through what I would say are the continued efforts of Nazis, fascists, progressives from back in the day where just um, – really bamboozled contemporarily to the fact that things that are going on today are the end result of efforts that were started way back then. Got it. Okay. They were operating on a very long time. It's a long con, basically. Mm -hmm. It's quite simple that, you know, um, the average mortgage payer, the average citizen in the U.S. nowadays is so preoccupied with the day-to-day -day stuff and got to get my mortgage paid by the end of the month. You yeah. know, that's about as far-sighted as most folks are. They don't have a 50-year plan. Yeah. But, you know, billionaires and stuff, when you have your mortgage covered and everything's all AJ squared away, they start to think a little bit further out. They're more concerned about what's going to happen to their grandchildren and they can prepare for things like that. Sure. We don't... Um, we don't have most people functioning that way. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is wild. So you, you genuinely believe that your grandfather was sympathetic to Nazis, had connections with the Bund, and as a result of his connections with that and <coughs> Operation Paperclip post-World War II, that he might have kind of referred you yes. into these programs? Mm -hmm. I do. Do you think your dad was ever referred into these programs? I do. I think I think that there's something to be said for certain similarities between he and I, certain aspects of his upbringing that I see the similarities, but I don't know, nor can I get much access to those memories of his. So it's very it's very challenging trying to get to the root of all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, my father is, for the most part, agreeable at this stage of the game that when we discuss things, you know, he's not happy that things went the way that they did. So old school military, like basically it's like in his head, he's like, you know what? It happened on my watch, so I'm responsible. So like, let's talk about it. You know, it's, right. it's 
obligatory yeah. that he's involved now. So he's not happy about it. It leaves a bad taste in his mouth. A lot of the conversations where I bring them to, um, but as he's admitted before, he's like, there's nothing I can say at all that would prove you wrong. He goes like, you know, I, I would like you to be wrong. I, I don't want to agree with you. It doesn't make him feel nice, but there's a lot of accusations that I throw down where it's like, what are you going to do with that? Mm, like, like what? Like that, that my grandfather probably got me in the program. What about for your dad though? Like, was he, did he ever say like, Oh, cause like MK ultra and things like that were, you know, in full swing. Mm -hmm on record up until like the 70s. So like your dad was in like that perfect window for it. Yeah. Like you And he's former military as well. Right. So mm -hmm. do you think he was ever involved in those types of things? Have you asked him like, "Oh, did you ever do this?" and he was like, "Yeah, kind of." I did I did ask him. He doesn't seem to have as much dead recollection of peculiar programs, but mm -hmm. I I've only just recently got the gears rolling in his head about that. There is a I guess a loose peculiar affiliation to the Antarctic program that he and I came across in a story from his military career um, where he crossed paths with uh, VXE-6, which is an Antarctic flight squadron. And, you know, he basically walked in one day. He was stationed in Key West and was, you know, sweating his butt off out on the tarmac. It's, you know, Key West. And he saw this hangar that said, you know, United States Antarctic program. So as the wise ass, he went in and basically was like, yeah, I want to join the Antarctic program because it's so freaking hot here. And he proceeded to have this profoundly peculiar recollection of what occurred from the time that he walked in that building. And next thing you know, he said his chain of command was involved and all. This. And next thing you know, he, he's, he's being discharged from that. And they said, you know, you just go take a nap, which makes no sense because it's not like the military is really kind hearted. And it's like, oh, you're having a rough day. It's too hot. Why don't you go rest? Mm -hmm. You know, so I was teasing him about that. I said, ah, oh, I said, now you know how I got in the Antarctic program. I said, you technically volunteered way back when bizarre it was bizarre when he yeah it was just one of these things where he was like oh my god he's like i watched one of your videos and you said this thing and it made me remember that one time i walked in and volunteered for the united states antarctic program and i'm going what crazy yeah what, like, a, what are the odds yeah what a weird coincidence mm -hmm. and so i guess this is kind of what you're talking about when you say you don't know if you've ever been discharged from the program right so I mean, the the ritual abuse element is, like, so crazy. I, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I saw you getting emotional during mm -hmm. that part, and so I don't really want to revisit, but, I mean, it's, like, pretty insidious that your grandfather would kind of put you up for this. And not, Yeah, that part if that part's disturbing to me, but it also, from my research, it's, um, that's the folks that know. Like, there's a certain part of our society that's aware of these things and is cool with it. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not trying to justify it. I'm presenting their perspective. There's a lot of folks that see it as beneficial. Let's see what is beneficial. Fracturing a child's mind. What? Why? Right. I, right. I said, I don't, like, I, I don't have their rationale. I'm just observing. Okay. That they can rationalize somehow that it's good. You're doing something good for the child. You're expanding their consciousness. They're under the belief that that's positive. 
Yeah, I mean, that's uh, it, it would be like a means. Yeah, yeah. It, and and this is how evil people think. They look at the ends and not the means. Mm-hmm. And there are people that will just simply look at the ends and go, "Well, the end product is good, so we're not going to judge how you got there." Yeah, and that mentality exists. And then not to you know cast doubt on your memories, but mm-hmm. how can you be certain just individually that these regressions that you've done that have kind of filled in the gaps of your experience mm-hmm. are true memories that you had that you're accessing versus a new thought that's being implanted in your mind? For me personally, I would say it is on par with knowing. Mm-hmm. There are things that occur that I can connect to with like a knowing, like in a regression where there's all of a sudden like you have this exchange, this dialogue with someone and it's like the connection is made and now you know. It doesn't mean that I do that with everything. I mean, there are times that I work with these folks and we're trying to cross bridges and there are plenty of times where things don't connect and you don't get the knowing. But that comes from, I guess, applied discernment. I mean, I... All I can say is that for me personally, I know I'm not reaching onto every single thing that I could connect to because then I'd be a lunatic thinking everything in the world has happened. Um, <laughs> the things I'm connecting to aren't desirable. <laughs> who would? <laughs> I mean, who wants to go back and be like, oh, I absolutely remembered I was abused as a kid. Right. I mean, yeah, it doesn't do much for me. Um, so knowing these things is more of a burden. Mm. Um, but once I know it, I can't disconnect from it anymore. These are things that I was previously disconnected from, (coughs) excuse me, that, um, I'm coming back to. Mm -hmm. So it's just like any other memory you would have. I would, you know, I could just as easily be like, well, how do you know your memories are your memories? Mm -hmm. You know. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just. It's wild. It's truly, I mean, I, I don't doubt that these mm-hmm. types of like child abuse things can happen. I mm-hmm. just, it, it, hearing them in such detail and such organization mm-hmm. is like so repulsive that I'm like, oh, I, it's, it's, I wish there was something that could be done. Absolutely. In retrospect. It's completely disgusting. Again, what happens to children in mass? I, I believe I'm not special in as so far as that this happened to me. I'm special that I'm connecting the dots. Right. I think a lot of children are being processed in extremely, unfortunately, similar circumstances. And this is why we need to pay attention to this stuff. Again, it's very natural for children to dissociate when traumatized. The people that will do the dissociating know this. They Mm -hmm. take advantage of this. They know that for the most part, we can do whatever we want to these kids because they're never going to remember and they're never going to say anything. Yeah. This is already a known thing. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's a part of me that wants you to be lying. I understood. Or wants the memories that you have to be delusional. Yep. Because it's so horrific. It is so horrific. And this is this is... You're 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 right at the root of the problem. Yeah. This is human nature and our own character flaws as individuals and a society, right? It's way more comfortable to think that I'm wrong. Yeah. Because if you think I'm right, you got to do something about it. Yeah. I mean, and this is human yeah. nature, and this is this is human nature because 
ignorance is bliss because when we don't believe something, we don't have to do anything about it. Exactly. And we'll delude ourselves to avoid the responsibility of the action required once we know something's the matter. Yeah. So I think a lot of people will find themselves way more comfortable with saying that I'm a lunatic instead of the responsibility of what if he's right? Mm -hmm. what, if all of, what if all of our kids are being abused in mass right under our noses? It, when you say mass, you mean- In mass, at, all, at, all at the scale, kids. Not literally in church. Scale. Okay. So yeah, at scale. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and I I'm curious just from my own personal experiences because I was raised very Catholic. Mm -hmm. You know, I I actually really enjoyed my experience growing mm -hmm. up in, within the Catholic Church. Do you feel like that there was a component that the Catholic diocese of Levittown was involved at scale with these types of abuse rituals, and that they were complicit? Or was I do. It, I think I think it's. Rampant through the whole system, and it specifically happened because of the organization of the Catholic schools, and like it wouldn't have happened at a public school, for example. There are public school programs as well. Oh, really? Absolutely. I think that uh, in the Catholic school situation, it's just more prevalent because it's privatized and less public oversight and engagement, and people who send their children off to parochial schools, by any definition, are even more thoroughly convinced that they're sending them to a better place. Mm, so, so it's that ego stroke again. Right. There's less scrutiny. Less, there's, correct. There's less, yeah. Yes. They're being told that everything's, you know, of course, <laughs> of course the priest would never hurt your child. He's a man of God. Yeah, of course. This is how, yeah. And the priests, meanwhile, they're preying on the most vulnerable kids. Correct. One of a dad. The, right. You know, parents are busy, latchkey kid, whatever. They, they all know exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. Unbeknownst to the child who is the victim. Right. Do you think they knew your family dynamic, that your parents Absolutely. were both busy, that yes. they were working? Yes. Like if you had, you know, a doting mother that was always there nonstop looking mm -hmm. at everything, they might have been like, all right, this kid's not worth having mm -hmm. in the program. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. Wow. I think they were extremely aware. And as an adult, in hindsight, I would double down on that, that I, I can now hear statements being made that show that that's exactly what was going on. They knew the situation. There were times where, um, you know, I would be involved with guidance counselors or the, the school chaplain and stuff, and I can remember them saying, like, we understand your situation at home. We know your dad works. Like, literally, they were very aware of what was going on in my household. Wow. And then did you put in any safeguards for your own children when they were adolescent to make sure that this similar thing wasn't happening? Didn't send them to Catholic school. Yeah. Intentionally. Really Intentionally did not send my kids to Catholic school. Wow. Yep. I was against that concept. And then anything else where you, did you create like a parenting system where you're like, hey, if something happens, tell me like this is, you know. I think, I think that I had that going on when I was present in my children's life. Yeah. That I was pumping in that direction and always have. Yeah. Um, it's less utilized than I would hope for now contemporarily. Sure. Um, but with that being said, I, I think I was a good parent when I was president for my children. That yeah. I, I, you know, I would have been that president and paid that much attention. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is disturbing and sort of difficult to grasp for me. In totally. General. Yeah. This is, this is, like, is, this is you hear not, about, it's not good news. Yeah, you hear about things like this, but never really like a firsthand account of someone that went through it. Mm -hmm. Un uh, unfortunately, a lot of the information that I am bringing publicly is not good news. But right, this is yeah. more so why it needs to be addressed, because I believe that we, the people, can work together 
for our own growth. But I guess it's like the 12, you know, like it's like Alcoholics Anonymous. Like you have to admit there's a problem for us before you can do something about it. Right. And we have some serious problems that we, the parents of this planet, have not been addressing. Now, on this issue specifically, what should we do? Like what, what can happen? You are the, you know, claiming to be the first hand account of someone that was ritually abused I for a government operation. I mean, this is I think profound. almost across the board, I think parents should get way more involved with their children's day-to-day life and who they discharge their children to. Who are the people that your children are around when you're not around them? Because bad people who want to take advantage of children have been very well organized. If there are bad people that want to access your children, what programs do you think they're going to try to get into? Mm -hmm. Anywhere where there's kids. Mm -hmm. So... It's just, it's already going on. The bad people have already infiltrated all of the child-bearing organizations. They're already there. Mm-hmm. We, the parents, were just not paying attention. Yeah. And yeah. those abusers are simply taking advantage of the nature of things. They're well-informed and the parents are not. The abuser knows I can abuse this kid and send him home traumatized today with no recollection of what just occurred because that's how this works. And the kid comes home, how was your day? Eh." Yeah. And none of the kids told. That just seems so, it's just so unfortunate. Seriously wrap your head around the numbers. How many kids we have in this country? Yeah. How many kids are getting abused? How many kids are reporting it? Yeah. This is a rampant problem that's just not being discussed because kids get abused and don't even know it because mm-hmm. that's the nature of it. Hmm. That whole negative encounter gets packaged up, twisted, shoved into the back of the brain somewhere to be dealt with many years later when it resurfaces naturally because there are processes to these things that we can observe. If people do enough research into this stuff, they'll just find out. And this is where I'm getting at, like looking around society nowadays. I'm just seeing the symptoms in adults contemporarily of them now having to deal with the things that cause them to now be a walking dissociative. Yeah. But no one's paying attention. Mm-hmm. No one's going to admit, well, I am this way because I got abused when I was a kid. But they've yet to make those connections. Hmm. Now, before we move on from this part of your kind mm-hmm. of journey and story, is there any other details from this remote viewing Stargate experience that you were a part of that you think are important that will inform, you know, later parts of your story that we'll get into? I don't know so much about the informing part, but in regards to the Stargate and the remote viewing, um, if I could choose to emphasize something would be for people to know they can all do it. So back to like that whole idea of their five senses, maybe more. Uh, Let's add remote viewing to the list of additional senses that we've been uh, less than educated upon. Yeah, I've heard you specify that in other conversations. Why is that important for people to know? So they can start using the ability. You think it's good for people to be remote viewing? Absolutely. Why? 
it's access to knowledge. It would be like saying like, yeah, you think it's good for people to read books? Mm. You think it's good for people to have access to the internet? Mm-hmm. You think it's good for people to have, it's something that we grow from. Mm. Knowledge. Remote viewing is accessing the truth. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very good thing. And so obviously the way that you were educated in it was wrong. And through the childhood abuse that you experienced was wrong. Yes. But the act itself yep. is not inherently wrong. Correct. I would agree with that. Okay. Yes, the end result was good. The means to get to that was terrible. Is there a way to get to that without yes. the abuse that you yes. endured? Correct. You can. There's a lot of ways to pull it off. Hmm. <coughs> it was just, again, some people had... Um, preferences. Some people weren't opposed to some of the techniques. Right. Some people believe that was the better way. Some people believe it's the quicker way. So whatever their justifications were for tolerating that process, I wouldn't agree with nor support, but it would be like so similar to like firearms, right? A gun isn't inherently bad. It depends on the person using it. So mm-hmm. remote viewing isn't inherently bad. It's just, you know, what are you using it for? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And now do you have, and again, I, I'm not bringing this up as mm-hmm. like a shot at your credibility in this specific mm-hmm. instance, but do you have any like concrete evidence via your website or even just like personally of your involvement with these programs? And obviously I understand you were young, mm-hmm. but with these programs, with any of the abuse that happened, um, even if like it's school records or anything like that? Not to my knowledge. I don't think there's anything that I could produce that would prove what mm-hmm. was going on in the library sure. or or at the Loyola Retreat House. Mm-hmm. Those are just my recollections. Hypothetically, you could get other people and other students to corroborate what happened. Hypothetically, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish, I wish more people would speak up. I really do on so many of the things that I've experienced. There's um, certain topics and certain folks um, that I'm active, you know, some folks from Antarctica, uh, I just ran into a friend of mine uh, from my plumbing career who's been into a lot of the peculiar facilities, households that I've been in, and I'm just trying to connect the dots. But <clears throat> to this date, most of the folks that I connect the dots with are happy to help me connect them, but they won't speak publicly. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of the stuff that I bring forth from the Antarctica program, it's it's more of it's a, a bunch of aggregate information that I've gotten from the crew, and I'm just on point presenting it. I see. Do you still remote view? I still know. You say you still remote know. Correct. Okay. Which I think the term that they use for it is um, claircognizance. Okay. Which is knowing stuff out of nowhere. Is there a... Is is there a practice you have to do, or is it just is it just? A, I have, I'm not. I have, it's innate currently because I'm not practicing anything. So you don't have to like sit there and close your eyes and meditate to then know something. You can just hear information and discern if it is factual or not factual. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that would be probably a good way of putting it. And you use that on a frequent basis. It happens, I guess, would be because I don't think I'm really trying to do it. Mm. ever anymore it just happens hmm. i just i don't know how to put it i just know things sometimes do you know anything about me <laughs> you're having a good hair day yeah, yeah. <laughs> every day baby you know that every day 24 7 you know what i'm saying kid is curly okay i was just wondering mm. if you like remote viewed me before we started 
No, no, yeah, no. I put no effort into those things. It has more to do with, um, I think of it like more like processing and understanding. Okay. There are times where things happen where I would say I just, I know, like, um, I do. I mean, I do maintenance stuff. I know it doesn't sound like a big deal on so many levels, but when you're in remote environments, right? Um, Mother Nature at her harshest conditions, and you know you have a man camp out in the middle of nowhere, whether it's South Pole Station, Antarctica, or, or up in the Arctic Circle in the oil fields. When things go wrong, you just have to get stuff done, mm-hmm. and in those circumstances, would be where I say I experience it the most. Now, would be you know something happens, some catastrophic failure of systems, right? And where other people would be going through a process of diagnosing and be like, we got to figure out what's the problem and blah. And I just say, we got to be more specific. Like, how about we look at such and such? Hmm. And I'm right. It just is what it is. Like, you know, other people have to diagnose to discern, whereas I just know when you need to. Hmm. Strange. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, it's all very, very interesting. So just to move on a little mm-hmm. bit, you go through this program. The program eventually ends with no official ending. Mm-hmm. You go through middle school, high school, any other bizarre things that happen throughout there before you graduate, or it's just a kind of a pretty typical kind of thing, obviously dealing with the trauma of, mm-hmm. of what happened. Um, I think high school was peculiar for me in hindsight in so far as that it was a lot more of a violent environment than mm-hmm. I believe most other children were exposed to. There was a lot of street violence hmm. that I'm now learning was different than what most other kids went through. What was the high school called? Uh, Holy Trinity. Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we were a Catholic school that was on the border of the two other local high schools lines, so to say. There's Hicksville and Levittown, and those two schools were at each other's throats, mm. and um, we just happened to be in between them. And is this the same high school connected to the middle school? No, different it's schools. Different school yep. altogether. So it wasn't like K through 12 or whatever? No, it was, uh, uh, high school was ninth through 12th, and then grammar school was uh, kindergarten through 8th. And remind me the name of the grammar school... That name? was Holy Family. Holy Family, okay. Mm-hmm. And then Holy Trinity is a different high school that you go to. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty violent. The community was. I don't want to say the school. The school technically was no fighting. If you got caught fighting in school, you were expelled immediately. Wow. So there was technically no fist fights in school. But the way home from school. Just, yeah, I'd get my ass handed to me regularly. Was there any part of you, especially reeling with some of the things that you've gone through in your life, that felt like you kind of had a chip on your shoulder, wanted to fight back from powerlessness? Like, were you not instigating, but were you uh, confrontational in any way? I don't think I ever felt, I don't think I ever felt powerless. I, even though I know like there are plenty of circumstances where like, you know, you're not going to win a fight when 12 dudes start with you, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, that's life. Um, but I believe that I've always had built into me like the inability to back up mm. You know, Mm -hmm. I would say I've gotten my ass kicked way more than I've ever kicked an ass. Yeah, yeah. Um, But that just was from, like, not 
ever backing down. Like if one person started with me, I wasn't backing down. If 12 people started with me, I wasn't backing down. And why were people targeting you specifically? I have no idea. I think it was just that level of violence in the community that they were starting with anyone in every direction. Uh, you just happened to be the just guy. Happened, yeah, I just happened to be the guy at the time. And then that's also probably pretty traumatic. You're probably, it gets you a little paranoid. You're kind of looking around. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. I, I think I walk the street with a different level of attention yeah. than most people, yeah. which, um, I mean, for the most part in adulthood has just actually been fantastic. I, I have a wherewithal for what's going on in the street. I, I think I'm very helpful to those around me. There's been a lot of things that have gone wrong around me as an adult, and I'm quick to get involved and help folks out. Hmm. Interesting. And so it's pretty violent growing up through high school, mm -hmm. but you make it through. You mm -hmm. graduate mid kind of grades despite Oh, yeah. I had a 69 overall average for all of high school. Despite being like a pretty intelligent guy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I stole the test, but again, didn't do the work. I, I remember graduating from high school and just being a knucklehead and being like, oh, I graduated with 69, bro. <laughs> like I was, yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Did you ever experiment with drugs in that time? Like oh, for sure. Smoking weed, things smoking like weed, that? Smoking weed, shrooms, acid, yeah. you know, that type of stuff. I thought of it more as like... Um, the hippie drugs. Yeah, Never yeah, did yeah. cocaine in my life. Sure. You know, which I found is a rarity growing up that most people <laughs> seem to have some raging coke addiction at some point in their life. Yeah. Um, but I never touched like what I would call the hard drugs. I was just into like the hippie stuff. Like, you know, right. I want to elevate my mind. weed, alcohol, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And were those things, did they impact you in a unique way because of your prior experience remote viewing? I don't know that if I could... Uh, there's no way for me to say because of, mm -hmm. um, I guess maybe I ha maybe I had a greater appreciation for what they were doing mm -hmm. because I had um, previous exposure. So I think they worked well for me mm -hmm. would be, I guess, how I would look at it. And did you do them with high frequency? No. Just on occasion with friends? Yeah. Gotcha. I think, well, I think weed way back when was way more prevalent. Sure. But as far as the other stuff, I would say it was experimental, few and far between, nowhere nowhere near uh, abuse, sure. that type of stuff. It was, you know. Yeah. And I would say it was positive that I got good stuff out of it. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse hmm. me. Yeah. What were some of the, like, the takeaways that you got? Was there anything tangible or was it just like... Oh, I'm in touch with some type of higher power. I appreciate the universe. I'm in touch with nature, like kind of general things. I think it was for the most part general and that I was, I guess, similar to like what Bentov was getting at is that it's expanding our perspective of what we are, that it's just kind of opening the doors and windows to like, hey, pay attention during your waking state that there's more going on in the unwaking state. So pay attention. Hmm. You know, life is more complex than we've previously considered. Interesting. And so I'm sure people are probably wondering, I'm definitely wondering, like, if you are, you know, obviously intelligent just from our conversation, intelligent when you were a kid based off of what you're saying, 
not great grades, so that mm -hmm. kind of explains like why college scholarships and things oh, like that yeah. probably weren't available to you. Never even tried, never considered, never. I never even sat for the college yeah. application test. I did not care about more school. Yeah. So then, how does being a plumber, which again, no disrespect, no, no, it's all good. The plumbers of the world, mm -hmm. but you know, if you are, you know, such high intellect as you're claiming, why? Mm -hmm. How did plumbing come into the fold? <laughs> Here's my answer to that question. It's, and it's common for a lot of trades folk. <laughs> when people say like, Eric, what got you into plumbing? My answer has always been a lack of proper decision making up until I got into the plumbing industry. <laughs> I mean, it's just, so you just found out about it? You knew someone that was a plumber? Like, I, I got out of the Navy and... Yeah, how long were you in the Navy for? Like nine months. Okay. Pretty short. <coughs> Correct. And you went, your dad was in the Navy? My dad was in the Navy. My grandfather was in the Navy. It so was, it just seemed know. like something to do. Mm -hmm. Low barrier of entry. Yep. And yep. did you enjoy it? I loved it. Really? I was having a grand old time in the submarine service. And why why, why did you get discharged? Uh, wow. It's, we're making jumps, but it's all good. Um, that's, I got discharged from the Navy because I was trying to get myself discharged from the Navy. I got myself out of a six-year contract with the United States Submarine Service, which is also not something a lot of people can accomplish. How? How did you do that? By blatantly failing my NSA investigation. <laughs> so, so, you, so NSA, I was the National Security Administration. Absolutely. You have to do an ex a test to have clearances? There's a massive background check for the rate, the job that I was going to have. I was training to be what they call a fire control technician mm -hmm. for Los Angeles class submarines, which the term, how would they state it? That it was armed with up to, but not necessarily, nuclear-tipped munitions. Whoa. So... For all practical purposes, I was being trained to have my finger on a nuclear trigger. So the background investigation that goes alongside that is substantial. This is what, late 80s? This was mid-90s. Okay. So this is post-Cold War. Correct. Got yep. it. Yep. This is mid-90s, and they had canvassed my neighborhood. They had been all through my community checking, really? knocking on doors. Yeah, it's... it's old school type community. So as the NSA was ripping through my neighborhood to look into me, I had people coming to me on the download be like, hey man, can I... NSA was over here talking. Like, really? And they would tell me what was going on. And um, when I was getting into one of my final communications with the NSA team, they were asking me about my history and now I had I had been informed from other folks that I could work this angle. So, but it was still a gamble. Mm -hmm. And they told me this is if you want out, here's here's an option, but it's a gamble. So I rolled the dice, and during my final NSA investigation, when they got to the point and said, you know. Hecker, have you ever done this, 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 this? Have you ever? And of course I know I'm supposed to just simply say no and just let it slide. But instead I answered yes. 
And what was this, this, this? Have you done weed? Have you done shrooms? Have you done this stuff that you're supposed to be saying no to at that time? But instead I was like, yes. So that just instantaneously was a halt to the whole forward progression of my secrecy check for that position. Basically, it put me in default with the United States Navy because now I was considered uh, a fraudulent enlister. Really? Correct. You couldn't even be in the Navy at all in that time. No, they wouldn't. They I had, Well, put it this way. You could join the Navy. You can be forward with all this stuff. You can get waivers for anything under the sun. Technically, anybody can be in. But I was taking advantage of the path that I had taken, which, I mean, when I first went to the recruiter, right, and I walked in the door, I was stoned. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it is what it is. I mean, that's how most people join the service. Yeah. I mean, they're just like, I'm done with all this BS. I'm going to join the military. I literally walked into the recruiting office. The guy hands me the forms, you know, fill this stuff out. I fill it out. I hand it back to him. He looks at it. He goes, you can't write that you smoked weed. And I'm like, yeah, but you told me I have to fill this out honestly. Well, not that honest. And he goes, I'm going to rip this up, and you go down to the recruiting office down the block, and, and you start all over again. And when he asks you if you did that, you say no. And I was like, all right. Hilarious. So I, I went to the other recruiting office, and this time he was like, have you ever smoked weed? I'm like, no, of course not. <laughs> With a joint in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably had another one on the way to that recruiting office. But either way, so that was the state of the union for how I actually got in. Gotcha. And then when I was in the submarine service and learning that things were not exactly as presented and figuring I wanted to get out. But I thought you liked it. I did like it for the most part, for the experience, so to say. But when you get into what are the missions of these factions— it was becoming something I didn't want to support or be aligned with. I see. So I wanted to get out. And what were the missions that they were bringing up at that time that you felt you took issue with? It became obvious to me. I have to be very careful with a lot of the things with the submarine stuff. Sure. It became obvious to me that unbeknownst to the general public that when a submarine submerges... They're at war. I don't care what year it is, what decade it is, what's going on on the surface of the planet. Submariners are at war. There's something going on. And all this don't ask, don't tell, blah, all these things, I guess you would say, when you put them together, when I started to realize, well, I'm going to be the guy with my finger on the button. And what I started to learn about compartmentalization is that no one knows what's going on anywhere else. And I didn't like the idea of someone telling me, now's the time for you to pull the trigger because I said so. Yeah. You have no idea what's the end result of your trigger pull, but we're going to tell you it's a good thing. Yeah. So I just, I guess you would say I got to a point where I grew morals. Hmm. Where I started to realize that, like, I I could be getting really played right now, hmm. and to the tune of killing millions of people. I'm good. Yeah, like this, something's not right about this equation, and it just seemed off to me to continue going down that road. Hmm. Well, there's a famous story of the Russian submariner that uh, 
got orders to launch a nuclear missile. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because they saw something on the radar that was an error. And I gotcha. think, have you heard the story before? It's, it rings a bell. The, I, and I'm going to kind of butcher the details, uh -huh. but I think basically they got information from up top on the surface that mm -hmm. there was a nuclear missile heading towards them, mm -hmm. towards the Russians. Mm -hmm. And they said, all right, we got to fire back. Mm -hmm. And so they kicked it to the one like final dude that basically like has... Uh, controller launch authority. I don't know if he personally had launch authority, or if he, mm -hmm. or if, like, if he was launching it, mm -hmm. or if he just had launch authority. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that he was on the submarine. He was the one making the call, and they're basically like, "All right, it's up to you. We're doing it or not." Mm -hmm. And I think he basically was like, "Nope, let's wait." Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't a nuclear ballistic missile getting shot by the U.S. to the Russians. It right. Was, it was some other thing that they detected, mm -hmm. and they basically diverted, you know, a potential nuclear fallout. Right. Just from one guy kind of being discerning. I can't mm -hmm. remember the details. I'm sure if you Google, you know. Yeah, I've I've heard of this one because I know the the this particular Russian submariner is famous for having made the right decision. Exactly. But the rest of those details, I'm, I'm foggy yeah, as well. Yeah. But I do know that this guy got a solid pat on the back. <laughs> Crazy. So so you kind of got in this position where you're like, dude, I like being a submarine. It's like hanging with the boys. Things are cool. But now all of a sudden it's a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. I might have to do something I don't want to do morally. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's not really in my control anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm out. Correct. And now, I guess, big picture stuff, right? So when you say, like, you know, what happened to you as a kid, what happened in the Navy, I think all of these things are connected. Okay. Because getting to this topic now, right, I think a lot of these processes for the children to get filtered into different programs are on a corporate level, military-industrial complex level. I don't think that the United States Navy waits – for a kid to turn 18 for a role like the one that I got in the submarine service and then decides to start training you at 18 when you volunteer to join for a job such as that, I believe that these types of factions are a big hand in finding the right kid when they're really little to guide them to be in that chair later on in life. So you think they're these like high ranking, high responsibility military they're folks absolutely. are groomed from a really young age. Yes. Wow. I do not think that the United States Navy was waiting for me to turn eighteen to join the submarine service. I think there was some sort of a process that got me there. And, and but but you had the free will to go or to not go to the recruiter. Free will is a finicky term. So many times in life, every single one of us has gotten to that proverbial fork in the road, right? And you look to the left and you look to the right and you go, look at me at this fork about to exercise my free will because I am free to choose either one of these roads. Cool. Have you ever been at that fork in the road and asked, who built these roads? Hmm. Is that free will? Hmm. If someone built the road to the left and built the road to the right and you're now choosing which road you go down, mm -hmm. is that free will? I see. So what choices did you have? Like who, who do you feel like put these roads in front of you? Was it the military? Was it your family? I think it's 
a montage of many interests of many factions. And I think, again, this is more of a testament to what's going on around us than we care to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people investing a lot more into things we're not paying attention to. And that the almost like the bickering between those factions and investments is the process of how do kids show up to whatever program they show in, into as an adult? Hmm. Is it really a series of free will decisions or just migrating down paths that were built for us? I see. Yeah, I don't know. It, it seems a little tricky to be applying like uh, like retroactive like – agency, I guess, to like some power that controls our destiny in hindsight, if that makes sense. I, I can follow where you're getting at. In my brain, I think of it like, imagine if you went to like the the beef stocks in Chicago, you know, where they had, you know, where they're corralling all the cat are the cattle making free will choices before they get into the butcher shop because they right. chose to go left and they chose to go right but in reality the farmer made the pens sure sure you know are we are we any different are we not on a giant farm are we not a product i get what you're saying so just going in that direction i mean how are we any different than the cattle that are getting processed yeah i guess my feeling is like you know, for me, I became a stand-up comedian mm -hmm. and a podcaster. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anyone that did that. I didn't mm -hmm. have any experience with that. I grew up in Orlando mm -hmm. where, like, mm -hmm. no one did anything creative. Mm -hmm. Everyone that I grew up around was, like, had, like, a quote-unquote real job. You know, mm -hmm. they worked in insurance. They were a lawyer. They, you know, mm -hmm. coached a football team. Like, they were just a regular person. Mm -hmm. So the idea of me doing this was, like, a pipe dream. And mm -hmm. I, I, for, for me, again, I don't... I don't feel like I was, like, groomed for it in some type of, like, cosmic sense. Mm -hmm. um, I just gravitated towards it. Now, there's obviously Understood. reasons I gravitated towards it. You know, mm -hmm. my dad was obsessed with stand-up. He played mm -hmm. it all the time. He wanted to be a comedian and mm -hmm. just kind of, like, always had it around in the house. So mm -hmm. there's obviously, like, imprinting early on that drew me towards it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I, I have a hard time feeling like this was somehow destined for me by some, like, uh I, I wouldn't want to— I wouldn't want to say that you were forced into it, but it would it would make sense that these systems, I mean, just just like on a farm, they're they're dividing the animals out for whatever that one is best suited for. Mm -hmm. So that process, in and of itself, is it forcing the animal into the best circuit? You know, I mean, are, were you forced to go where you're at, or were you just guided to be where you're most efficiently functioning? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's uh, attributing, like, intention mm -hmm. when coincidence could also explain it. Oh, understood. And that's, in my mind, I'm like, which one, like, kind of on some Occam's Razor type mm -hmm. shit. Like, what is the more simple explanation? Well, that's that's using, that's a misinterpretation of Occam's Razor. Oh, really? Absolutely. In what way? Um, because it's the exact opposite of what it is. <laughs> a lot of people believe that Occam's Razor means that there's truth to the concept of like whatever the simplest thing is, is most like, and that's not true. That's not what Occam's razor is. No, what is it? Occam's razor means you take all possibility and put it on the table to be considered. The razor is then taking the razor and slicing off a piece of all that's possible, assessing that piece, and if that's not possible, you can discard it. Mm. But anything that you can't discard has to remain on the table. That has nothing to do with it being the simplest thing is the most likely answer. Oh, I, I always interpret it as like uh, if you're walking in Central Park and you mm -hmm. hear hooves, mm -hmm. 
it could be a zebra, mm-hmm. but it could be a horse. Mm-hmm. And the simplest answer is that it's a horse. So uh, Understood, but that's not Occam's something. Razor. I see. Okay. Occam's Razor would say until you can discount it being a horse or a zebra, you have to consider that both are possible. I see. Okay. That's what Occam's Razor is really getting at. Got it. Okay. I didn't know that. Understood. So then in my, so I guess for my point, like I would just attribute to, you know, the simplest answer or like. And I'm I'm totally against that concept. I believe that, I believe that is baloney because I believe life has shown us that typically things are way more complex Hmm. than we've given consideration for. And I believe that misinterpretation of Occam's razor is a way to keep us dumbed down to just accept whatever is the stupidest, simplest, (laughs) least complex, quick answer to pacify us. Hmm. So when you go to the when you gravitate towards the navy, mm-hmm. is it possible that it was just coincidence that you grew up, your family was in the navy, and you know you didn't have like college prospects? So you were like, yeah, this seems like a good. Option. Sure, it's possible that it was that simple. Okay, but you feel like it's more likely that there was like an intentional grooming that they I, wanted you to be in that. Position. I think that that's just how these machines work, so to say, of programming that. Mm-hmm. When you have a propensity to things and exposure to things, you're more likely to follow suit. And these are the games that people play that they're taking advantage of. I see. I mean, can you can you separate the fact that you're a comedian now from your father's affinity for comedy? I mean, how can you separate that mm-hmm. one caused the other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're I think they're directly connected. Right. So. But I also had a lot of siblings that didn't. Go uh, so, but comedy. but back to like another part of the conversation. So, did you really choose to be a comedian, or was it because of your exposure that you were forced to? Right. Yeah, I know. It's, you know, yeah. did you really choose it? If, if, what if your father didn't have the affinity for comedy, so that you didn't come from that road to then have the choice at the next fork? Right. Right. So, is this, this is is this more of like a free will position that you have in general that you are? generally kind of a believer in like determinism or do you feel like there's I'm a firm believer in free will as a real like a philosophical construct I believe that we've just been so manipulated for so long I see that we've lost connection to actual free will choices there's been so many roads built I see contemporarily that we're hard pressed to ever find ourselves in what I would say is an actual free will choice. I see. Okay. We're that heavily manipulated at this point. There's that much structure around us. So we inherently have free will, but the powers that be have basically corralled us to to no longer be able to participate in that. And we, we, we we're so distant mm-hmm. from the actual ideal of freedom and free will. Right. I mean, just like what we're experiencing right now, you and I are witnessing a world right now, today, mm-hmm. that is wholly, observably less free than when we were children. So following that backwards, if each generation is experiencing that, how far removed are we from true freedom as observed by our ancestors? Hmm. And how much further can freedom dilapidate in just a couple of more generations where our great-grandkids are going to have no flavor of the freedom that we once experienced? That's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I, maybe. I don't know. I also kind of look at it where I'm like, you couldn't smoke weed as a kid. 
or like you could, but it was illegal. Mm-hmm. Or like you couldn't be gay in the sixties and mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And now you can, it seems more free in those ways. So I'm sure there's people that are like, it feels pretty free. And back in the day, you guys, there was a draft. Some people mm-hmm. had to go in the draft in the military. That's not very free. So I'm like, <coughs> I don't know. In a lot of ways, I could see now being freer in some ways. Obviously, I, I can follow the logic of the debate, but mm-hmm. I would say it's still a wonderful debate to have. I see. Have a discussion on what is freedom. What are mm-hmm. the benefits of the things that we call freedoms now? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we're sexually free, but is that true freedom? Or, yeah, or I now? mean, what's the, you know? Right. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather hear about, you know, people not being taxed and enslaved and, you know, all that type of stuff and fiat currencies. And there's sure. a lot of other um, enslaving chains about us than um, the more bullet points of incendiary topics that, you know, so I'm allowed to be gay now. That means I'm freer. Right. But what? Mm-hmm. Like what's, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying, and I don't want to get caught up too much in the, yeah, in the but, semantics. But, but yeah, I guess but those are the things. Like, what is what is freedom? Yeah, what yeah, is, which is an interesting debate. I think that's important. Um, yeah, I guess for me, I kind of personally just kind of attribute like, you know, I, I've I've known a lot of people growing up that like to attribute uh, random events to some type of force, whether it's a, whether it's God, whether it's mm-hmm. governments, whether it's other things. Um, and maybe because of that reactionarily, I've kind of become a little bit more open to like, yo, there is coincidence and mm-hmm. things can just sort of happen coincidentally mm-hmm. and that's okay. They can. Yeah. I, I, I'm not against that they can. What I'm trying to profess is that there's a lot more things occurring through the application of intent by folks that are hiding in the shadows mm-hmm. that that also occurs. And right. that bad people organize faster than good people, hmm. and good people need to start paying attention to that. Yeah, that's interesting. And and, and it's no, like, conspiracy to me personally mm-hmm. that, you know, if you're, you know, have a military family, like, lineage of military folks, mm-hmm. maybe not, like, uh, you know, a ton of, like, post-high school prospects, and you're, like, a young dude in a lower middle class situation, like— the military option, I think, opens up a lot. Oh, you know totally. I mean? so, Absolutely. And that's, and I and think that's structure. By, I think it's by design. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. They, they Again, the military knows the product that they need, and they know the demograph they have to target. Sure. And I and I, I do agree. I think, in, by and large, that's probably intentional. I think in the same mm. way the you know military indu- or the prison industrial complex. Absolutely. Yeah, it's totally way. privatized and lucrative. Yeah, where they say, you know, if we can get, you know, more, you know, young black dudes mm-hmm. doing bad things, we can get them locked up and get them harsher sentences. <laughs> Here's the laws that we need to make because here's what we know everyone is doing. So let's just make it illegal so that we can do these things and charge them harshly and, Mm -hmm. you know, get free labor out of it. Of course, 13th Amendment. This is Mm -hmm. so I do agree that by design, those things probably are happening Mm -hmm. at a large scale. So I'm I'm with you there. Um, But ultimately, you're in, you know, the submarine unit. You don't Mm -hmm. really enjoy it anymore. Mm -hmm. You realize that your role is not something you want to be in. Mm -hmm. So you intentionally kind of uh, flunk this NSA Mm-hmm. Test. Yep. And why is that a gamble? You mentioned that a few times. That there was some risk involved. <laughs> what is the risk there? The the risk was they were threatening to send me to Leavenworth for ten years for fraudulently enlisting. And Leavenworth is like a, a military, military prison? prison. Wow. Yeah. So the the gamble was they're going to either throw you in military prison or just cut you loose. Wow. And so, just because you had done mushrooms before and admitted to it. Pretty much, yeah. It blew my it blew my qualification for the security clearance, so it removed the access to the job that I wanted, 
And technically, yes, they could offer me other positions that didn't require the clearance, but technically I had still put in myself squarely in the center of a circumstance of fraudulently enlisting by definition, which basically means it was like I wasn't supposed to be there. Because at that point in the system, you already said that you had never done mushrooms Correct. or you had never done you know psychedelic yep. drugs. Yep. And then they ask you at the very end, and you uh -huh. go, well, actually, I lied. Mm -hmm. I understand. So mm -hmm. that's the risk. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they sent you home. Correct. So now you get home, and you're probably, what, like 19 at this point? Yep. So then what? Uh, got a job delivering auto parts for Napa. Literally drove from the base to the Napa Auto Parts in Hicksville. Uh, still had my sailor uniform on. It was Great. like, I'm looking for work. Hilarious. And they were like, you can drive for us. And I was like, cool. And then I was driving for them for a little while. Um, at one point, my father just basically said to me, he goes, did you ever think about doing plumbing? I said, no. He goes, do you have any oppositions to it? I said, should I? I've never thought about it in my life. And he says, no. He goes, you know, it's... um." It's hard work, but you work hard. You get paid well. The harder you work, you get paid more money. Mm -hmm. So that sounds pretty fair to me. So got my foot in the door at a local plumbing company as an apprentice. Started my career. I just excelled at plumbing. I mean, I can I get that a lot of people think that it's pretty basic and easy to do, and that's more or less true for some of the more basic plumbing. Mm -hmm. um, but I took on a career of doing exceptional work at peculiar facilities up to and including the South Pole Station. Right. So there's um, there's more to these complex systems that takes more complex thought and figuring things out. You know, when you're at Mother Nature's throat and she's, you know, shutting down systems at the South Pole, it's not your average plumber that they have on the payroll to mitigate the problems. That makes sense. So, so it'd be like a plumber on the moon, right? right you can, exactly. you can, la you can laugh a, at plumbing all day plumber, long, but, but yeah, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a plumber by trade, but if yeah. they needed a plumber on the moon, I could do that, right? And I'd be really good at it. And then would people just say to you, "Oh, you're just a plumber?" Yeah, it's different levels, I guess you would say. So that makes sense. So you didn't feel like your natural ability was was wasted, so to speak. No, not at all. You didn't feel bored with the work? No, not at all. Maybe initially, if you're just doing little pipes in a house, you'd probably... No, I always... It, not not even initially, because there was so much to learn. Hmm. Um, and so you found a guy that you, kind of you were an apprentice for and yeah. learned you worked your way up. Yeah, worked my way up and then, you know, got my own skill set and became good. You know, I say that I'm a systems guy. Uh, from my perspective, I look around. There's a lot of parts changers out there is how I put it. You know, they show up to a job. They don't really know what's going on, mm -hmm. but they'll just start swapping parts mm -hmm. until the thing works. Interesting. Did they know what was going on? Did they know how to fix it? No, they just kept changing parts. I see. I'm a bit different because I can actually show up to a system and assess and know that's the broken part. This right. is what we have to fix. I don't have to try this and try that and try this. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I do. And then how long did it take for you to start linking up with wealthy families within, you know, the Long Island area? That would have been so let's see, that would have been probably well, when you say start, I would say almost almost immediately, I guess. I started crossing paths with the affluent folks of Long Island. 
So you're 19 years old, you're a plumber, and by the time you're 20, 21, you're now working within like high-end estates and Correct. mansions and yep. doing systems plumbing work for them. Yep. Interesting. And then in- And that's just referral-based. Uh, no, well, no, 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 no. That was, I was a direct employee of companies that were sending me to places. I understand. And then in, I would say probably in about five or six years, I was- um, a full-fledged mechanic, not apprenticing, and was now running these types of jobs for these billionaire clients at both their residences, where their corporations were, and just basically, you know, calling the shots and getting things figured out 24 hours a day, you know, lots of emergency service. And this was like typical typical plumbing work, like a pipe broke? Like Typical plumbing work, I would say, in... Non-typical facilities. Right. So this would be at a mansion in Long Island. Or- mansion on Long Island and or um, peculiar industrial facilities. Okay. That there's a lot of military industrial complex contractors and facilities on Long Island as well hmm. that are operating under false pretenses. Because, you know, all, I mean – the military obviously has secrecy, right? You have a base and you have this product that's made. Well, that product is a series of components that are manufactured at all of these other plants that mm-hmm. are all over the place in every community. Mm-hmm. They're not going to write, this is the super duper top secret microchip <laughs> plant right here on Beth Page Road. Yeah, of course, of course. But that's happening everywhere. Right. So many of these facilities are up to some seriously top secret stuff. And so what are some examples of your exposure to these facilities that are kind of operating? Uh, there was a place that I showed up to one time that had a couple of Humvees. It, it was like almost like a nondescript um, auto mechanic shop. But in reality, they're running super duper top secret contracts to upfit the Humvees for super high-grade weapons and recon stuff. Hmm. But this is now happening right in Nassau County, Long Island. So okay. if that vehicle was on a base, it'd be guarded by the military. It'd be super you know, protected. But now it's just in some bay. It's in bay two of Jimmy's auto garage in Farmingdale. Crazy. Because they got the contract to do the stuff. And the name of the place is like... Not even on the building. It's just like an auto body shop or something. Yeah, it would just be something nondescript, some local you know, business. But in reality, it's anything... But normal. And what is the benefit for the military to be operating like so out in the open but secretly? The benefit is that no one knows what's going on. But why wouldn't they just do it on a base? Because they can't. They, they have the, the manufacturing is just everywhere. This is we're talking on the manufacturing side, so it's like they don't build Humvees on the base. Oh, I see. They don't build the jets mm. on the base. That's the the. IC part of the MIC. You have the military industrial complex. The industrial complex is in all of our communities. Uh, and they can't just have like a centralized, like, hey, here's where we build all if of our If it was shit. centralized and known, then our enemy would just bomb it. Oh, interesting. So they do it as a defense mechanism to Absolute, say like, hey, uh, we're going to disperse it, all decentralize the above. Yeah. it, and it's going to kind of be everywhere but nowhere. Correct. Interesting. And this is all over America? This is in every country on the planet. Everyone's doing the same thing. So in every town, basically, in the U.S., you feel it's like- Absolutely. This interesting. Is, I mean, and we see this historically. I mean, look at the—we um, just had the Oppenheimer movie come out, which mm-hmm. I didn't see. But, I mean, there's a huge portion of our country's labor force 
working towards the creation of a nuclear bomb in different compartments all over the country, unbeknownst to each other. Again, mm. perfect proof of how compartmentalization works. Interesting. You know, everybody always says, you know, if uh, if that was true, there'd be so many people involved in that that we'd have to know something. No, the nuclear program was a perfect example of how that statement's not true. Because a bunch of people knew a little bit. So therefore, nobody knew anything. And there was a couple people that knew everything. A couple people up top, but right. for the most part, I mean, we had whole towns. I mean, there was a point during the nuclear program where I think, like, they said something crazy. Like, one-third of all of our nation's electrical output was going towards building the bomb. Really? Right. It's, it's, it was so Damn. pervasive in every aspect of our society, but yet unbeknownst, you know, it's it's like the biblical term, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And they sure. just, they nailed it. Mm -hmm. They do it all the time. It's easy. Wow. Everybody's right. really preoccupied with like, uh, I don't know, is my team going to win this Monday night football? Like right. there's so much bullshit yeah, that yeah. they get us to pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, bread and circuses. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. So like in just a nondescript like strip mall in mm -hmm. Kansas City. Right. Like, there might be some type of government program. Absolutely. And it's yes. guys in suits and ties walking into a yep. you know regular building. Yep. And they're working on one c component of a thing. Perfect example, right? I've been I've been saying this for years, right? That there's all this stuff going on under our noses, right? In clear sight, right? So when I went to Washington, D.C. for the Greer event for the disclosure, Senate Intelligence Committee testimony, um, I had to go speak to the folks at Arrow. Okay. And it was a big deal, apparently, that this location was super-duper secret. And they, they said to me, they're like, you can discuss anything we discussed here. They said the only thing that you're not allowed to discuss is who we are. You can't say who we are. You're talking to us. You can never say who we are, and you can never say where you were at for the interview, that this facility is super-duper secret squirrel stuff. So I agreed to those parts, and then when my roommate and I went to go testify at Arrow, and she's someone who's very um, educated on my past, and someone who I've, I've been speaking ad nauseum about all my experiences and all these shady buildings that I've been to that are right in the middle of the community, right? So we show up for this Arrow interview. We get the address, go to walk in the door, and I, I, said, I said, come here. And so we, we walk right out of the building, close the door, and I said, okay. I said, all those times I've told you before about showing up to nondescript places, I said, look at what's going on right now. I said, this building is right. I said, is this not right in the middle of Averageville? Wow. I Very. said, we walk, in, we walk in this building. I said, does it look like anything other in some legal office. Wow. Is there, is there anything about this building that says it's the most super secret building you're ever going to be in? <laughs> Interesting. I said, but now we're going to go back in. And I said, and watch how fast everything changes. Wow. So we jumped into the elevator. Next thing you know, now we're going through. It's like the start of Get Smart. <laughs> Blast doors, this, and Secret Service. Like it got real quick. Really? And this is what I'm telling people. This is this is what's going on around us. You can have the most top secret facility in the world right across the street from you, right here in Brooklyn. How would you know? Looks like an abandoned building. Huh? How, yeah. How would you know? Yeah. And this is what they do. Wow. The 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 industrial complex is all around us. Hmm. 
intentionally to disperse and not have you know focus from an enemy target or anything like that. Part that's part of it for sure. Another is just just straight up cost effective logistics. I mean, back in the day, we had all these Nike nuclear missile sites right. all over the place. Turns out they're right in the middle of our community because well, they need to be staffed. You need all of these hmm. people to work at these city-sized facilities. Interesting. And if you're going to take it and remove it from right. the population, you put it in stick the desert in Nevada. Of, and now you have to get all of these people. Now it gets really expensive to run the facility. Oh, that's interesting. And it also makes it like it's just this shining magnet of someone else looking at your setup and going, what are they doing over there? Interesting. But if you take your super-duper secret stuff and just integrate it into the community at large – the, the, there's your cover story right there. So you have genius level scientists in Boston or New York City, mm -hmm. and instead of paying and forcing them to relocate to some mm -hmm. nondescript base out in the desert or out in Wyoming yeah, somewhere. Yeah, they just get a grant in their college that says, oh, we're working on this when it really means that. And now you have top seeker, super duper stuff happening right under everybody's noses. You're getting college kids to work on it too. Wow. And you have firsthand experience with this because you were contracted to work the plumbing at a lot of these facilities. Correct. Wow. Yeah, places like AIL, TRW, um, Paul Corporation. These are just all military industrial contractor facilities that I've been in that were just shady as all hell. And what was your clearance? Like, why did you have access to go there? There is no clearance per se. This is, again, a testament to um, secret right under your nose because there's not a there's not a barbed wire fence. There's not a sign that says super top secret. So there's no clearance required. The secrecy comes in the denial of what the facility is. And so would could any plumber have gotten access to work these facilities? I don't think so. Why? I think there's what I would call the approved list. And you feel like you were on the approved list. I feel like I was on the approved list. So similarly to like, you know, if Bill Gates has a leaky sink, he doesn't go to the yellow pages. Mm -hmm. He has an approved list. If his lights go out, he's got an, he's already got an electrician that's authorized to be there. He's already got a plumber that's allowed to be on his property. How you get to be on those lists, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But there's certainly a, a level of clientele that gets approved, folks. Interesting. And so— Because yeah. the, the other thing to consider, too, I mean, big picture stuff, right? If you think countries are spying on each other and have armies fighting each other— and you don't think corporations are playing the same game, then yeah. you really have no idea what's going on on this planet. So, I mean, just for that being said, these folk um, have to get certain other folk dialed in because they have to worry about corporate espionage. Mm -hmm. They don't need some plumber coming in and, and tapping their bathroom or mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then you're going to have other factions that are trying to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, Bill Gates has a service call. Well, let's try to get our plumber in there and see if we can tap his house and get info out of him. Interesting. All of these games are being played. And so you felt like you were on a list. Like you Absolutely. Had, you had access. Mm -hmm. Because of your military experience, because of your childhood experience? I would say— uh, It's all connected. All connected. It's, it's no one component. It has to do with all of the things. Hmm. And then back to the conversation we we're having about like kind of the free will thing, mm -hmm. not to rehash it too much. No, no, but go ahead. Did you feel like you had like free will to go into plumbing? I do. Like from, I guess the way that I look at it would be like there's my 
chronological experience, the way the things, the way, the, the order of the way that things occurred mm -hmm. as they occurred, everything seemed natural mm -hmm. and like I had free will. I see. But in hindsight, I pause because now there's too many other things that I also know where I feel more like, well, who built the roads? Mm. You know, did I really have a choice to go into plumbing? Was that really free will? Well, it, it seemed like it at the time. Mm -hmm. But now when I look at the limited choices, well, isn't that the power of the edit in and of itself to have my choices limited? Mm. So it's questionably free will or so it, it yeah. possibly was a guiding hand. So just to understand your position, do you feel like there was a person or people that were like, Eric is going to become a plumber? Or do you feel like just society and the way that it's constructed led you to, you know, one of a couple options as a tradesman working in plumbing? Hmm. I think the more and more I think about the path that I took in life by any of the details seems to be more and more guided because it's hard pressed for me to say like, I couldn't have gotten to the South Pole without have been first a plumber. Hmm. So since I feel very staunchly that I was very much guided to that position, mm -hmm. I have to look at the path that guided me there and really consider how much that was manufactured. Interesting. So I think, you know, in specifics to this question, I think there was a guiding hand that wanted me to gain a skill set. Is it possible it's God? Is it possible it's like a higher power? It is possible. I couldn't knock that off the list. Again, back to Occam's razor. But I guess in my mind's eye, I would think if there was deity, God, I think we would perceive as more noble of mm. intention, action, guidance. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've seen so much the positive, I feel like a lot of the stuff that I've noticed up until this point seems to be very negative stuff. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in many ways that a lot of the intention applied by others seems to have been uh, negatively motivated. Interesting. But with what you're suggesting, I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I would like to... Um, get aligned with that. I mean, may, maybe uh, because of all of the bad things I've experienced, maybe I'm supposed to be a voice for good. And sometimes you have to, like, that would be great. Like if, if I guess I would feel more comfortable with that if I accomplished the mission, then I could look back and <laughs> sure. say, you know what? I, I accomplished good things by speaking on these topics. Um, I'm going to try to think of it that way more often. Maybe. Again, I, like... <laughs> that I, feels better. Yeah, because I, I, I think if you're looking at it like, yeah, you are you have a, a mission to try to educate people on all these atrocities that are mm -hmm. happening that you've talked about, obviously, which are atrocious and mm -hmm. things that you will talk about, you know, mm -hmm. if all the things you're claiming are true and you're able to expose these things, then mm -hmm. obviously that is a, a inherent good for humanity. I can follow that. So then therefore, maybe the guiding force is divine... And uh, maybe these people, if there's, you know, people at the top that are controlling your path, mm -hmm. maybe they're actually, you know, doing an errand for some type of divine force. Who knows? 
that would be the best outcome. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, I, I guess, yeah. I, uh-huh. I understand your position. I know a lot mm-hmm. of people very personal, like closely to mm-hmm. me, relatives that have a similar worldview mm-hmm. where they're sort of under a impression that there's a, a very direct guiding mm-hmm. material mm-hmm. force on earth that's kind of <coughs> leading them into specific you know, mm-hmm. directions. I guess me personally, I don't mm-hmm. necessarily subscribe to that in the exact same way, but I do mm-hmm. get, I do get the worldview. And I'm, and I'm not opposed to the idea of a, of a divine guiding hand. Um, I would just say that it's, it's not something I'd say that I immediately associate to, but I'm not opposed to. Sure. I mean, I absolutely, I absolutely believe that there's some sort of um, creator or grand architect of everything. Um, I, I just, have a hard time yielding to most people's definition of what that is. Yeah, and that's a big question in general. I don't yeah. expect every person. I don't, for me personally, yeah. I don't even have like a clear definition of what you know. Yeah, which is. I think is a more healthy perspective. Yeah, is you know, I just I get frustrated with you know, I believe there's something great and grand, mm-hmm. um, and I find most people's definitions fall really short of the greatness and grandness. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, that sounds really limiting and. You know, if God is such an awesome thing, it seems to me that your definition is very limiting of this great thing. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think it's more greater than your definition. Right, yeah, which I think is a reasonable objection, you know, Mm -hmm. just on, uh, you know, the dogmatic sense of what religion is for different people. Sure, I I think that makes sense. But yeah, I guess to subscribe to that idea, like your dad would have had to be in on it being like, hey, go be a plumber. And like, Mm -hmm. was he impressed with the idea? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I, I, that's where I kind of like, maybe, who knows? Mm but to you working as a plumber for like very high net worth people in mm-hmm. Long Island at the time, can you talk, and I know you've talked about this before, but some of the odd things that you saw, you know, working for some of these high profile clients. Yes. Um, master bathrooms. Just a few decades ago, before the whole digital conquest of the world, um, it used to be very common to have magazine racks in your bathroom. Mm. Really rich people had really fancy built-in magazine racks. Yeah, I've seen this in movies. Yeah, so I would go to work in someone's home, and I was always very interested in what other people read. So if somebody's got a bookshelf, like if I was in here right now and you had a bookshelf behind you, I'd be more focused on the books behind you than looking at you mm-hmm. because that would tell me more about you faster. Mm-hmm. You know, where is your brain at? What do you read? Where are your thoughts at? Mm-hmm. So bookshelves and magazine racks, I paid a lot of attention to. A lot of my customers had in their master bathroom racks, they had... Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations quarterly, mm-hmm. the Trilateral Commission annual. Mm. Those are really peculiar organizations. Why? Um, because they operate outside of the bounds of our government and they're seated by most of the people that are in our government. So they're operating behind closed doors in secrecy, which is um, wholly illegal according mm-hmm. to the constitutions of our nation is that we're not supposed to have politicians meeting in private for other organizations that we the people have no oversight in, mm-hmm. but yet it's occurring right. and everyone knows it. So Council on Foreign Relations members, Trilateral Commission members, these were my customers. These are the nefarious component of society. I've worked for properties that were, um, well, granted, they're they were dead by the time that I showed up, but it's still the 
families running the property. And over in Roslyn, Long Island, there is quite a few residences that were former director of central intelligence agency homes that I did the plumbing in. Mm -hmm. So again, I believe I was on some sort of a list because these are certain types of profile homes that not your average Joe Blow, Yellow Pages plumber shows up to. Interesting. And did you see anything peculiar or do any peculiar jobs even maybe outside of the plumbing purview during those times? Well, yes, because besides the plumbing stuff, <coughs> excuse me, this is something that I brought up in the um, the Patrick Bet David interview. Um, I had a customer by the name of John Tunney that was with the Carlisle Group, and he would call me up twenty four hours a day, anytime, anytime, four in the morning. What's that? Four oh, in the morning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, two in the morning, four in the morning, 24 hours a day. He could call me up and he would just simply ask me uh, what vehicle I was in and how close I was to getting to him time-wise. He wanted to know times. How, how close are you to me? And he could request me picking up a different vehicle. So I had a, I had a company work van that was a lettered work truck. I had a personal vehicle that I have for doing side work. So it was an unmarked plumbing vehicle. And then I had this really awesome Camaro that was raging hot rod. And this guy could call me up and basically dictate which vehicle he wanted me to pick him up in. And how'd you have a Camaro? You just bought That it was my personal vehicle. You just saved money. And just yeah, I had a nice hot rod. Were you making good money working as a player? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep, it's a, it's a lucrative career, you were especially paid, if you're good at it. You were paid above the average wage. For Slightly, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was, yeah, I was definitely ahead of the curve, especially for my age. Mm -hmm. um, I was very youthful and had a lot of experience and skill. So Six figures plus at that time? Mm, no, not at that time. Okay. Yeah. Um. But this guy could contact me 24-7, tell me, you know, which vehicle he wanted me to pick him up in, and then we would proceed to go to some billionaire's mansion that he wanted me to shuttle him to and fro. And I would say at the at the very least, it was a very nondescript method for him to get around and do shady stuff. Hmm. You know, and at at worst, I mean, there were times that I have recollections of going in with him to these places that I don't even really recall technically. Hmm. It's like teetering on memories. It's like at the time it didn't really seem like much, but now in hindsight, I'm like, man, I can't believe I can't remember that. Was it weird to you that he was calling a plumber and not like his personal driver? Not really. Really? Because I knew he was up to no... I mean, I was kind of a derelict when I was a kid. So, I I mean, at the time, I just figured the dude's up to shady stuff. Mm -hmm. But shady stuff happens. And I just kind of figured, you know, look at this guy, like, working the system. Hmm. Like, I, in my brain, I was just kind of like, oh, he's, he's smart. Huh. You know, he wants to go do something without someone knowing what he's doing. So, this is... Interesting. And did he explain what was going on, or no. did he explain to you like I was a peon in the equation. I was I was under direction from my company owner to just do what the guy says. And you couldn't have objected and be like, "Hey, this falls outside of the grounds." He's of paying the rate. Yeah, I was on emergency service. Gotcha. And so it's like you know, you cover an emergency service, and people are charged for our time. So this guy was basically getting a getaway driver for the rate of an overtime plumber. Right. And he doesn't want 
his driver to know or he doesn't want to pay the driver's rate or something? I've, I I was the driver and he was paying <laughs> the rate. But like, if, I'm sure if you're a billionaire, you probably have like a driver, right? Like, I don't know. That's probably more noticeable than zipping around in a plumbing truck right. without people knowing. Makes sense. Huh. I think, again, there's different levels of investment in subterfuge. And so you would go inside of some of these mansions with him. Mm-hmm. And why would you go in rather than just stay in the car? Did he tell you? Like, he would dictate that stuff. And so he would just say, hey, follow For me. the most part, I stayed outside. Interesting. For the most part. I just, I barely recall there was a couple of times where he was like, come inside. And I just followed him. And what happened there? He had conversations with the people inside. Three in the morning. It, yeah. Do you remember what the conversations were about? I would be at a little bit of a distance, so I was not privy to what they were talking about. Interesting. So it's just like, I, I think like a show of force. Hmm. And do you do you have any speculation as to why he wanted you inside the home? Show of force and or his own apprehension. Interesting. Would be my guess. He never communicated what we were going anywhere for. Hmm. He never gave me like a heads up. It was just direction. He was like, let's pick me up. I would pick him up. I, he would get in the vehicle. He'd give me an address. I would go where he said to go. And I would bill his company for the time we were Dealing with him. And do secret type of like covert meetings and things like that. Correct. Interesting. I mean, and, and I can't imagine a billionaire is doing like crimes. Like, <laughs> like, <coughs> Why not? Why do, what, <laughs> what, what billionaire do you know is a really noble guy? Sure, I mean, not sure. for nothing. But, Why do they get a free pass? But in my mind, I'm like. There's no, there's no dude on the corner <laughs> of Brooklyn bringing in container ships full of cocaine from foreign countries. Fair. That's billionaire level activity. Yeah. No, that's fair. Let's be really honest here. The, the billionaires are probably some of the biggest shitheads on this planet fucking it up for the rest of us. But you think he was doing it himself? Doing what? Like whatever crime or whatever. Yeah, I was literally driving him to do it. Oh, really? Did you? So whatever what, he was doing, he was doing directly. What, what do you, can you speculate at all what you think he was doing? Threatening the shit out of people. Oh, really? Wild. I mean, if I'm going to speculate, yeah, I mean, what other reason do you show up at someone's doorstep at two in the morning other yeah. than to be flexing is the way I look at it. Wild. Mm-hmm. This is Tony of the Tony boxing family lineage. Interesting. And then how long did that go on for? Um, I guess the entire time that I would have been associated with that company. So a year or two? Um, I was with that outfit a couple of different windows of employment so i would say cumulatively it would have been on and off for maybe four or five years total oh wow mm -hmm. and then he would call you up like once every couple of weeks kind of thing i don't think it was that frequent interesting oh but the other thing to consider too is that um i was only getting the communications uh, for the most part, when I'd be covering emergency service. Uh, and you so were someone else from my company was covering emergency service. Interesting. So this is, again, his level of plausible deniability and diversified liability to the is that he's getting all of these different vehicles all the time. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is just how people do stuff. And did you did you ever ask anyone else at the company and the other plumbers? Like, oh, I've been talking to some folks since, and we've been dialing things in. Yeah, I'm, I'm, so there's a, there's facilities that I've worked at that I knew were shady, right? So in my recollection, I'm like, yeah, you know, that building was really messed up. And now I'm talking to folks, and they're like, you didn't have to sign an NDA when you worked there? I'm like, you did? Oh, really? Some of them did? Correct. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot of peculiarity. I, don't, I have no idea why some of the buildings that I know that I worked in 
I didn't sign an NDA to be functioning in there. Other workers that I know that now went there, they did. Interesting. Yeah, so this is there's no real rhyme or reason to a lot of this stuff. And I, I don't have all of the answers, but I got a lot of great questions about a lot of weird buildings on Long Island. Wow. And and these other guys that you worked with, they corroborated your story. They're like, yeah, mm-hmm. he called me up and we did. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that going on and I'm trying to bring more to the forefront, but this is me. I'm, you know, connecting the dots, trying to decipher my experience and get things figured out. And I'm getting, to, I'm getting there, wow. um, but there's a lot to connect. And so for the most part, you think that he was doing covert meetings, show of force, like mm-hmm. kind of intimidating people, things mm-hmm. like that. I do. Do you think there was ever a time where he was doing like actual like crimes, I guess? Like I guess intimidation is kind of a crime, but like. I mean, he could have been tuning people up in there that I didn't see. I mean, was he an older guy? Uh, he was an older gentleman, but he, I mean, he was, I would assume, pretty bad mother fudger. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, you know, trained fighter. He comes from a family of fighters and he's, you know, with an organization that's known to be pretty nefarious. The Carlisle group is, you know, associated to the Bush family and all kinds of shenanigans on this planet. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty wild. And were you ever scared in the time that you were doing this or working with them? I probably have issues for not being scared more often than when I should be. <laughs> yeah, I'm scared hearing about it. Yeah. Um, when, I, <laughs> when I was a little kid, my father used to refer to me as a habitual line stepper. Yeah. And I think that's... Um, Part of why I get to do the things that I do is that I guess I don't have that apprehension to step over the line and see what might happen. Hmm. Interesting. And so you kind of were just going forward with this, like kind of knowing there was some shadiness, but not really looking into it too much. It didn't really matter to me at the time. Mm -hmm. I was in my early 20s. You know, I mean, I'd seen all kinds of shenanigans before. Yeah. Um, In the grand scheme of things, this was... Pretty moderate. Yeah. I mean, I'm driving a dude to a house. I'm not seeing what's going on. I mean, in my brain, I already had plausible tonight. Like, you know, what if this guy is doing that? What what does that mean to me? Yeah. What am I going to get pinched for? Driving a guy to a place and having no idea what he did in there? Yeah. I mean, I can because I could easily say, I have no idea what he was doing in there. But do I really have no idea what he's doing yeah, in there? I mean, enough to deny it. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that's where my brain was at at the time. Interesting. You know? And you never really told any, like, you didn't tell anyone or ask, like, did you ever ask, like, the company manager or, like, anything like that? I I don't really recall having a problem with it and asking, per se. But I feel like they were just, like, just simple conversations on, like, hey— did John give you a call last night? It was more like billing. Like it was like more like, well, how many hours did, were you out with him last night? Yeah, like it was invoicing. that type. Like so it was like, yeah, it was just like to properly invoice. Like so people knew it was going on. Interesting. It was just billing it correctly because yeah. we were charging for the service. Hmm. Very interesting. And mm-hmm. you have no idea which addresses he was going to or the people. No, not off the top of my head. Very interesting. Yeah. And so you do that for five, six years. like, mm-hmm. And then what are you doing the rest of your time? Like you're just living like the regular life of a 20-year-old? Yeah. I mean, just doing, yeah, building hot rods, having fun, street racing. You That's know. cool. Yeah, just having a blast. You like to go fast. I do. Yeah. Hell yeah. That, and that was, I mean, not for, I mean, that was probably reason why I, sometimes he would say, you know, how long, where are you at? Mm. He would say, where are you at? How long before you can be to this address with the Camaro? Oh, sick. Like those conversations would occur. Yeah. 
sometimes he wanted me to bring that car. Interesting. And yeah, I mean, and and you're right. So like that 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 would be where my brain would go sometimes. I'd be like, oh, he wants me to get the Camaro tonight. But that changed what the task was at all. Unbeknownst to me, but I could only suspect like like if he's going to be patient enough for me to go get that car right now. Yeah. Apparently that's the tool he's pulling out of the toolkit tonight. So there's a higher probability that we might get to do some fun driving tonight. <laughs> you and know? you would go fast. Yeah. Oh, cool. oh yeah, yeah. Like there was like yes, some sometimes he would dictate expedience. Interesting. Yeah, sometimes he would emphasize like I'm over here. How fast? Like he would like how fast can you get to me with the camera? And he wanted to know like like realistically like you're gonna be are you are you ninety minutes from getting to me with that car right now? Hmm. And he would start considering and calculating and mm. and you never signed an NDA. You're not violating an NDA no. right now. Talking about it. nope. Wild. And this is what I try to express to people is that the most secret stuff they would never come near you with an NDA. Because that's admitting to something going on. Hmm. And so you do this for a better part of like 10 years? like Less than that. Less than that, okay. Mm -hmm. And then you're just continuing to work as a plumber. Like mm -hmm. basically what is the gap from like the 2000s to 2010 when you get to the South Pole? Uh, just a different fistful of employers. Um, did about trying to get my own company off the ground. Uh, was pushing that angle until about 2008 when the Obama administration came in and totally devastated the New York economy. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, I started looking for other employment options, and that's when I came across the South Pole Station. You have some kids, like yep. life is going... Yep, life's just moving at the speed of life. Yeah, making pretty decent money. Making pretty decent money until the 2008 debacle yep. and everything tanked. Yep. And, you know, uh, my business acumen was for plumbing and heating service. And, you know, when the tides changed, I wasn't really, you know, like, oh, I'm some I'm some marketing whiz and I can just drum up, you know, a thousand clients. Like it, it wasn't that simple. So I started looking towards direct employment again. And unfortunately, I mean, there was literally like two jobs on the planet at that point. One of them was in Colorado. And I forget where the other one was actually at the time, but I looked into the one. It was some school district somewhere. And then the other one that was listed as Colorado, when I applied, they're like, we're not really Colorado-based. We're Antarctica and we're the this and the, the – and I was like, well, fuck that because I did not want to go to Antarctica yeah, and South course. Pole. I was just – that wasn't where you my brain two was two young at. kids in Long Island. You're not going to just It leave. wasn't my intention. Yeah. But then the other job didn't really pan out and then the Antarctica thing was the only thing really – left so f like is it free will that i went to antarctica it was literally the only company on the planet that would cut a check for me wow did i have free will to go there i would say it's highly questionable mm -hmm. i would say it's really possible i was set up to go to antarctica because hmm. they knew i had kids to feed and no other choice hmm. interesting yeah, so that's basically how I got my foot in the door in that program. And did you you had to do a job interview for that? I'm oh, absolutely. It was wildly extensive. Really? And I didn't even get picked up the first round. I applied one season, didn't even get picked up. But then because I had it on my radar, I tried again the next season, and it was the second round that I got snatched up in. 
Wow. And things move forwards, and then they bring you out to Colorado. You do all all kinds of testing, psychological evals. It was it was. I'm sure they a examine lot. your skills. They're like you know you go through some type of like skill assessment. Uh, well, that was more the interview process. Got they it. had one of their one of their hiring folks was uh, a tradesman, and we had a lot of communications on the phone about that, but no actual practical. Uh, tests, so to say. Mm -hmm. um, but there was uh, written exams. There was verbal conversations about stuff, mm. uh, full-blown uh, psyche vows that were hilarious. Um, and when I, when I went for the test, they give you uh, the Minnesota multiphasic test, which is like this psychological evaluation that was made up in the 1950s. And it's a joke, but it's like literally like many hundreds of questions and it's like multiple choice, like benign things you would think like, you know, um, would you rather be a carpenter or a florist? And then it asks you that like 16 different ways. Is it like remote viewing again? You're like, what the hell? <laughs> so they have this weird um, multiple choice test, but then they also pull you out of the room for a one-on-one -on -one psyche vow with a shrink. Mm-hmm. And I got pulled out, and the guy, it was so funny. <laughs> the guy's asking these questions. And, I mean, I had barely started the multiple choice, so it's not even like they could have had much to go off of when he pulled me into the room. But I remember one of the questions he asked me, he says straight up, he goes, he goes, um, he goes, have you ever considered homicide? I went, that depends on if you pass or fail me. And he got so, he went, blah, he got screwed to the ceiling when I said that. I'm like, I'm just kidding. That's I'm like, That's a good joke. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not going to kill you if you fail me. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, he was not laughing at all. He got really mad at oh, that. Oh, really? Yeah, he got like legitimately twisted. And what happened? I I kept laughing and trying to tell him I'm just kidding as he just got like more and more bent about how not funny it was for me to have done that. But you eventually got it though. I did eventually get the gig. Yeah. Wow. But it was In spite like, of you threatening to kill your <laughs> That's wild. That's wild. That's, that's how you know you're a good plumber. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so you get the gig, you basically are like, all right, I guess I'm going to go. Did you have second thoughts about it? Were you apprehensive? Or like once you finally were like, okay, this is my, I, my only know, chance. Like, I didn't really have any apprehensions. I just looked at it as my only option. So I just looked at it as like, I got to do what I got to do. I guess if I was to say like, if there was a time that I did have apprehension, I would say it was when we were switching from the summer season into the winter season. And we were at the point where... The last plane was leaving, and now it's just the 49 of us left at the South Pole. So watching that last plane leave, that was like tangible reality, like kicking in where I was like, that was the last, like, that's it. Now we're stuck here. Yeah. And that was like, that was weird. The silence kind of kicks in. The, and the reality of the decision. Yeah. Like, wow, I just I just chose to be stuck here for nine months. Like, that's the la that's the plane, like, where I up until that plane departing, you could have quit and been like, that's it. I changed my mind. I don't want to do this. But once that last plane leaves, that's it. Now you're stuck there. And you flew in. Yeah. Wow. From Argentina, I'm assuming? Uh, from uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. 
Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you go from New Zealand, you fly into... To McMurdo on the coast, and then from McMurdo inland to the South Pole. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so you make it to the South Pole. How long do you stay in McMurdo for? Oh, geez. I was... I don't think I spent... 12 hours in McMurdo on my way south to Pole, and same thing on the way out when I departed. So it's I literally spent, just a, a stop. Yeah, it was a pit stop for me both ways. Some people have um, a few days at McMurdo on either end. Mm-hmm. It just didn't work out that way for me. We just processed right through. Like, boom, get on this flight. Boom, get on that flight. And McMurdo, is that where most people go? If like they mm-hmm. go and visit or like if you're a scientist yes. you know, working it's, down there? It's the, it is the largest facility on the continent is my understanding. Got it. So if I were to go visit Antarctica for whatever mm-hmm. reason, I mm-hmm. probably would end up at McMurdo. Is yep. that fair to say? Yep, high Got probability. It. And do you feel like there's shadiness at McMurdo? Oh, absolutely. Really? I think everything going on in Antarctica is highly suspect. Interesting. And to and to support that, um, I've become friends with John Warner the Fourth, who is son of John Warner the Third, who was the former Republican senator for Virginia, and the former Secretary of the Navy, hmm. which puts him in charge of uh, Operation uh, Deep Freeze, which is the military's aspect in Antarctica for many years. Mm. Prior to passing away, John III was speaking to John IV, his son, about peculiarities in Antarctica. And John told me that his father had stated very clearly that there are submarine operations going on in Antarctica below the ice with peculiar tunnels and secret bases. And when he asked his father what was this going on for, his father said, space operations. And he told you this directly? Correct. And he said this before publicly. Wow. And what does that mean to you, space operations? A lot. (laughs) Again, we have no idea what's going on in this planet. On this people farm that we're on. There is off-world activities. Uh, Some people refer to it as a breakaway civilization, Mm -hmm. that there is a high level of technological advancement that only a small percentage of the people on this planet are aware of and privy to using. And a lot of it is happening from Antarctica. And so you seem to be suggesting that Antarctica appears larger on this map than most maps that we look at today. Correct. And you believe Antarctica is larger than it's presented? Than presented, yes. I see. They they don't want people to consider how massive it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I I believe because then questions get into, you know, I mean, how much resources – are available. Yeah. You know. And and what what leads you to believe that it's bigger than it actually is? The fact that they're trying to misrepresent it. Oh, I see. So some maps, because it shows it's larger and taking up more land mass. It shows it is smaller across the board. This is the first time I've seen a map that indicates 
more accurately the size than other maps. Interesting. I that's, mean, that's what caught my eye on this one. This is a, a problem with maps in general. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've looked into this. Like, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of like projection issues because yep. you're trying to shove a spherical thing on a flat surface. Correct. So as a result, like uh, I think people underestimate how large Africa is. Correct. And that like, or even Australia. Like mm -hmm. Australia is basically the size of North America or of mm -hmm. America. That you could overlay Australia and it's taking up the entirety of. Of, of America from, you know, New York to L.A. Yeah. Um, so I just think for the way that a lot of maps are projected, there's a lot of issues. Correct. And I, I'm just saying that uh, Antarctica is par for the course. They're yeah. very quick to misrepresent the continent of Antarctica. Yeah, which I guess, you know, I could kind of see as making sense if it's so insignificant and nothing's going on there and you never look there, yada, yada, no mm -hmm. one lives there, mm -hmm. then it doesn't even really matter. Just put a little yeah, just, white at the bottom. Just keep it off the radar. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's interesting. So you get there in 2010, mm -hmm. and uh, you know your contract is for about a year. Officially, when I first got there, I was contracted for the summer season and was trying to get a confirmation for the winter season, mm -hmm. and then I pulled it off. Got it. Mm -hmm. And legally, how long are you allowed to stay at the station for? Mm, I think, I think the most... It's, and it's not a legal thing. It's just a corporate decision thing. So I think between what they call like wind fly and starting, I think the most you can really be on ice in a single stint might be like 14 months. Okay. If you really show up at the front end and stay yeah. really late. And so <coughs> about a year, give or take, is yeah, like about the, much. the length. Mm -hmm. And they intentionally have that barrier because people start to go crazy a little bit. They get kooky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a different environment. It's sensory deprivation to a level that most people can't even comprehend doing without nowadays. Um, so it's uh, it's taxing. Yeah. And so what do you start to see and what do you start to notice once you get there, you're living there? What is that experience like? Austere conditions, I guess, would be the nice way of putting it. It's um, when I first showed up there. I was. It was the summer season, and we were sleeping in what they call Jamesways, but they're just they're arched tents from the Korean War. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's like you almost can't believe what's going on. You're like, wait a minute. I, I went to South Pole, and they, they stuck me in a tent. You're like, fuck. You know, it's like it's harsh. Yeah. Um, the From the knees down in the room was freezer temperatures. Really? Yeah. Like so, our beds were elevated to a height that they were like outside of that zone. Mm. But I didn't. I didn't realize for like the first few days there. Like, get out of work, sit in my bed, take my boots off, put them over in the corner, go to bed, wake up, put my boots on to go to the elevated station for breakfast. And by the time I'm halfway there, I'm like, man, my feet hurt. Right. Boots are frozen. I didn't, I wasn't dawning on me, but you're right. Wow. Like the boots at that position. And I finally, and everyone's like, oh, you're an idiot. You know, you got to tie your boots to the ceiling at night so they don't freeze. I'm like, oh, well, I wish someone told me that, wow. you know? So there was some trial and error stuff at the beginning that was like a, you know, a harsh learning curve to get yourself dialed in. But eventually you acclimate, you get things figured out. Mother nature doesn't hurt so much anymore and mm -hmm. you know you just go through the motions did you have worse conditions because of your status as sort of like a maintenance plumbing expert versus like a scientist 
Worst conditions, yes, because of uh, accommodations. Oh, interesting. I was lower on the food chain. So, yes, there was, you know, people um, that were scientists and stuff got to stay inside the elevated station, which mm. is like, you know, similar to a room at the pod. You know, oh, really? it's just it's just a basic tight quarters, you know, nothing fancy, but you get your own spot and it's not a tent. Yeah, it's warm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That whole heat thing is really cool. Yeah, it's nice, right? <laughs> and so you're you're staying, do you have roommates kind of in your little tent or is it a Yes. It was a big long tent. So an arch tent, like so imagine like this, but now um your room's over there, my room's over here. So there's a blanket hanging down in the middle as a divider. Wow. That's and what roommating was like. So I didn't have a roommate. Because yeah. I was the only person on my side of the blanket, but but you can hear that person breathing all night yeah, long yeah. from the other side of the blanket. And who? How was that guy? Did you like being with him? There's a whole tent. There's a whole, there's twenty people in the tent. Oh wow! With blanket dividers, so was, you heard everyone everywhere. And did you like your time with them? Was it cool? Yes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Like there the, was a camaraderie amongst. Those absolutely, folks. absolutely. So. Um, yeah, we we became a a tight knit group of folks. And what type of plumbing issues were you dealing with initially? Uh, running toilets, leaking urinals, just every single common plumbing issue that you would have anywhere else in the world was hmm. also going on there. You had boilers that you had to maintain. You had hot water production for showers that you had to maintain. We manufactured our own water out of melting the ice. So that wow. was a whole other system. It was just everything that you need for society. Any place where you have people, your level of civilization is limited by the excellence of your plumbing. Hmm. So in a remote location like this, you can you can really only accomplish so much as your plumbing system can. Wow. I mean, that's, you know, the Romans gave us aqueducts and everybody's like, yeah, aqueducts. Well, the other word for that is called plumbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we haven't changed much. We still no. Need yeah, you want to have civilization, you need quality plumbing. And is there still subterranean plumbing in Antarctica? Absolutely. And how do the pipes not just freeze immediately? Uh, because it's uh, they have a central pipe that is encased inside of a massive amount of insulation. Wow. And then just underneath the central pipe, there's two other littler pipes that run underneath that have heat trace in them. So it's literally a radiator. <coughs> Say that again? A radiator that's radiating the pipe kind of thing. Uh, similar, I guess you would say. It's, it's got a heat source. It is insulated. And then also the, the water piping is uh, recirculating. Mm. So if you're not running a faucet and the water stops flowing, um, that in and of itself, uh, still water wants to freeze faster than moving water. Mm -hmm. So if you can keep the water moving, so we had it recirculating, and the heat trace was heating it, so those two functions kept the lines from freezing. Insulation, movement, heat. Correct. Got it. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And so you're just doing regular kind of like plumbing maintenance work. Yeah, just keep keep that stuff going. I mean, sometimes the heat trace would go down. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the recirc pump would go down. Sometimes the primary water source. There's all kinds of things that could break that we had to deal with. Now, you had access to the whole facility. Correct. Did everyone else that was in your like sort of role also have full access? Uh, the utilities folks, yes. The repairmen, yes. Got it. Um, the non-repair folk, absolutely not. Mm. It was pretty strict. 
it was strict in as so far as key sets were only distributed to certain people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, they're not putting top secret signs on, but things were, um, I don't want to say need to know, but need to access. If you didn't have the need to access something, you didn't. Right. And no one really questioned it. They were they were getting ego stroked. Mm -hmm. So the scientists at South Pole Station were very compartmentalized, right, and very ego stroked because I breaching the doors of each compartment would lead the witness, so to say. Hey, tell me tell me about everything that's going on in this room, scientist. Hmm. And then they would proceed to come at me with, "Well, you may not know this, but my project is the most important project." Of the whole facility, and in reality, all these other departments are here to support my mission. But I'm hearing this from every single door that I walk in. And what are they saying that they're working on? Oh, um, looking for other stars, looking for other planets, that type of stuff. Hmm. Um, looking for neutrinos. Uh, looking in the atmosphere to make sure that, you know... Uh, the air is clean and things like that. All these different science things that they're they're all being ego fluffed and they're all being told this this is the most important thing. The, the other stuff, you know, yeah, we put money into it, but it's it's not as important as what you're doing. And do you believe these scientists that you spoke to are actually doing the work that they said that they're doing? Yes. Do you think that they're also doing other work? I don't. I think that the scientists are in a compartment that from their perspective, the system that they're working on does do the thing that it's supposed to be doing from their perspective. And they're not paying attention to what else it can do. And there's other people doing the secondary and tertiary options unbeknownst to the scientists who are doing the benign surface level stuff that's presented to the public. I see. So if I sat down with one of these scientists and mm -hmm. they go, yeah, of course, I know Eric. I was there mm -hmm. in 2010. He came in. Mm -hmm. We had a nice chat. Mm -hmm. And I said, are you working on, you mm -hmm. know, directed energy weapons? Oh, they would say absolutely not. And they would be telling the truth. Correct. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And this is how plausible deniability works. Right. And why they do these things. Hmm. Like this is it in a nutshell. But you kind of had access. Did you have access to the secondary and tertiary yes. scientists? Yes. And how did you know what they were working on was, you know. Because we discussed it. And what did they say? That you need to pay attention to what's really going on. And we communicated about what these systems really do. And they told you this? Correct. And, and, and what words did they tell you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be as unspecific as saying in very specific terms. This is when I learned about um, the ability for the ice cube neutrino detector to transmit. And I'll go so far as saying that I have come to learn that myself and other members of my crew are negatively impacted in our health by functioning these devices. So it was in that collective of... What did they do to us mm. that we had to start figuring out what's really going on? And I had crew that had reached out to me who was having negative health issues, and they were curious as to where I was at. And it was in this exchange that I kind of was like, listen, dude, I can 
see that there's other stuff going on. And what were their symptoms? Um, I don't want to get into that because it's their it's health stuff. So this is HIPAA protected. What I would say at this point is it's the standard list of items that we see being discussed is what we contemporarily call Havana syndrome symptoms, which are the list of directed energy weapon stuff. Interesting. <coughs> yeah. in, a, in a general sense of the term, you could say um, mental degradation, um, skin issues, uh, tinnitus, um, vertigo, maybe yes, headaches. All, all of like all of these things. Um, I've had a, a Mark Polymeropoulos, a former CIA operative, that's now a whistleblower for Havana Syndrome. He came. Oh, on, there you he, go. He came so, on the show. I would I would just say go go with that list. Got it. That's what was happening to my crew. That's what's happening to myself, and what got us discussing what's really going on at this facility. You also had some of these symptoms. Absolutely and correct. Did you start to ask some of these scientists, like, "Hey, all of our guys are getting sick. Like, what's going on?" Or did I you- went I went through the gamut. I discussed with certain people that we had inquiries going on with the crew. Some people are hurt. Some people have questions. There's there's some people from my crew that are young and dead already, and it doesn't make sense. Not of you know self-inflicted or no, you know, not of self-inflicted, but like but yes, but of peculiar health stuff that seems premature. Um, as an example, um, my winter oversight manager. This is something you could look up if you want to look up. Yeah. Um, Renee Nicole Dussure. Okay, can we include her name? Absolutely. Okay. This is this is public info because she went public during my winter season. She, I'm sorry. Can you say her name again? Renee mm-hmm. Nicole, mm-hmm. and then it's Ducier. I believe it's D O U C E E R. Okay. So if you type in that name along with South Pole Station, you're going to start getting a whole bunch of uh, news articles from 2011, where she was trying to get herself evac'd from the South Pole Station. Hmm. Now that might not seem odd to anybody else in this conversation. It's extremely odd to me. Because this is the person who hired me. Oh, really? You knew her personally? I, she was my, yes, I knew her personally. I trained with her to go to the South Pole. She was my winter site manager during the South Pole. She was the incident commander for when we had emergencies. This is a person that I spent a year with there. So I can read some of this article if you'd like. Absolutely. This is, this is from NBC News. Mm-hmm. A sick American engineer who had been working at the South Pole for a year has been successfully evacuated and said, Monday, she slept for a whole plane ride to New Zealand for medical treatment. Renee Nicole Dussieur described the flight in an email to the Associated Press. My brain is still intact, she wrote. She said she is scheduled for a test on Tuesday. She's 58 from Seabrook, New Hampshire. Uh, She's a research station contractor for Raytheon Polar Services. She asked for an emergency evacuation after after having what doctors believe was a stroke, but officials rejected her request because of bad weather, saying that sending a rescue plane was too dangerous and that her condition wasn't life-threatening. Doctors say she contacted for a second opinion, uh, say a tumor may have caused her vision and speech problems. After initially having half of her field of vision vanished, Osior said last week she can now read if she concentrates on just a few words at a time. She, she said she sometimes jumbles words and has had trouble remembering simple lists of words during medical evaluations. The list goes on and the article continues. That's very interesting. So I don't doubt that she was negatively impacted by something during our time at the South Pole Station. Hmm. I believe that she, in her injured state, started trying to figure out what happened to her. And off of the list of possibilities of what she could consider, she aligned it to having a stroke. That was Mm. her choice. There was no doctor 
on site that said that they believed she had a stroke. Hmm. Our facilities on site, we did not have any equipment to confirm nor deny her assessment of herself having a stroke. When she did leave the ICE and did go to Johns Hopkins University to have an assessment, their assessment stated that she absolutely did not have a stroke. So I would suggest with all the things that I have connected that what she simply was experiencing was the end result of directed energy weapons systems fire. Have you spoken to her? Uh, no. Have you reached out? Negative. We were not on good terms. Oh, interesting. Correct. Okay. Just a personal. Just, just is. Yes, we we over the course of that year became less friendly. I understand. With each other, we started out chummy, you know, train, do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but then over the course of that year, um, she's not a person that I would say that I saw eye to eye with, and we butted heads often. Related to. Uh, Work stuff, professionals, just complete okay. differences of opinion on how to do stuff. Totally fine. Yeah, just professional discrepancies. Interesting. But with that being said, um, she's still part of my crew, mm -hmm. of which I would say that we were in it together, so mm -hmm. to say, and that what they did to her is what they did to everyone else, and all of that was wrong. Interesting. And you were there when she was evacuated? Yep. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So you remember her leaving, being like, yeah, "Absolutely." She's in, and did you see her before she left? Oh, every day. And she was in bad shape. Absolutely. Wow. She, uh, she, they, they drugged her, like straight up. I don't know what they gave her, but she. I mean, like I had said to you before, uh, the term was toasty. So we were joking. Obviously, she had something else major wrong, but we were joking at the time that she was losing it. But there was also concerns because we we were told that in case of an emergency, like a super-duper emergency, that there was a pistol on the facility. But technically, she was the one in charge of it. So it got to the point where everybody's like, well, she's losing her mind, and she's the one with the pistol. And then the surgeon at one point just apparently made the decision that she's better off just being doped up. And at some point they gave her something and you could walk past her in the hallways and it was like you were invisible. Whoa. She didn't even see you anymore. She was in a, she was in a different world. Maybe it was just you. Maybe she didn't like you. <laughs> she was, every, everyone was invisible to her at that point. And that's how – she didn't like me at that yeah. point in time. And that's how I knew the invisibility was working because I could walk right by her and not get the dirty looks that I was used to getting. Yeah. Oh, that's so wild. Yeah. And so to take it back, these secondary <coughs> and uh, tertiary scientists that are doing the real kind of nefarious work, mm -hmm. as you claim, mm -hmm. they were telling you – kind of what was actually going on in specific terms. Like, yep. hey, here's the deal. Here's yep. what's going this on. This is what we can also do. And is there a reason, and again, you don't have to go into mm -hmm. the details, but is there a reason that you're sort of being vague about like what they said word for word? Is there yes, a, a because I don't. I do, well, it's not so much a legal thing. It's just that uh, I don't want to get back to them. A lot of this stuff that I communicated was in good faith that I would move forwards with this information. And that they don't want their name associated with it. Got that it. They, they're they choosing to be not as bold in action. Sure. And I'm choosing to be on point. And that's just the way that it works right now. 
And so, and you know their names. Like, oh, absolutely. If you were subpoenaed by some higher court to disclose everything. I might forget them. I understand. Yeah, fuck them. I just, at this stage of the game, like, I mean, I have a lot of problem with how this went down. Yeah. I'm, I'm not here to help the enemy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, this is this is a fight right now. Yeah. For the for the consciousness of humanity that we were discussing earlier. Mm-hmm. This is just now uh, where we're at now. Interesting. So you're speaking with them. They're telling you kind of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like they feel a guilt associated with absolutely? What they're doing? But absolutely. They, but they're doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And these are qualified, very excellent scientists. I'm assuming. You know, they're not necessarily scientists. That term's thrown around loosely in the program. There's few scientists in the program. There's more support staff. These are technicians, I guess. They would be tradesmen by some definition. Interesting. That, you know, you could say that, you know, guys are repairmen of a computer system that a scientist is working on. I understand. Well, the scientist is an operator mm-hmm. for what they're told the system can do. If it turns out that the actual repairman of that system knows it a lot more profoundly and can accomplish more mm-hmm. with that technology than the scientist, that's also reality. Right. Everybody thinks, well, the scientist is so smart because he can move the dials and you know get a reading. Really? But if the machine breaks, what does he do? Mm. He calls the repairman. You think the repairman doesn't know how to do everything that scientist can do with that machine? Hmm. Of course he does, because he's the one that can repair it. He's got to know all the bells and the whistles. Hmm. So it'll be that person who knows the secondary and tertiary tasking that can be accomplished. And it'll be that person that's representing some alphabet agency under false pretenses of wearing, oh, I got to... I'm with Raytheon Polar Services. I couldn't possibly work for the CIA because hmm. then I'd have to wear that hat. No, of course. These, there's a lot of factions that are operating under false pretenses. Interesting. So just like I was saying before, when you have buildings and facilities and industrial complex things right under your nose because they're not going to write DARPA mm-hmm. or CIA research building. Right. Same thing, they could send employees into these things and they don't have to be wearing their CIA hat. Right. Hmm. So these guys kind of tell you what the deal is and mm-hmm. what's going on. And are you kind of scared when you hear that? Are you shaken? Are you like... I'm more disturbed Yeah. that I was tricked into such a circumstance because mm-hmm. it made me uh, very aware that this could happen to other people. Right. And now you're kind of aiding and abetting this Correct. thing that, Technically. You, that you no longer really support. Right. And you thought you were going to go help some penguin scientists. Correct. And now all of a sudden you're... Yeah, now all of a sudden we're dealing with, you know, earthquake devices, ELF systems, mind yeah. control. Uh, the, the ELF system, that's that's something that I came across with my own direct firsthand experience. Can you? What is an ELF system? ELF system is, uh, again, a directed energy weapons platform. So we have the whole gamut of what that could be. Do you know what it stands for, ELF? Uh, extra low frequency is my understanding. Okay. The it's so it's a it's a long uh, sine wave. Yes, thank you. And it has been suggested in so many different research papers and things that it's that this ELF band can be used to functionally get in there. 
amongst other things. But more specific to this story was just simply that I learned through my own direct firsthand experience that the ELF system at the South Pole Station, which we were told is off, is not off. So again, what's with the deception? What's with the subterfuge? If it's such a benign system, why are you lying about it being operational? And so what is the cover for what this ELF system does? Um, the cover would be that it is observing the magnetosphere of the planet. Okay. And so uh, do, do you, what does that mean? Do you know what that means? It means that they're concerned with uh, how the energy coming off of the sun engages the magnetosphere of the planet and I guess for lack of the proper terms, more or less uh, reshaping it or burning it off. Hmm. Um, and so these waves are able to detect that. Um, this antenna can detect that. The I ELF is, is basically a, a massive antenna embedded in the ice. I understand. Is there a reason it has to be in Antarctica, this ELF system? Mm, I wouldn't know the answer to that one, but I just suspect that the remoteness from all other interfering frequencies is the benefit. Interesting. And do you think there's more that exist around the world mm -hmm. in other remote places? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Interesting. <coughs> and they're all, quote unquote, according to you, you know, testing the magnetosphere of the... Oh, I don't know or, that or, that's what they're all doing. Sorry, not I according to you, but that would be the cover. There's multiple covers as well. Submarine communications. There's, there's all kinds of things. That's, this is one of the things that we have to realize with this new direction of technology is that things are way more multifaceted than we're familiar with considering. Hmm. I see. So it's, something can be used for two purposes. And, and then some. All right. day long. This lighter I have next to me can be used for lighting a candle. It can also be used to burn down this building. Correct. The, in that capacity. That yep. makes sense. Is that, yes. All of these energy things are not singular. I see. And that, which adds to the plausible deniability because when it can do all of these things, mm -hmm. you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a lot to unpack. And so why are you so confident that this ELF is being used to, you know, be a weapon against humanity? Because they're lying about it being on. Mm. If it was if it was completely positive and benign, then they'd be advertising it on. They wouldn't be trying to tell everyone it's off. Okay. I mean, they they put a lot of time and effort into telling us it's not on. And Long story short, when I went to go do a repair, I had to, uh, there was a pump that I had to swap out. Okay. So, and it's just so funny because I've told the story a bunch of times and I get all kinds of heat in the comment section because they're like, oh, this guy's such a liar because why would a plumber ever touch electrical? And it's like, okay, just do me a favor and stop presenting your ignorance to the equation. Here's the easy answer. Plumbers change pumps out. Pumps have electricity on them. So in order for me to change the pump out, I got to take the electrical off. Mm. It is literally that simple. So in order for me to disconnect the electrical from a pump, I got to go back to a circuit breaker panel and kill the power. Mm. This is completely standard work stuff. Lock out, tag out, kill the circuit breaker, de-energize the equipment, pull the pump out, re-energize, uh, reconnect the uh, power to the equipment, 
take the lockout tag out off, re-energize it, and test your work. Cool. <coughs> in this process for this pump swap, I had to go to the circuit breaker panel and confirm positive power isolation. When I got to the breaker panel, things weren't labeled correctly to give me pause. <coughs> I started looking. I said, this doesn't really match. And this looks like it goes to this circuit, but it doesn't make sense because this one here that's labeled off is actually on. So now I got curiosities and I got to run it up the chain of command because something doesn't seem right. I bring in my facilities engineer to go through the circuits with me. <coughs> and I find out that the circuit that was labeled off but was in fact on and energized was the ELF. And at that point, I was just directed to go back to the circuit that I am working on mm -hmm. because I've now confirmed that that is the right circuit so I can kill that breaker and I can safely do my work. So it's the end of your conversation in this breaker panel you know everything you need to know now to do your job. Go mm -hmm. away is basically what I was at. But mm -hmm. in that exchange, I now learned the ELF at South Pole Station is absolutely on. Hmm. So now that brings us back to Occam's Razor and what's everything that's possible with a directed energy weapon system that's energized at the South Pole. Hmm. And it appears to be a lot. Is it possible that it's getting power but it's not on? Uh, yeah, I mean, just like you could have, um... Like, this light over here is plugged in. Correct. So it's like But you're not actively it. using right. it. Right, so it's pulling a draw from the circuit. The breaker would be on for it. Right, but it's, the, the light isn't on because we can see the switch is off. Understood. And so is there a way to test that or to know that based off of your experience? Yes, and I did learn that it was energized oh, really? and functioning because of when I found out the primary cover story of... Measuring this magnetosphere was ongoing. Mm. So they admitted that what their use case was for it. They admitted a use case for it. So I can get confirmation that, yes, the circuit was energized. And B, it was also being used for at least one actionable, observable scientific experiment. And you asked one of the scientists there, and they said, yes, it is. I learned what scientist was doing what with it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and how can you conclude that it's nefarious, just from the fact that they were being sneaky about it being on or off? Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's pretty much how life works. When people are up to no good, they try to hide it. Mm -hmm. That's my experience. Interesting. Yeah, maybe. I could see that. Yeah, I wonder if there's like a... Another explanation for that, like if there's like a different. It sure, it yeah. sure would be nice if when people were hiding stuff from us that we ever learned it was good. Yeah. But how often does that happen? Mm -hmm. I think my position is the more realistic one than yours, which is optimistic. Right. Maybe. Yeah, I could. See I that. mean, I get the desire for optimism at this point, but I would say that's just being naive. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And so the ELF, if it's on getting power they're lying about it being on but it is actually being mm -hmm. on when we look at the list of all negative things that are possible that you can do with an elf mm -hmm. gives us a motive for why they might be lying about it being on i see 
And then what can you do with the LF? You said if you direct it at a person, like how does, do you know the logistics? As, as an example, the University of Wisconsin-Madison mm -hmm. is the arm of academia that's in charge of the ice cube neutrino detector. I just came across an article where the University of Wisconsin-Madison is doing research where they can communicate with you, have a dialogue <coughs> with you in your head while you are having lucid dreams and sleeping. Right. That is directed energy weapons application in real life, to be able to put somebody else's voice into your head, to be in there and communicating back and forth. No. So you're telling me that right here they're doing it. Oh, they're, we're working on the science of it over here. But this multi-billion dollar device, which we also run, mm -hmm. that according to patents and technology could be doing that thing that we're studying over here. But we're definitely not doing what we're doing over here, over here. Because mm. that would be wrong. I see. To so, be experimenting on people unbeknownst to them with a new level of technology that they never even heard of. Mm -hmm. That's not even on anyone's radar anywhere. So it also means it's wholly unregulated. Mm -hmm. Because if nobody knows this stuff exists yet, then it's not regulated. Right. So from their perspective, are they doing anything wrong? I see. Legally, it's not against no. Anyone. Right. They're not even breaking any laws yet. Hmm. So, is the ELF different than the Ice Cube? Uh, Absolutely, detector? completely two different systems. I see. Okay. So, mm -hmm. just for the ELF, mm -hmm. if it's targeted at someone, mm -hmm. that would be like an like a directed energy weapon that could Absolutely. cause. If I can take a technology, right, mm -hmm. and I can connect to your thoughts, and have input in that dialogue. I mean, really think about how powerful of a tool this is. And you can do that with the ELF? Yeah. Oh, really? There's, there's uh, an article that came out. I, I forget. I think I might have mentioned it on the Sean Ryan show. Yes. The McDonald's Corporation. Again, this is, this, this is all the same tech. McDonald's Corporation was talking about how they're going to start research and development to be able to put their commercials in your brain while you're sleeping. Yeah, I've seen uh, – I saw a patent for something like that. Right. I mean – Think about what the hell is going on with these statements like this, right? Is that, is that, that I think I did see an image about that's this. That's technology. That's, I mean, this is straight up a directed energy weapons attack. Yeah, I'm going to Google that really quick. Go I, ahead. I, I remember seeing the picture for it where it's like a guy in front of the TV or something. It's like. I don't even remember that, but yeah. Me, but now me. think about this, right? So imagine if you had that power at mm -hmm. your disposal. Would you be able to get more people to show up to your shows? Oh hell yeah! You know what I'm saying? So you think, <laughs> right? So you think these other people aren't using these things for their own benefit? Mm -hmm. I mean, if the McDonald's Corporation could make everybody wake up and be like, "Man, I can go for an egg McMuffin," mm -hmm. you think they're not going to do it? Yeah, this is a an article from Popular Mechanic. Um, the headline is basically "Advertisers are hijacking your dreams." Mm -hmm. Um, the next frontier isn't virtual reality or holograms, it's your dreams. In an open letter published to the website, DXE, scientists decry the concept of dream advertising, whereas in, wherein company engineers engineer ads into your subconscious through audio and video clips. Not only does the practice already exist, they say in the letter, but a beer company has even publicly tested it earlier this year. 
Um, the article goes on. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested in reading the rest of this article, but yep. I, I do remember hearing about this. So now, kind of following thing. this logic, right? If the McDonald's Corporation and a beer corporation is getting access to this technology today, mm-hmm. I'm going to just suggest that the technology has existed for at least two decades mm-hmm. in the application in the people around us, but just not by the companies we would think of. Mm-hmm. And it was probably military industrial contractors. Hmm. Okay. Because if McDonald's is getting access to that now, if McDonald's has the ability to put a Big Mac commercial in your head, mm-hmm. you think there's other people with greater ideas that they want in your head that haven't already been doing this? Right. So again, this is where we're at in this world. What do we do with the idea that there's a high probability that these invasive technologies have already been in play for at least two decades? Mm-hmm. That your dreams have not been free and clear. And this is by using ELF frequencies. By using directed energy weapons by many definitions. Okay. I, I, I don't want to keep trying to reduce things down to singular answers when it's more complex than that. That's all. Okay. Because then what people will do is try to take that one thing and and attack that one thing when they, they don't even – like. I don't want to pretend that I know everything about these things, but I don't want anybody else to start trying to – um, whittle out what's possible just off of speculating. Yeah, that's fine. That makes you know? sense. Yeah, yeah. So the ice cube neutrino detector, mm-hmm. that was that a different thing? And what did that do? Did you see it's, that? It is, it's a completely different item than the ELF, absolutely. Okay. Did you want to go on that and explain kind of what that is now? Um, it's Again, it's just a directed energy weapons platform. It's the, it is the world's largest phased array transmitter. Mm-hmm. And the transmitter part is the part that I disclosed to the world because I provided documentation that shows that. But now they're actually talking about making this system 10 times larger than what it currently is. Mm-hmm. So again, this points to peculiarity because, I mean, it's like everything else. What's the return on investment? If it costs us $300 billion to get it to where it is right now, what's the return on that investment? Is Hmm. investing 10 times – what are we getting out of this? Hmm. And I do not believe that what we're being shown as its primary and exclusive task um, qualifies the investment. So the, I think it's the secondary and tertiary uses that they don't want to discuss, which is where they get their return on investment when, you know, when you say, oh, well, we're using it to find a neutrino. Well, what's the, what's the value of finding a neutrino? What is a neutrino? <coughs> a neutrino is a near or massless particle that moves um, just below, at, or beyond the speed of light. Hmm. In the passive use of the detector, the idea is that a neutrino comes and impacts with the nucleus of an ice molecule at the South Pole. There's a reaction which has Sharonkov radiation, which is a blue light flash occurs, and then both the neutrino and the nucleus um, disappear, and a muon is created, which is a different particle. Effectively, the neutrino detector is looking for the blue flash of light. That's what it's doing in its passive application. The way that it receives the light is what they call a DOM, which is roughly that diameter, maybe bigger. Mm -hmm. 
about the size of a basketball. And inside that dom, there's 5,160 of these doms embedded in the ice in the length and width and depth fashion. Each one of those doms can transmit now, and that's the, the secret here is that, you know, in one breath, they're calling it a, a receiver, basically. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that it can transmit. So now when you have uh, up to 2,047 volts per dom for transmittability, now you you apply that over the field of these DOMs, which is 5,160 of them, and that's basically what you call a phase array transmitter. Interesting. And they're looking for these blue lights because they're trying to detect these MEONs? Is that what they're called? Uh, neutrinos. They're, they're trying to detect the neutrinos clashing with the nucleus to create... To create the muon. And what is the cover for that? Like, what, is, what does that do? Do you know? That's what I was saying is unjustifiable. And so what? We found a neutrino. Now what? Is there any purpose or use for neutrinos as far as you're informed? Not according to what they're telling us. Hmm. So that's why I say it's, it, it makes no sense to be spending all of this money. Oh, we're, we're trying to find neutrinos. Cool. How much for how many? Yeah. Is it really worth that? Or what's really going on? I'm sure you've Googled this, like what neutrinos do. Or like if they're... If they like smack into <laughs> nucleuses and turn into muons and yeah. make a blue flash of light. And, there, and there's no functional purpose for identifying muons. They claim that it's going to help us find the keys to the cosmos and understand things more. But what has it really done? It's, hmm. it's been 12 years since they turned the thing on. Hmm. What have we learned? Was it worth the investment? I see. And that's what I'm saying. No, we haven't learned much and it wasn't worth the investment. And so each of these things can detect... A blue flash of light. Neutrinos. But according to you, they can also, and according to the, the document, they can also transmit Correct. 2,000. Up to, the roughly. power output is up to 2,047 volts per DOM. And how much is 2,047 volts? I don't really know anything. One about more than 2,046. <laughs> I mean. Is yeah. it like a car battery or is it like. Um, well, it's more than a car battery. A car battery is 12 volts. Okay. Um, I think it has more to do with the fact of the shape of it. And when you get into the idea of phased array, so it has to do more with it being like this very tunable discharge of energy. Mm -hmm. So again, this is where the, the, the science is way ahead of what average people know. I think of, I, I put it like it's almost like when Nikola Tesla showed up and was like, bam, I give you electricity. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> for starters, at the time, that conversation was public. And as much as people were using electricity that was offered to them at that point, did they really understand what they were using? Mm -hmm. Was the vernacular common amongst everybody right off the bat? No. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we are right now with these new technologies, these new energy weapons, is that first and foremost, we're not even getting a real public disclosure on what's going on. Right. Which makes us even further away from the average person even understanding what's being discussed. Mm. It's as peculiar to the contemporary mind to consider directed energy weapon systems as it was to the average citizen way back when when Tesla showed up and was like, electricity. I see. 
the, it takes years before a society can even comprehend these things. They have to have a certain amount of saturation mm-hmm. to the idea. And we're at a point in time where we don't have enough of a saturation rate for people to wholly understand what's going on. Interesting. They so, just have to realize it's real mm-hmm. and start having these considerations. So just to get everyone on board that's listening that might not understand mm-hmm. what these like ice cube neutrino detectors are, you basically mm-hmm. have these giant basketballs that can detect blue light, mm-hmm. and basically through this detection, they're able to come to some sort of conclusion. They can triangulate the direction from which the neutrino came. They have thousands of them that are going lengthwise, widthwise, and vertically, yep. creating a so, giant cube. Basically. So when the blue light occurs inside the antenna array, the DOMs, because of proximity to the blue flash, um, they, how do I put it? They would say like light up in a in a bloom. So you get um, in the array, each of the DOMs affected by the light will indicate that they were impacted by the light. Mm-hmm. So a pattern shows up in that. Exchange, mm-hmm. and then they can which map it. Then they can triangulate from what direction that neutrino came, and then the idea that they present is that we're so interested in where neutrinos come from because that'll teach us about high energy things going on in the cosmos. I see, and that's what they presented as. And they should just be detectors that are then <coughs> receiving this information and then delivering it to some centralized database that then they can triangulate and mm-hmm. map where the neutrinos are coming from. Yep. But it seems like they're also able to put out energy Correct. at a pretty high rate Correct. per you know detector, mm-hmm. little basketball thing. Yep. And if I'm understanding correctly, when that thing is powered on, it could basically send all that energy in this giant, you know, Deep yes, cube looking. It's uh, it's like being able to fire the DOMs in a transmitting capacity, and the way that the phase array transmitter has benefit is that there's a way to like I guess you would say almost like shape, direct, and send the energy. Okay, that's kind of the point of the phase array transmitter is having that pointability of it. And then you're able to point it at a different at a target, and then basically create an earthquake in that space. Is that true? That's one of the things it can do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you had said before that the earthquake in New Zealand mm-hmm. uh, was the result of this thing powering on. Correct. And why are you able to draw that conclusion? Because I was informed of it by knowledgeable crew hands that said that's exactly what we did. Oh, really? And what? And was it intentional? No, it was not. Okay. And so they basically powered this thing on. It created a electrical They output. were trying to take a shot at something. Oh, really? Absolutely. But they misfired. So it would just be like if you built a gun. Mm. And you, you said, ah, I just designed this gun. And now I want to see how accurate it is. Well, you're going to get a target, and you're going to aim for the bullseye, and you're going to pull the trigger, and you're going to see how far off the mark you are. Wow. And then that's what we have sights for. Then you adjust the sights until you're on target. Mm-hmm. But regardless, you still got to pull the trigger a couple of times and see where you hit the paper at. Yeah. So the only thing they were doing was pulling the trigger on their gun and finding out that they were off target. Hmm. And they had to dial it in. Hmm. And people that you trust on mm-hmm. the on the station told you this. Correct. And these are scientists, technicians, some something of the sort. These are people from my crew that were there. These put it this way: 
these are the people that know because these are the people that are there. Yeah. And what we're experiencing, uh, a lot of contemporarily, or I should say a lot of folks contemporarily seem to have a lack of respect for people with direct firsthand experience. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, who else are you going to believe about what's going on in South Pole? Someone from South Pole or someone not from South Pole? Right. If you want to find out what's going on in the moon, do you want to talk to someone who's been to the moon or someone who's researched what's going on on the moon? Mm-hmm. So I'm coming from an angle of I was there. I worked with the people who were there. The firsthand people Correct. that saw it. And then they told you. Correct. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So this is, you know, this is what people, you know, everybody always says, you know, if this if this was going on, somebody would have said something. Well, there are people saying stuff. Hmm. So you are obviously one of the people that's saying stuff. Correct. Who else? So there are other people that are kind of out? I'm working on getting more people to speak their mind. Really? Mm-hmm. And are, are they a little resistant? Uh, I found a couple of folks that are less resistant than other people previously were. Interesting. So I'm looking forward to hopefully getting more um, folks into the conversation. Interesting. Okay. And so that's sort of how the ice cube neutrino detector works, more or less. That's like how the, you know, the cover works for mm-hmm. what they claim it does and mm-hmm. then what you believe it's also doing mm-hmm. as a directed energy weapon. Yep. And who controls that? Uh, currently Lockheed Martin now. Hmm. When so, I was there, it was Raytheon Polar Services, and now Lockheed has the contract. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the the next party that is in charge of the National Science Foundation contract for Antarctica, the United States Antarctic Program, um, will somehow be a weapons builder again. Hmm. But it's pretty much United States corporations that are mm-hmm. in control of it. Yep. Is it fair to say that they're doing the United States bidding? I think it's actually bigger than that. I think that we, the average citizen of this planet, that we look at national borders in a different way than the people that own the factions that are under false pretenses operating as nation states. Mm-hmm. When those folks don't really care about these, you know, imaginary lines on maps and mm-hmm. your country, my country. Interesting. These, yeah. So they just see allyship and sort of uh, yeah, unification amongst forces. Yeah. More uh, than borders. So they're not looking at Britain versus England and the culture. Yeah, I think, like I think the team. nation states are similar to like football teams and stuff like mm-hmm. it's gung-ho hoorah this is my team versus your team but in reality there's you know there's a bigger con job going on right yeah i get that yeah i, I could see i could see that in a, in a large regard i mean obviously all the borders that we have are just yeah i mean like i said earlier deciding. we got you know we have um politicians from the united states that are in the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations. There's politicians from other countries in those same groups. Mm-hmm. And this is why we have to be concerned because when politicians from China and politicians from the U.S. are in the Trilateral Commission and the CFR, and we see that the those factions are having their quarterly and annual literature put out that state, like... What, th- what we think would be best for the world is doing this. And then all of a sudden the nation states start doing what those groups say. Mm. 
I mean, what other indicators do we need to see that the nation states are are puppets mm-hmm. for other factions? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I don't really take issue with that. Yeah, yeah it's that, just I think it's, that makes sense. There's a there's a big con job going on. Yeah, yeah. I think the way that we see borders is probably different than how you know powerful people and corporations see borders. I think totally. Makes, I think that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of the geopolitics of Antarctica, mm-hmm. the people that control it, there's like a board, I guess. There's corporations that get contracts. Who do they get the contracts from? Do you know? From the National Science Foundation. Basically, Congress cuts a check to the National Science Foundation to cover the United States Antarctic program. And then the National Science Foundation distributes those funds accordingly through third-party contractors to get the job done. Got it. And then who's at the top of the National Science Foundation? Is it different kind of like appointed people from different governments? No, that's that's wholly a U.S. institution. Okay. Yeah, the National Science Foundation operates under the auspices of an American uh, arm of the government. So could you say that America kind of like sort of runs what's going on in Antarctica? But I would definitely say that they, uh, at face value, that's how it presents Very, for sure. Yeah. But I, I suspect that it's a lot more complex than that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of talked about the ELF, mm-hmm. those weapons getting... You know, th- those things being used as weapons, as mm-hmm. directed energy against people. Um, the ice cube neutrino detectors. Is there a third thing? I think you had mentioned one other thing uh, that was being used basically as a, as a directed energy oh, weapon. There was um, – this is actually really interesting. So when I went to Washington, D.C. and gave my testimony there, I did bring up – it was way, amazing to me because this is, again, like it's – I feel like sometimes like I make I make bold statements where it's like it just it is what it is like this is what I saw and there's nothing that I can do to prove it to you but this is what I saw. So mm-hmm. one of the things <coughs> I witnessed at the South Pole on occasion. It wasn't something I saw all the time, but we had a particular building that I witnessed this green laser beam mm-hmm. shooting out of the building going off into the upper atmosphere and um through my research, I suspected that there was, like everything else there, secondary and tertiary stuff beyond what was presented. And I testified to this, and I came across research that said, you know, there's a such thing as, you know, laser communications, chemical lasers, there's all this stuff. And now there's science supporting the speculations that I made way back when. And the really funny thing was when I gave my testimony in D.C. was in early June. Of what year? Uh, this past two, 2023. Mm. So I gave this testimony. I brought up this green laser. And it was just a week or so later that I had my birthday. And on my birth, somebody sent me a link. On my birthday... The National Science Foundation, so they they can put anything they want on their website. On my birthday, they put up a picture (laughs) of the Atmospheric Research Observatory firing its green laser into the atmosphere. And I was like... (laughs) Happy birthday to me. I still got got friends in the program that were like, Hecker just went on air and brought up the laser. Let's hook him up and let's just post, let's just put the picture out there so that one one more feather in his cap that he's not nuts. Did you you ask him about it? 
Ask who? I guess it, oh, did you know who was running the... I have no idea who posted that picture, but I couldn't, you couldn't convince me that that was not some friend in the program that was just like, here you go. Hmm. Here's a freebie for you. The other day, you went to D.C. and brought up the green laser. Happy birthday. Here's a picture of it. Hilarious. For anyone that doesn't believe what you just said. Hmm. And they knew it was your birthday and posted it. I think so. <laughs> and what is a green laser for? Do you like What, the, what do they so, say it's for? Uh, a lot of folks will say that it is for um, atmospheric research. Okay. Which is on the on the list of things that it can do. Sure. But then we have to look deeper as to what else is possible. And what else do you think it can do? Long-range communications over great distances. Hmm. I believe we have an off-world fleet of vehicles that are actively involved with intergalactic trade. Hmm. And the powers that be that are operating at that level have basically just monopolized technology for their profiteering. And it's just that simple. And so this intergalactic fleet, mm -hmm. are they human or are they non-human? It's us. You think it's humans? It's us from this planet. At living in like a space station? Mining somewhere out in the solar system. Huh. And when do you think they went there? 60 years ago. Oh, really? You think it was like as a part of like our space program? In Absolutely. The our space program as presented is to... Um, keep us from knowing what they're actually doing to make it look like this is the limit of what we can do this is the front cutting edge hmm. when it's a, it's a farce what they're doing is a million fold more complex hmm. and so they're far off absolutely yep and and what makes you believe that a lot of research mm-hmm like if I wanted to look that up or like if there's like supporting evidence for something like uh, that. Look into folks like uh, Joseph P. Farrell, mm -hmm. Walter Bosley. There's a lot of researchers that are doing uh, great work on proving. Uh, Michael Schratt, uh, there's paperwork trails for all kinds of technologies and things that people just aren't privy to. Hmm. Anti-gravity exists. Well, what do we do if we have anti-gravity? Well, then we go into space. Well, if I have anti-gravity, why am I going to let you know I have anti-gravity when I can go get all the stuff out there and leave you in the dark? Interesting. So the, is America kind of keeping this covert to not let other— there's, there's factions around the whole planet. It's not even just America. You think other factions also have off— Absolutely, because these the, the, the geographical borders mean nothing. It's not an American thing. That's what it's I mean. It's an elitist thing. There's a— there's an aspect of humanity that is beyond national borders, and they are part of a breakaway civilization doing things that we, the average mortgage payer, have never even brought our ideas up to considering. And they keep it covert from mm -hmm. other factions. Uh, I don't think so. I think there's so many factions doing this stuff that there's more or less, like, just like every, like, Coke wants to know what Pepsi's doing. Pepsi wants to out mm -hmm. I think that's more of what's going on is that even at that uh, breakaway level, um, there's still factions vying to be king of the mountain. So is it that they don't want us to know or they don't want the other factions to know? They don't want the general population to know what the factions are doing. And why? Because then they would lose the monopoly. If the general population knew that there was off planet galactic mining 
or whatever that whatever it is. That if the general doing. population knew this technology existed, they would want it to exist for their benefit. Mm, interesting. Not their detriment. And you think it's being done at their detriment? Absolutely. Hmm, why? What, like, if there is like an off-planet fleet, why is it at our detriment? The preventing of us accessing technologies that exist is to our detriment because we're not reaping the benefit of reality. So you fly a lot. Mm -hmm. Why should it take you 16 hours to get from here to Paris Mm -hmm. when technology can get you there in an hour? Mm. Is that now to your detriment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I understand. Because the technology that could get you there in an hour is being withheld from you. So your whole world is now negatively impacted because somebody else has monopolized a technology and prevented you from accessing it. The FAA limits how fast commercial air traffic can fly, mm-hmm. not based off of what's technologically available. Right. The Concorde, obviously, as we know, can go much faster. Why are you not allowed to travel at the rate that technology tolerates? Mm-hmm. Who gets to make you live in such a level of detriment? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be advantageous for you to get to places in half the time right? for a fraction of the cost? Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. So this is just monopoly of technology for the profiteering of those that wield it. Interesting. And there's not like a safety component. I'm assuming if you ask the FAA, they'd probably be like, look, this is the speed you got to go because our you, cars can go. You have to ask them. I would right. say they don't have an acceptable answer. Because our cars can go, you know, much faster than the speed limit. Of course. But like, then the speed limit's imposed. Understood. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm assuming that's for our safety, yada, yada. And that would be relative to road conditions. But we learned in Germany that you can build an autobahn that you can travel faster on. Mm-hmm. So technology allows for greater speed of travel. Again, why are we limited? Mm-hmm. And so if we found out that they were able to have like advanced space travel and mm-hmm. build s- societies off Earth, mm-hmm. that would be at our detriment because we're not actively using that as a general population, we can't access that as mortgage payers. Correct. And then we're also, um, we're, we're, we're paying more because we're um, told resources are limited. Hmm. We're told this is all we have on the planet. We need to be careful. Well, that goes right out the window. If there's a planet here and a planet here, we can get it from here, we can get it from there. I see. It just, it changes the whole conversation. Hmm. Knowledge is power. And a lot of people are being prevented from having the knowledge. So, like, hypothetically, if you found an, a planet with diamonds, as we know, diamonds are extremely mm-hmm. abundant in the right. in the universe, in the solar mm-hmm. system. If you find a planet with a ton of diamonds, the mm-hmm. diamond companies on Earth would be like, hey, we want to withhold that. Right, correct. But it's to our detriment because people want to have diamonds. Correct. And they're accessible in space, et cetera. Would that, <coughs> would that be an example that you would— Yeah, that, you would that works. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Hmm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And is there— Because controlling the whole— I was going to say worldview, but it goes beyond world now. But it's 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 limiting people's ability to think in real terms because mm-hmm. we're not getting reality presented. Right. It's it's like a, a prison of the mind. Hmm. Do you think all people should have access to all the secret operations, the military, and the I technology? Do. Really? I do because I would say, uh, look what the contrary has gotten us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about that. If we had access to all the information, all the technology that the U.S. government had at its disposal, mm-hmm. 
I feel like that'd be like I could see that being a national security risk. I could see that that's, causing that's problems. That's the the angle for which they shut it down mm-hmm. and monopolize the technology because now it's them deciding what we get to know. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's to our detriment, not theirs. Hmm. They then get to monopolize the technology and decide who gets what and when. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm, I guess I wonder if corporations, like, why why are they not pushing? Like, these very, you know, successful billionaires, like, I wonder if they could use the technology to make more profit. They are. They are. Yeah, those are the ones doing it. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, like, are there billionaires on earth that are, like, business moguls, you know, like heads of companies and corporations that are aware of these off Oh, absolutely. I think so. Yes, yes. They're they're the ones doing it more so than the nation states. hmm. It's actually the the, that's what's really going on is you have companies like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin that are actually the breakaway civilization because they're the again they're the the governments are at least loosely regulated by we the people. Right. The corporations absolutely are not, Mm -hmm. especially because if they. If they create a technology and don't share it with us, again, it's an unknown, unregulated item that they own. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people would say, well, they have every right to do that. Do they if they got their information off of monies from taxpayers that we were obligated to put into research and development. Mm. <coughs> Should we not get a return on that investment? Is I that see. fair? I see. I mean, this happens a lot like with like different skunk works projects in, you know, US exactly. military, right? Exactly. Like, you know, they are trying to come up with freeze dried foods mm-hmm. for, you know, World War II. Right. And so they pay this guy, they're like, hey, figure it out. Mm-hmm. He comes up with a, you know, a lemonade that you can pour water in. Yep. And then after the war, mm-hmm. he turns it into Minimade. Right. And so that's kind of the story of like how different products have been, in, you know, yep. sort of brought into into the fold. Into the fold. Right. But there was a time where this guy had access to, you know, this freeze-dried food that mm-hmm. he was turning into lemonade and it was being used in the war and no mm-hmm. one knew about it. Right. And then it eventually got commercialized and then used and distributed to the public and people could purchase it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like in that middle part it was unethical? Yes, because I believe that uh, a lot of these exchanges, like you just mentioned, I think there is uh, like a good old boys club mm-hmm. that American people invest money. Next thing you know, the, the, the skunk works actually comes up with the lemonade thing, mm-hmm. right? But now if I'm a politician and you're my buddy, I go, hey, Mark, here's what's going to happen. We got this lemon powder stuff. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to say you invented it. Mm. And you're going to get a company that's going to become worth billions of dollars. And am I the politician? No, no, no. You're just my friend. I'm the politician. Uh, okay, okay. You're just my pal. Okay. So now I hand you this technology that was paid for by the people. Mm-hmm. I claim that you invented it. But in reality, you're just now a front company for another alphabet agency. Mm. So who invented it in this scenario? <clears throat> Let's say DARPA. Okay. In this scenario, some arm of the government figures it out in research and development, but then they tap somebody to become the profiteer of monopolizing the technology when it's released into the public. Right. Yeah. 
that's happening. That's what's going on with everything that we see. Mm -hmm. You really think Steve Jobs invented all of that stuff and it wasn't military product first? Hmm. I never thought about that. I don't know. He didn't invent shit. Really? Well, yeah, I know. I guess he didn't. All really of this stuff, everything that we have in the commercial world was already going on for decades in the military industrial complex. Hmm. And then what I just hypothesized is what occurred. Interesting. Somebody gets tapped. Oh, Mark, you're going to have this company called Apple. Oh, by the way, when we need you to do this, you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. When the CIA needs you to do that, you're going to do that. When these guys need you to do that, you can do this. Because you know why? Because we handed you the company in billions of dollars. Hmm. What are you going to do? Not listen to us? So do you think Steve Jobs like designed any of the products? No. He was just a front guy. Pretty much. Yeah, I, I don't believe any of these. I don't believe Elon Musk is accomplishing anything. Hmm. What is Elon Musk accomplishing? Rockets in space? <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, on, that's, on the not, that's like 1960s BS. Electric cars, we had those in the early 1900s. We figured out back then how ridiculous it was. Mm-hmm. But like the reusable rocket fuselage and things like that. You said rocket again. <laughs> yeah. 1960s technology. Who cares? It's a joke. Oh, did, but did they have the reusable? Who cares? You see, you're still talking about rocket technology when I'm trying to talk about anti-gravity, which makes rockets ridiculous. Mm. So here we have another front company trying to pretend it's at the leading edge. Look, we're not talking about rockets. We're talking about reusable rockets. Oh, cool. Hmm. What's the point of a reusable rocket when you're staring down the barrel of having anti-gravity as the true option? Mm, and then what would anti-gravity get us? Like we're able a to- A lot further and farther than reusable rockets. Hmm. And that technology, you're confident exists. Absolutely. Hmm. There's, there's so many people that have been in the anti-gravitics conversation for eons now. Hmm. There's-, there's um, you can go back and, and research things like uh, um, the Sonoro Aero Club from way back when, NIMSA. These are things that uh, Joseph P. Farrell, Walter Bosley discuss. That there's there's reports in the 1800s in the, the west coast of the United States of farmers discussing that air vehicles showed up and landed on their farms. Hmm. Who were these people? What was this technology? So do you believe that it could be aliens or do you believe that it's I believe advanced that technology from humans? I, I believe both are going on. Again, okay. this is why we, we need to stop trying to reduce things down to singulars when reality shows us that it's more complex and all of these things. I mean, just because we have anti-gravity on Earth at the time that we found it doesn't change that anti-grav could have been going on for a million years somewhere else invented i shouldn't say invented but discovered by some other groups somewhere else i certainly don't think that space is devoid of life hmm interesting interesting so then i guess i'm just curious also like other kind of like typical conspiracy things around this i know mm -hmm. you said that you got approached by flat earth people mm -hmm. that were kind of like trying to get you to come mm -hmm. on their side. Yeah, yeah. So just like hot take on different conspiracies, flat earth. Flat earth is a total psyop. The only people that believe in flat earth are feds and fools. 
That's the only way I look at it. You cannot convince me of otherwise. I have never heard anything come out of a flat earther's mouth that didn't sound fucking ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree with you on that. One. I mean, it's just it's just that cut and dry. They're like, oh, did you ever hear of? I'm I'm sorry. What shit did you just spew in my direction <laughs> that you believed? I mean, it's it's completely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, hollow Earth. I'm not opposed to that concept. Can you explain what that is a little for people that don't know? Um, just the idea that the interior of the planet is not what we've pre been presented scientifically. That um, They use the term honeycomb, mm -hmm. that it's more porous, cavernous. And I think there's at least a reasonable conversation to have in that direction, hmm. unlike Flat Earth. Flat Earth is ridiculous. Um, something going on in the interior of our globe um, stands to reason, at least. Uh, moon landing. Oh, for that, I would say I, I do believe that there was a hoax on the front end because of the race to, you know, outdo Russia. Um, I think they first manufactured... Um, fake stuff and a narrative, uh, and then we eventually did get there anyway. Okay, so we did get to the moon. We did get to the moon, but I think um, after when we said we did, hmm. I think they made a production to win the race, mm -hmm. to take the trophy and be like, we got there first, but I don't, I don't think we got there then. I think we got there after it. That's interesting. I'm always curious if Russia could have seen, like could they detect on the moon, like, yo, y'all aren't there. And would they have said something? I, I think they could have and they didn't because it's just one of those arguments you can't really win, especially at that time. Like if we said we got to the moon and then all of a sudden Russia came and was like, they're lying. It was just like in a way. And not, again, not that I'm agreeing with it, but these are like the debates that people would have. Like, well, we can't say that because then we'll just look like sour grapes, you know, like mm. – you know, and then the U.S. will just come back with, "Look how terrible Russia is! They're so mad that they lost <laughs> the race that they have the audacity to try to say that we didn't make it there." And it's just this endless cycle of bickering, hmm. <coughs> which most topics are nowadays anyway. Interesting is it's just to keep an you know an ongoing argument that no one can ever win. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, the Hollow Earth thing is is kind of curious. I know uh, I was Admiral Admiral Byrd. Mm -hmm. Uh, that did Operation High Jump. Correct. Which is a famous declassified military operation basically to survey mm -hmm. uh, the the South Pole. I think he also went to the Arctic as well. Mm -hmm. um, but he had like apparently in his journal, and I tried to fact check it before mm -hmm. uh, we talked. I couldn't really find – I only, I only looked for a little bit. There is a lot of people quoting Admiral Byrd's diary as of late. Yeah, I've seen this. What, what do you think of that? I, I think I hear a lot of people quoting a diary that I've never seen anybody present to the public yet. <laughs> right. So what the hell is going on with that? I mean, I I have no problem considering what could be going on. But at some point, my goal is to get to the brass tacks facts of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I have a grand issue with people when they keep quoting something that they can't present. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen some they things. They keep talking about it like it, like like they've seen it. Yeah. Where's in what format are they seeing this thing? I keep hearing, oh, well, his nephew or so, someone released it. Yeah. 
And some of the quotes well, who's are pretty the wild. someone and where yeah, and where's where's this actual diary that keeps getting referenced? Okay. Yeah, I haven't looked into it, so I don't yeah, know. I think, the I think a lot of I think a lot of things are a psyop. And I, I think this might be one of them. But he says some pretty wild things allegedly in these He didn't actually really say anything really wild, actually. Oh, really? It's just a lot of people um don't understand Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And are taking great liberties to take things that they don't understand and then I guess like run with the ball. Mm. Mm -hmm. So as an example, there are folks that um, take – and I'm I'm paraphrasing. But there's times where Bird talked about areas in Antarctica that had no ice. Right. Well, those are called the dry valleys. They're, yeah. they're known. There yeah. are areas in Antarctica with no ice. Which is actually interesting. If you Google it, you can see like these big, like sort of like dry brown bluffs. Right, which makes no sense. We don't have an explanation mm-hmm. for why these areas are devoid of ice, but yet they are. Yeah, what do you think of that? It's it's nuts. Yeah. There's no explanation. It makes no sense. Having been to Antarctica, I find it really freaky that we have the dry valleys. Mm -hmm. But having been there and having an understanding of reality, when other people take birds' diaries and run with it, be like, oh, there's no ice, so that means this and that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It just means he he flew over the dry valleys. Mm Mm-hmm. And recorded from his perspective in the language he preferred at the time. But it's nothing crazy. It's nothing out of the ordinary. Yes, there are areas in Antarctica devoid of ice. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that's the opening to hollow earth? Well, that's a leap of logic. (laughs) Right. Right. But this is the stuff that people are utilizing Mm. in these conversations and be like, oh, well, I guess you don't know about Bird's Diaries. No, I do. I guess you don't know about ever being in Antarctica. (laughs) Right. You know? I mean, it is interesting seeing those brown bluffs, though. Absolutely. It's it's very curious. It's like... It makes no sense. I'm assuming it's like, at least to me, I'm like, it must be a desert, and I guess deserts are dry, and so maybe The whole continent's a desert. Right, right. Officially, it's the (coughs) highest, driest place on the planet on average. Mm -hmm. It is the world's largest desert. It is 0% humidity. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder if maybe, like, that area gets, like, wind exposure and ice there's doesn't wind settle. everywhere. Yeah, I guess maybe there's something about that valley, maybe. I don't there's, know. There's something, but we, you're right, we don't know. There's yeah. something weird going on there, mm-hmm. but we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious what that is. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. And, uh, yeah, I guess he said some other things about, like, caves. Like, I've heard some different uh, conspiracies about portals and things like that in Antarctica. I would love to see where people can prove that this is what he said. Yeah, I feel there's a lot of people taking great liberties to the fact that Byrne went down there, what they want to be the narrative, and then making some connection that never really existed. Mm-hmm. I came across something recently where somebody was trying to say that um, they were trying to go off of the flight logs, and they were stating that um, they were talking about how Admiral Byrne reported that he saw flora and fauna. Hmm. In Antarctica. And they're like, oh, that's amazing. But I listened to it, and it, he was stating that he was flying at like 1,900 feet of elevation. <laughs> well, 
I had said before, it's the highest. So at the South Pole Station, there's 10,300 feet of ice. Wow. Between the ground and where we were residing. So we're at 10,300 feet of elevation of ice. That's crazy. So if Bird's at 1,900 feet of elevation, Uh. that means he's on the coast (laughs) where there's flora and fauna. That we know about. That we already know about. Hmm. So people are just taking great liberties to confuse people. If his actual flight log says he's at 1,900 feet of elevation, we know he's on the coast. Well, guess what you find on the coast of Antarctica? Grass. Right. And Pe- some of the- Penguins. And, yeah. I mean, the 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 the, um, the Palmer Peninsula stretches out pretty close to Argentina. Hmm. There's portions of Antarctica that are- North of 70 degrees, north of 60 degrees, still part of Antarctica officially. Right. Is that uh, that you can fly over right. and see flora and fauna? So the fact that Admiral Byrd says, I was flying over Antarctica and I saw flora and fauna, is that really a big deal? Right. Yeah, I guess if you don't know anything about Antarctica. And that's what's going on is that there is a ton of people that don't know jack squat about Antarctica, and there's other people that are controlling the narrative to make mountains out of molehills. And Mm. I would say that that's applied intention to get people to focus on the BS that means nothing when there's folks like me that are coming out to say, this is what's really going on. Interesting. So you think it's a diversion against actual Absolutely. military weapons, actual... It is a diversion against actionable intelligence. So portals to different dimension nonsense. It's every single time someone with direct first-hand experience on the topic steps up and says anything that goes against the, the narrative, you get attacked by all of these people that have no direct first-hand experience trying to tell you how you're wrong, Hmm. which I find laughable because I know better because I was there. I understand that maybe other people weren't there, but at some point, um, how do I put it? It's like if you're sitting in your house, Mm -hmm. okay, and I show up, I walk in the door, and I'm soaking wet, and I go, man, it's pouring rain out. But then you have another friend who's sitting in the house with you who's never even left the house, and he goes, nah, it's sunny out. You'd be like, no, it's this guy's experience. He's just been in the water. You would think so, right? Mm -hmm. But now we don't have that so much anymore. People don't really respect the person with direct firsthand experience, especially if the other person goes, well, I got a link that says it was sunny out. Mm. I have these 16 links that say (laughs) that it's sunny out. It's like, well, I'm telling you, I just came in from outside and it's raining out, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people nowadays are like, well, it's not my, I don't have to know it's, I asked this guy, I asked this guy, who am I to decide? You know, this is my friend and I don't want to get between them. And that's, it's cowardly. Yeah. A lot of people like, you know, podcasts and stuff, right? A lot of people will be like, well, I just put the information out there and I leave it up to the audience to decide. Mm -hmm. That's cowardly. Hmm. Because it would be the same way as like if you had a podcast and you were like, well, my one friend says that it's raining out. My other friend says that it's sunny out. And how am I supposed to know? It's called stick your head out the window and figure it out. Mm. If you're going to just sit there and say, I don't know. Right. But I'm never going to go to Antarctica. Understood. (laughs) But then at that point, at least you should yield to the one that you know has been there. Mm -hmm. And what I'm finding is that there's a massive machine of intention Mm. that is doing due diligence to make sure that people don't pay attention to someone like myself who has direct firsthand experience and instead is a 
you know, confusing the conversation by bringing in all of these people that have no no experience on the topic. Hmm. And the, I, the the term gatekeeper gets thrown around in the disclosure circles, and I can say it's it's rampant. Um, like I had told you, I had been to a, a convention in Las Vegas the first time I spoke publicly, mm-hmm. and gave my presentation. The producers of the show then came to me afterwards. Oh, good job, this and that, blah, blah. Um, But here's what we need you to do. Um, We need you to figure out a way to take your information and your experience and have it support flat earth. There's two, the the producers, I mean, this is is how it goes. I told them to go fuck themselves. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm not here to play games. I don't know what you guys are up to. Mm -hmm. But this is, again, this is what I'm learning by getting involved with disclosure. My direct firsthand experiences are that most of these guys are full of shit. They don't care what information is going out there as long as they can control the numbers Hmm. and just sell more tickets. Oh, flat earth cells. Right. There's a demographic that we can market There's this to. Absolutely. Right. All day long. There's mm. very few and far between um, folks that I come across in the disclosure circles that I would say are honestly looking to help people by getting the truth out there. Interesting. And how does like uh, like aliens or things like that interact with sort of your worldview and kind of how you see everything connecting? In my worldview? I think we need to be very seriously concerned that that analogy before I said that, you know, we're like a product on the farm mm. and that we need to be concerned because I I question whether the farmer is from Earth or not. Hmm. What if we're like intergalactic chicken <laughs> for a different species? Mm-hmm. And I think the more research that I do, it's starting to look like that this planet has been under the thumb of some other stuff, folks, and that we're just that confused to our reality, that we need to be really concerned that um, the profiteers of technology, the monopolizers, may be working, like they might be like, how do you put it, like um, in prisons, there's like inmates Mm -hmm. that get tapped to like work with the wardens. Mm to keep everybody in line. And I suspect that we have humans on this planet that are like those inmates that are keeping the rest of the inmates in line. But we're going to freak out when we find out who the wardens are. Hmm. Interesting. Do you think, I I know people kind of float the idea of these aliens being like demonic or something like that. Do you think there's any room for that or? I think it's two different things. I think is that also potentially a force that's happening? I, I think I'm not opposed to the idea of there being demonic things. I haven't looked into them. Sure. But I feel like it's a muddying of the waters when we have folks that believe in demons mm-hmm. um, trying to say that all aliens are demons. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's weird to just try. Again, it's like it's like you're trying to reduce stuff to simplify it. And it's like, well, I don't... I'm not against the fact that there could be demons. I'm not against the fact that there could be aliens, but I don't understand why we're trying to make the two the same. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, if, yeah, I get your position. If it, you know, why can't all these things be happening concurrently? Yeah, if, that, that's yeah. the way my brain goes. Is that you know that the again the world is more complex. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you feel like that? You, how do I say this? 
have you felt that because of your work as a whistleblower, your life has ever been threatened? I know my life has been threatened. Um, I just don't care. I mean, it's it's that simple. Like, In what way? How do you know it's been threatened? Well, I've... I've I've literally had people um, threaten violence against me. I was presented in Washington, D.C. with violence. I mean, <clears throat> I had two guys get right in my face in D.C. and threaten me. Mm. And they spit in my face. Yeah, I mean, it was it was aggressive, I guess you would say. But like I said, I grew up in a community <laughs> yeah. where, You're I mean, violence was a norm. Yeah. So two dudes getting in my face saying they were going to kick my ass, I basically got right in their face and was like, you better hurry up or turn around like a bitch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Like, you stepped up to me. And what was their issue? Do you know? That I was with the, the Greer Disclosure crew. So they were just like anti-Greer people? It seemed that way. It looked like they were uh, instigators. I, I believe that they were probably looking to start a fight to get it on camera. Interesting. That there's probably someone in proximity looking to film one of us flipping out and doing something wrong. Discrediting everything. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. Have you had anyone from government agencies or anything like that reach out either in support or in condemnation of your work? I would say uh, in support, there were folks that were affiliated with the government that have uh, reached out privately to support what I'm doing. And then I would say that there were people who have reached out to be against what I'm doing that have also done it privately but did not fess up to being with any particular organization. Mm, but you were able to, to intuit that they were. Oh, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. In person or was it like digital? Um, definitely digital. I'm trying to think if there was. I mean, I've had, I've had peculiar exchanges with people um, that I knew, you know, represented a faction, but it wasn't an overt threat at that time. Mm -hmm. So distinctly different things. Um, the term I would use is getting tapped. Like there are times where I'm aware that I'm being like probed, so to say, by someone, hmm. but it's not a threat at that point. Interesting. They're just trying to like get info. Get info. Yeah. There's, there's certain times where I can, you know, I could be in an airport or it's just something where all of a sudden like someone shows up next to me and the line of questioning just gets really pointed really fast. Oh, really? And it's just like, guy. Oh, really? Come on. And then they just literally like smile or something and it's like. And you think there's something going on. Oh, absolutely. I know it. There's, there's been times. Um, I call it like when someone gets my folder. Hmm. So okay, like yeah. we know in the government, like there's, there's a need to know basis, mm -hmm. right? Certain people get read into a certain level of stuff. This is something that I've experienced many times now. So it's like all of a sudden, you know, somebody pops up next to me. They engage me in a conversation they go like right for the jugular so to say on certain topics it's like oh you just sat down next to me and this is the topics that you get right into really and they know your work from something they know everything. they know something hmm. because of the angle of question i know at that point that they know something Interesting. so what winds up happening is it gets very rapidly to a point where i can just start finishing their sentences <laughs> because they got a little folder on me what they don't know is how many more guys before them 
have gotten the same folder. Interesting. They're a low man on the totem pole. Huh. And then they usually freak out when I start finishing their sentences for them because I'm like, oh. And then I literally just go, and then I go right for the jugular. I go, so are you going to ask me this next? Oh, and then you must have got to this page in the folder. And then they're like. Really? Yeah. And that's when it gets fun because I'll turn home and I'll say, listen, here's reality. Because it's, it's an ego thing at that point because these guys really think who they are. Yeah. And I've said this has happened so many times and I've lost count where these dialogues occur and I just turn to the guy because at that point, I mean, I'm not happy that I'm getting tapped, tailed, whatever you want to call it. It's a bit frustrating. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an incursion on my freedoms, right? Sure. It's could be considered a threat by some, but technically there was no threat made. Um, but what I usually do to antagonize them is I go, listen, you're here right now because you know who I am. That means I'm important. I have no clue who you are. You're a nobody. You just got a half-ass folder and you're here asking questions. You don't even know what you're talking about right now. Yeah. You're discussing topics that you don't even know. You're bringing up a topic because you got a folder yeah. that said to bring this topic up. Well, let's talk about it. What do you know about it? Oh, you don't know anything about it? Oh, so you just, like, what'd you do? Like, you didn't even do your, you, what'd you read, two pages into the folder? And how can you tell the difference between them and people that listen to you on a podcast and they're like, oh, Eric, I want to talk to you Because the people that listen to me on a podcast actually understand the topics that we're discussing. Interesting. But if some dude just got my folder and he's some lazy fed, <laughs> he's just pulling out bullet points. And they're like, so, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, cool, what do you think about that? Oh, you don't know anything about it? Interesting. Maybe you should have spent more than two hours on the folder before you showed up here. Interesting. Yeah, that's wild. Mm -hmm. And that you can detect that they're like which people are like actual fans and which people are just They've just done it so many times. And what are they now. trying to do, you think? Trying to just get data from you to like yeah. add to the folder? Yeah. To 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 confirm things. Um a lot of a lot of the questions have to do with how did I get my info? That seems to be, uh, a lot, and that's why I avoid that topic a lot. That makes sense. Yeah, you know, how, well, how do you know that mm. that's what's going on? Because I was there. How's that for an answer? Do you feel like they're trying to track down yes, like, the leaks? Yes, And then like punish the people that told yeah. you stuff? They, they want to figure out where the cracks in the dam were. Wow. Absolutely. And that's why you're so protective of trying to. That's a, that's a reason. Yeah. For starters, the people that shared the information with me on certain topics were very clear. Like, I will share this with you, but you will never associate me to this. Mm. I'm not as bold as you in your maneuvers. I have fears. I have concerns. I'll give you this information, but you will not associate it to me. 10-4, copy that. Mm. You know? So, yes, there's that edict from them, but then through my experiences and getting tapped so regularly, you start to realize their end game is to try to figure out what's going on, who knew what, where, when. Interesting. Mm -hmm. huh. So when you first started talking about this, were mm -hmm. you scared? Like, no. Not even? No. And, and, and back to that, uh, these are big picture things, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have a fear of death because I don't think death is the end of anything. Hmm. We just, trend, there's, there's more to life than we've considered. Um, it's part of the controlling program to convince people that death is the end mm -hmm. so that when you have a fear of death you have something that you can hang over people's heads hmm. Interesting. if you're not afraid of it imagine if no one was afraid of dying because we completely understood what happens next right you know how much loss of 
power and control certain factions would have immediately. Hmm. It's a very powerful tool. Interesting. And then on the point of, uh, I know you and Patrick, but David talked about this, the, you know, sort of like the thought control, implanting mm-hmm. thoughts in people's heads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, have, do you feel like you've ever got a thought implanted in your head? Oh, I, I absolutely know that people have tried to do that. I'm aware of these technologies, and this is where I would say that it's um, what we have to do to defend against this is know thyself. And this is why it was an ancient battle cry and bannered over the doors of the ancient mystery schools is that what we're experiencing today mm-hmm. is technology that's attacking us mentally when in antiquity it was a technique. Hmm. So our ancestors were aware that someone who was proficient enough as a human being, again, to these skill sets that we're not being told that exist, there's a way to learn a technique. I just recently heard somebody discussing it. They called it, um, oh, shoot, I forget the term that they use, but like uh, throwing an image. So instead of throwing your voice, right, we know that you can throw your voice, right? If I'm proficient enough, I can make it sound like I'm in there. Yeah, I've seen that. Well, couldn't I then make it sound like I'm in there? Hmm. If I could copy your voice, couldn't I then insert my thought in your head in your voice? Hmm. These are just old techniques. But now we have technologies that can do the same thing. The end result response to that still is know thyself. So you already right now, you have all these different thoughts going through your head and Mark, maybe you should this, Mark, maybe you should that. And you have this inner dialogue. Mm -hmm. What if I can add an additional version of you into that conversation? Hmm. But it's one that I control what it says, whether I do it by technique or technology. It's powerful. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. And commercially marketable. Right, because yeah. now, if it's the now, if the debate in the inner dialogue is, do I want a Whopper or a Big Mac? <laughs> well, now we understand commercial motive. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, who's going to pay more that week? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, this week it's Big Macs, and next week it's Whoppers because now uh, McDonald's and Burger King just got into collusion and decided on uh, odd number days we're going to pump into people's heads. That it's Big Mac Day, and on even numbers days, it's 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 Whoppers. Deal, deal. Okay, hmm. that's where we are right now. Yeah, I'm interested in that. I want to look more into that that topic of like how they can get into our dreams and things like that. I don't. Uh, I don't know. For me, sometimes when I think of ideas, I don't always like hear a voice telling me the idea. Oh, understood. Yeah, you know and, I, I mean? and and I'm not trying to claim that that's exactly what they're doing. Mm. They're just they're just stating that they can have the information. They're not really discussing the how. Mm-hmm. They're just clarifying that the dialogue can occur. The thought can be put in there. Maybe it's an image. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's some on one day, some on another. A feeling, an emotion, things like right. that. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's just that when the commercial comes on, you have a feeling of affinity, mm-hmm. so that it's a, a one-two punch, so to say. Hmm. But that's different than for the dreams. The dreams is taking it to another level because they're not talking about it being impacted by the television and it being a one-two. They're they're straight up saying this new technology is us 
dialoguing with you in a lucid state. Hmm. Have you ever had a dream about a brand? Not that I could think of off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm thinking about my dreams. It's like it's it's always it's always weird. It's always like mm -hmm. I'm gonna gotta build a go kart and my. And I've definitely and, had some yeah. peculiar dreams, <laughs> yeah. but I don't think I and can recall specifically. And I, and I only have ten minutes. I'm on the moon. You know what uh -huh. I mean? Like it's just like goofy stuff. I never mm -hmm. like dream about like, oh, I can't wait to buy Geico insurance. You know what I mean? Understood. Like, so I'm. I'd be curious if I woke up with a dream like that. I'd be like, oh, that's weird. But it's never happened. I don't think I've ever understood. Done. Yeah. So I'd be curious, like, if that happens. I got to read that that article. I'll link it in the description. The the scientific. If you American. start having dreams with Ronald McDonald and Grimace <laughs> running around with you building go karts, though, <laughs> that's where it's <laughs> that's where it's sketchy, dude. Yeah. And if he's good at building go karts and I win the race, then I will go to McDonald's. There you I'd, go. Be, I'd be fine with it. <laughs> yeah, this is all really interesting. It's a, it's a lot to take in. Absolutely, it's tons. Yeah. I hope yeah. you don't find my line of questioning to be. Uh, no, no, no. no. This is this target. is fantastic. Okay, mm -hmm. I, I appreciate. It. Yeah, I just, no. This is this this to me is normal human conversation. Okay. and curiosity. I'm not a fed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell with my hair. I'm yeah. not a fed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's just a lot to take in. It's a lot to think about, and uh, mm -hmm. I think there's some things I kind of disagree on, but there's a lot of elements that I think are very interesting and mm -hmm. that I do agree on. Um, a lot of the things that I'm presenting, I would say, are inherently disagreeable. Nobody wants what I'm saying to be true, including me. Yeah. But this is the problem is that we, you know, I forget who said it and where, but they said that, you know, if you make the lie so big, it's just like it's undigestible. Yeah. We, we, it's repugnant. We refuse, like we literally like refuse to believe it <laughs> yeah. because it's such a powerful problem. Yeah, yeah, and you're, and there's something of your energy also, your delivery, like the the enthusiasm you have is like. I like, want people to know yeah. what's going on because yeah. it's 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 for the betterment of all of us involved, instead yeah. of just the 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 monopoly of what's going on right now. This is not the way the world is supposed to work. Right. Yeah. It's the 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 two main conversations that I listened to before <coughs> we talked, Sean Ryan and, and Patrick Bet David, both of them kind of seemed a little bit. Uh, flummoxed for lack of a better word about it, it, your you, information and you are correct but for different reasons it's actually funny so sean literally like i was the third person that he interviewed that day mm -hmm. and i mean the interview is what it is we saw how that went mm -hmm. but the funny the funny thing was as soon as he ended the 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 production right cut the cameras he literally like jumped out of his chair, put his hand across to shake my hand and was like, you'll come back and talk about this again, right? Hmm. And I was like, yeah, sure. He goes, he goes, I don't even know what to do with what you just told me. <laughs> yeah. He goes, I was sitting here the whole time. He goes, you were saying stuff. And he goes, I couldn't even think of a question. <laughs> he goes, you just, you, you blew my mind. Yeah. He goes, I didn't even know where to go with this. Interesting. And I was like, I get it. <laughs> yeah, Sean's and this, That's cool. He's a great dude. But now this is... This is a Navy SEAL, CIA <laughs> operator. Like, this guy has seen some shit yeah. and can extrapolate. And it blew my mind that I blew his mind. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what do you mean you don't get what I'm getting at? I came here because I thought you would get what I'm getting at. But yeah. this is this is the dilemma. This is, you know, one of the first things that I spoke to Dr. Greer about before, you know, I ever went on air with him. But I was talking with him behind the scenes like, hey, sir, you know, I know these things. You know these things. We're all trying to connect the dots. And I, you know, ever since I've been disclosing my information, I, I really, really I really thought 
that I would just take the information that I have and like almost like like drop it on the table and that like all these other noble newscasters, all these, I just figured that they would take it and run and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I've never been as disappointed in my life to see that people just don't even want to touch it. Mm. And it really frustrates me that a lot of it has to do with a lack of understanding because to me, I, I, I walked this walk. So to me, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I, From my perspective, I don't understand how other people have difficulty with it. Yeah. Well, so, it is It is a lot. I think you can acknowledge that. It's, I can now yeah. in hindsight. And if you don't have first-hand having, experience. Having tried so hard for all these years, I appreciate that angle, but that's not where I was at in the beginning. Sure. Yeah. In the beginning, I just thought like, here you go. Right. This is everything you need to know. And I can get that. If you have firsthand experience, <laughs> you hear from the people that know exactly what's going on, and yep. then you drop it all, you're like, guys, hello. And then you kind of forget, like, oh, they haven't gone through what I've gone through. Right. And this is one of the things that I discussed with Greer was mm-hmm. he was like, he's like, what you don't understand is how little people understand when you're talking to them. And yeah. I was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Like, he goes, your new job, he goes, which you're going to hate. He goes, you're going to have to be so repetitive, it's nauseating. Yeah. And I was like, don't say that. Because I, li- <laughs> like, I, I hate having to repeat myself. Yeah. It's maddening to me when you say something. Someone's like, what? You say it again, what? And like, <laughs> but this is what I have to do now. This is the burden that I bear is that apparently no one's listening or comprehending, so I have to keep saying it until they do. Yeah. That's where I'm at. Now, and I'm, I asked this, and it's going to sound uh, insulting, so forgive me. This mm-hmm. is, I just know people will want to know, mm-hmm. like, are there any, like, drugs or things you were doing at the time that you were figuring this out that do you feel like influenced your opinion about this at all, psychedelics, anything like that? No. No. Uh, have you ever been diagnosed for, like, any type of, like, mental illness? Or Never. Bipolar, as as, things as like a that? matter of fact, I've been through many psychological evaluation processes that the average human never goes through Mm -hmm. and I've been shown to be awesome. Passed everything. Psychological eval for the submarine service, I passed. Psychological eval for the winter program at the Antarctic station, I passed. Mm -hmm. So technically, I've been psychologically evaluated and shown to be better (laughs) off than most people. Sure. Yeah. Those are the facts. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I would, I can operate from a position where if other people want to challenge me with that, I would say, show me the psychological evaluation that you ever took that says you're not nuts. Because I've done it twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have the receipts. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And so now you're working in Alaska full time, mm-hmm. doing similar kind of work that you were yeah, doing. Yeah. Remote in maintenance in very austere conditions that are challenging. Yeah. I like fixing stuff. Um, when the odds are against you. Yeah. That's, that's you know, like you, you had stated earlier, like, you know, is plumbing boring? Not the way, not in the environments <laughs> yeah. I work in. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, is being a welder boring? Or like, you know, if you're a deep sea welder, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I, I choose working environments that make my job challenging because I like to be in that mode. Mm-hmm. I do well in emergency operations. And is there anything that you want? Is there a product that you are putting out there? Is there anything that you want people to like pay attention to or, or focus on just as like a general kind of wrapping up PSA? No. As far as me trying to pump anything, absolutely not. Um, I would just ask people to go to my website, mm-hmm. deciphering.tv, and share the information. I mean, I have interviews um, like this will go up there. Um, 
other pertinent people's work I've been starting to put up there. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's just a repository of truth. And I would um, respect anybody who gets involved in this fight to help share the truth. Go to deciphering.tv, watch some videos, anything that strikes a chord, please share it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming all the way out this way. And mm-hmm. I know this is a long journey. It's all uh, good. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was very, very interesting. A lot of stuff I'm going to think about probably for cool. a while. Yeah, awesome. Um, did you enjoy the conversation? Was it was it fair? Absolutely. This is okay. a very fair conversation. Uh, I'm happy that it was as long form as it was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think it just gives people more saturation into the topic yeah. to understand that it's um, bigger and more complex than other conversations would have might have even shown. Yeah. And then anything you would want to omit or like cut out, you can just let me know. I don't, yeah. I would think everything's hunky-dory. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. This was, this was really cool. I think the audience will enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then was there, was there any details or anything that we left out that you feel like is important for the overall discussion? I don't want to say left out, but I would like to double down and re-emphasize know thyself. That's, that's the answer to this is that people have the power to learn discernment. We have so many systems, structures around us contemporarily to um, take us out of our own in here. You know, we got, you know, digital weapons that are distributed to us and everybody's sitting here doing this all the time and they're not in here anymore. Mm -hmm. So that provides a level of confusion for the enemy basically. And if we practice discernment and learn to know thyself with greater accuracy, um, that's how we defeat these systems. Yeah. That's that's what we need to learn. So it's like, um, you know, people are familiar with the term firewalls and computer systems and stuff like that. And when we get into these technological intrusions into our own heads, you know, I get the immediate fear that everybody could have. Like, oh, my God, they're in my head and they can connect to my... It's a two-way street. There's no firewall. So we, as much as it is an intrusion and they can get into our heads, um, like I said before, um, like uh, if you don't admit there's a problem, there's nothing you can do about it. In this equation, once we realize there is a problem, the knowing thyself and the wherewithal to know that there's not a firewall, well we're no longer the victims. We can have people that can become proficient in reversing the conversation back into whatever system is intruding Amazing. because there's no firewall. So yeah. we as a people can collectively overpower mm-hmm. this technology by appreciating the problem and learning the ancient technique. Know thyself. Be aware of the intrusive thought that doesn't match all of the other thoughts in your head so that you can separate the wheat from the chaff and be better for it instead of being caught in this state of confusion that we see so many people around us being negatively impacted by, I would just simply say, intrusive thoughts applied by technology. Mm -hmm. (coughs) When have we ever seen so many people on this planet agree about anything as rapidly as we saw the whole planet start putting masks on? Yeah, that's that's funny. I would say there's an application of a technology to make everybody very uh, acquiescing. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I was going to put a mask on by whatever detail 
mm-hmm. they stated was their justification. Right. And I would say that was a personalized, widespread assault that they were very simply able to put a technology that could read Mark's head. Well, what is what is it going to take for Mark to put a mask on? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the end goal is to get the mask on him and him and him and him and her and her. But mm-hmm. they personalized it because we have that level of technology hmm. that can go in and, f- and and put an AI bot into you that says, well, what is the thing that will get well, – let's try this and let's try hmm. that. Until eventually we got to cross the board compliance. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you need a technology <coughs> like like that, like a, like a thought technology or, if, you know, hypothetically you could just use – Traditional media and oh, you know, it's all of those things. Fear recurring. of you know ostracization and that know, it was group a compliance full court press with the addition of the new tech. I mm. mean, we're certainly seeing it in the media everywhere, but we've always had the media per se, but we've never had that level of compliance. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Well, this is all very interesting. I really appreciate it, Eric. Mm-hmm. Thank you again for coming on. Yeah, awesome. I think this was fantastic, and. Um, I'm curious to see uh, if people actually watch a video this long. I'm hopeful that they do because I, I believe that matters a lot in this world of you know sound bites and, and video shorts. Yeah. Um, I don't think any of that stuff does justice to any topic. Yeah, I agree. Well, I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you so again. much for having me, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Talk soon.